Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's Chase and Josh of Factor Fantasy. That's Chase, I'm Josh, and we are here to give you part three of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince today. We got a lot to get through. I'll tell you what, you know, when we started this series, we had a feeling that even though Half-Blood Prince is a smaller book in terms of the number of pages, the amount of detail that goes into it is so extensive with everything starting to come around full circle. Like this is kind of like almost junior year of high school where you have like the big stuff that happens that leads into like the finale which is your senior year so this is a there's a lot that's going to go into today it might be one of the longer episodes there's going to be a lot of reading straight off from the book but all of it is super important to the storyline and we don't want to miss any of that especially now that we're getting to the amazing moments that happen the ones that are most fresh in people's memories because they're the end books and kind of show you how we get to the end of the story of Harry Potter. So we won't take too much time out of the day today to, to give you this little introduction. I will let Chase uh, say a few words. I know he put out his Interesting Facts episode on Wednesday. Let him uh, introduce himself and say, hey, what's up to the people? And then we'll just jump right in and get going with uh, chapter 13 through chapter 18 today. Next week's going to be kind of a lot of the same with chapter 19 through chapter 24. So buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, because we're going we're gonna to have a, a nice long ride. All right. So with that being said, I'll turn it over to Chase and uh, let him take it from here. Yeah, it's gonna be a it's a bumpy ride. <laughs> it's definitely. <laughs> I uh, I was just listening to that uh, one a.m. song by Meek Mills. One a.m. probably be in the club. Well, instead I was one a.m. still taking notes on this bad boy. <laughs> yeah, it's a beast, man. Uh, and then Wednesday, like we always say, thanks for being the loyal followers that you are. The shields that guard the realm of fantasy. I know that one was a long one. Usually don't have ones like that, um, but we did get to actually go through something, you know, that takes a lot of time that you don't get to hear often. We did get to go through the prime ministers and the ministers of magic and the sacred 28. So that was pretty cool. Um, and you got to hear a little bit about the different uh, spells uh, that are cast that play a, a big part in this book um, as far as you know, some things that Harry started getting into a little bit, um, and we didn't go too much into that, but what's great is this this book, I was impressed, man. It uh, It's probably, and I'll let you kick us off, Jay Nelly, but just a little comment on this. It's definitely a more adult read. Like, it, you can tell a major difference in this book versus compare this to something like Chamber of Secrets, and it's two different levels completely. And even though this one, you know, you look at it and you say, well, that's not that big because you just conquered Order of the Phoenix and Goblet of Fire. Uh, the detail in reading it, though, and the depth of intellectuality to be able to comprehend, like, what's going on with all the different um, perspectives on each character and what's going on as far as foreshadowing it will definitely uh, take you through a loop. But we're in the third quarter here, man. So we're on that second half and just going to continue the ride in the words of Fast and the Furious. One shot, everything rides on. <laughs> Let's do this, man. I'll let you kick us off, Jay Nelly. You got it, brother. Sweet. So kind of where we left you guys off last week with uh, chapters 6 through 12, 
the real big things that happened, right? Ron was able to make the Quidditch team with a little of assistance with Hermione, and that comes into play a little bit uh, as we go through this week and next week. On top of that, probably the biggest moment that happened, uh, the whole thing with Katie Bell. She, uh, We ended up having her touch that necklace. Uh, she got that curse on her. She was taking the St. Mungo's. That was the biggest thing, and it was funny because Chase was sitting on that interesting fact for a long time with you guys and was able <laughs> to finally put that out. Uh, so that was the good news there with that one. And so that kind of leads us in with where we're going to start up today is the the ending of Harry and Ron and Hermione telling Professor McGonagall what they saw in Hogsmeade, uh, what happened to Katie Bell. And then from there, that's going to jump right in here to Chapter 13. So without further ado, Chase now get a little patented malice in the chalice, and I'll kick us off, and we'll start taking it from there, baby. Let's do it. Malice in the chalice, baby. Malice in the By chalice, By the way, guys. right as we start it. out, it was uh, last week they started filming for uh, House of Dragon. <laughs> so uh, just a little cheers to those guys, because I know that's where our malice really started with our big arc, but... You know, to think that uh, this is double the episodes, and we thought that was a beast. <laughs> Let's get it started. Let's <laughs> no get kidding. it started. <laughs> yeah, man. You got it, man. So on page 258, uh, I, it's, I found it funny. Just some fun moments here. It's like Ron and Hermione, they now pretend to be deaf whenever Harry brings up his Malfoy as a Death Eater theory. And my question to this, like, you know, that I have, not not that it needs to be answered, but I think in my head, I'm like, like, I wonder if they believed Harry from the jump about Malfoy being a Death Eater, if anything at the end would have turned out differently. I'm not sure that it would, because there was a certain plan kind of followed the whole way around, but still something that I think about. Um, continued on there on page 258, I also wanted to notate that it said Dumbledore was looking unusually tired. Uh, you know, the, 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 we're starting to see Dumbledore is not the uh, invincible man that you know he, we've come to believe him to be throughout the series you know that not from his battle with Voldemort to what happened to be burning black in his hand where his hand kind of looks dead we're going to learn more about that but uh, we're seeing that time has finally taken its toll on on, on the big old Dumby there so uh, going into page 259 here I thought it was interesting that Professor Snape not Madame Pomfrey assisted in preventing the curse on Katie Bell from spreading because well, in Dumbledore's own words, you know, Professor Snape knows much more about the dark arts than Madame Pomfrey. In my mind, like I thought that we were trying to keep Snape from the dark arts as much as possible. That's why he didn't give him the position the whole time except for this year. But, you know, Dumbledore always has a plan. He always, he really always does have a plan with this thing. So, anyways, going on later through page 259, I'm going to read the last three paragraphs in here because it's kind of a good foreshadow. So he goes, uh, this is from Harry speaking to Dumbledore. Uh, where were you this weekend, sir? Harry asked, disregarding a strong feeling that he might be pushing his luck. A feeling apparently shared by Phineas Nigellus, who hissed softly. I'd rather not say just now, said Dumbledore. However, I shall tell you in due course. You will? said Harry, startled. Yes, I expect so, said Dumbledore, withdrawing a fresh bottle of silver memories from inside his robes and uncorking it with a prod of his wand. So we're about to learn where... Dumbledore is going when he leaves the school, right? That's has been kind of a running theme that Dumbledore kind of leaves the school uh, for periods of time. And what he's working on, no one really knows yet. Well, we're going to find out later on, and that was a good foreshadow of it. Now, on page 260, I'm going to read the last three, please, the, the third paragraph regarding Mundungus stealing Sirius's stuff here, just because it kind of brings a full circle moment around from last week where we talked about Harry throwing Mundungus up against the wall in Hogsmeade and Tonks happened to save him and all that. So 
Anyways, this is from uh, Harry here. It's Sir, said to Harry tentatively, I met Mundungus in Hogsmeade. Ah, yes, I am already aware that Mundungus has been treating your inheritance with light-fingered contempt, said Dumbledore, frowning a little. He has gone to ground since you accosted him outside the three broomsticks, and I rather think he dreads facing me. However, rest assured, he will not be making away with any more of Sirius's old possessions. So, the reason why I wanted to read that, it shows... I mean, not that we haven't had evidence already, but everyone's terrified of Dumbledore, getting Dumbledore mad. Like, like everyone loves Dumbledore, he's a great guy, but everyone really kind of fears making him upset. So, he's like, yeah, he's like I, I think he dreads facing me, so I like that. Now, this is what we were talking about, guys, because I'm going to take this here from page 267 through the end of the chapter. Uh, and there's a huge foreshadow on page 277 in here. I'll read that out to you. But I'm going to take this here through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to discuss it because this is this is some really big stuff. So it's going to start here where it says, Because of the evidence of one Caractus Burke, said Dumbledore, who, by an odd coincidence, helped found the very shop whence the necklace we have just been discussing came. He swilled the contents of the pensive as Harry had seen him swill them before, much as a gold prospector sifts for gold. Up out of the swirling, silvery mass rose a little old man, revolving slowly in the pensive, silver as a ghost, but much more solid, with a thatch of hair that completely covered his eyes. Yes, we acquired it in curious circumstances. It was brought in by a young witch just before Christmas. Oh, many years ago now. She said she needed the gold badly. Well, that much was obvious, covered in rags and pretty far along. Gonna have a baby, see? She said that the locket had been Slytherin's. Well, we hear that sort of story all the time. Oh, this was Merlin's, this was. His favorite teapot. But when I looked at it, it had his mark all right. And a few simple spells were enough to tell me the truth. Of course, that made it near enough priceless. But she didn't seem to have any idea how much it was worth. She was happy to get ten galleons for it. Best bargain we ever made. Dumbledore gave the pensive an extra vigorous shake, and Caractus Burke descended back into the swirling mass of memory from whence he had come. He only gave her ten galleons? said Harry indignantly. Caractus Burke was not famed for his generosity, said Dumbledore. So we know that, near the end of her pregnancy, Merope was alone in London, and in desperate need of gold, desperate enough to sell her one and only valuable possession, the locket that was one of Marvolo's treasured family heirlooms. But she could do magic, said Harry impatiently. She could, she could have got food and everything for herself by magic, couldn't she? Ah, said Dumbledore, perhaps she could. But it is my belief, I am guessing again, but I am sure I am right, that when her husband abandoned her, Merope stopped using magic. I do not think she wanted to be a witch any longer. Of course, it is also possible that her unrequited love and the attendant despair sapped her of her powers. That can happen. In any case, as you're about to see, Merope refused to raise her wand even to save her own life. She wouldn't even stay alive for her son? Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. Could you possibly be feeling sorry for Lord Voldemort? No, said Harry quickly. But she had a choice, did she not? Like, not like my mother did. Your mother had a choice too, said Dumbledore gently. Yes, Merope Riddle chose death in spite of a son who needed her. But do not judge her too harshly, Harry. She was greatly weakened by long suffering, and she never had your mother's courage. And now, if you will stand, where are we going? Harry asked as Dumbledore joined him at the front of the desk. This time, said Dumbledore, we are going to enter my memory. I think you will find it both rich in detail and satisfyingly accurate. After you, Harry. And Harry bent over the pensive. His face broke the cool surface of the memory, and then he was falling through darkness again. Seconds later, his feet hit firm ground. 
He opened his eyes, and he found that he and Dumbledore were standing in a bustling old-fashioned London street. There I am, said Dumbledore brightly, pointing ahead of them to a tall figure crossing the road in front of a horse-drawn milk cart. This younger Albus Dumbledore's long hair and beard were auburn. Having reached the side of the street, he strode off along the pavement, drawing many curious glances due to the flamboyant cut suit of plum velvet that he was wearing. Nice suit, sir, said Harry before he could stop himself, but Dumbledore merely chuckled as they followed his younger self a short distance, finally passing through a set of iron gates into a bare courtyard that fronted a rather grim, square building surrounded by high railings. He mounted the few steps leading to the front of the door and knocked once. After a moment or two, the door was opened by a scruffy girl wearing an apron. Good afternoon. I have an appointment with a Mrs. Cole, who I believe is the matron here. Oh, said the bewildered-looking girl, taking in Dumbledore's eccentric appearance. Uh, just a moment. Mrs. Cole, she bellowed over her shoulder. And Harry heard a distant voice shouting something in response. The girl turned back to Dumbledore. Come in, she's on her way. And Dumbledore stepped into a hallway, tiled in black and white. The whole place was shabby, but spotlessly clean. Harry and the older Dumbledore followed. Before the front door had closed behind them, a skinny, harassed-looking woman came scurrying towards them. She had a sharp-featured face that appeared more anxious than unkind, and she was talking over her shoulder to another aproned helper as she walked towards Dumbledore. And take the iodine upstairs to Martha. Billy Stubbs has been picking his scabs, and Eric Wally's oozing all over his sheets. Chicken pox on top of everything else, she said to nobody in particular. Then her eyes fell upon Dumbledore, and she stopped dead in her tracks, looking as astonished as if a giraffe had just crossed her threshold. "'Good afternoon,' said Dumbledore, holding out his hand. Mrs. Cole simply gaped. "'My name is Albus Dumbledore. I sent you a letter requesting an appointment, and you very kindly invited me here today.' Mrs. Cole blinked. Apparently, deciding that Dumbledore was not a hallucination, she said feebly, "'Oh, yes. Well, well, then, you better come into my room. Yes.' She led Dumbledore into a small room that seemed part sitting room, part office. It was as shabby as the hallway and the furniture was old and mismatched. She invited Dumbledore to sit on the rickety chair and seated herself behind a cluttered desk, eyeing him nervously. I am here, as I told you in my letter, to discuss Tom Riddle and the arrangements for his future, said Dumbledore. Are you family? asked Mrs. Cole. No, I am a teacher, said Dumbledore. I have come to offer Tom a place at my school. What school's this then? It is called Hogwarts, said Dumbledore. And how come you're interested in Tom? We believe he has qualities we are looking for. You mean he's won a scholarship? How can he have done? He's never been entered for one. Well, his name has been down for our school since birth. Who registered him? His parents? There was no doubt that Mrs. Cole was an inconveniently sharp woman. Apparently, Dumbledore thought so too, for now Harry saw him slip his wand out of his pocket of his velvet suit at the same time picking up a piece of perfectly blank paper from Mrs. Cole's desktop. Here, said Dumbledore, waving his wand once as he passed her the piece of paper. I think this will make everything clear. Mrs. Cole's eyes slid out of focus and back again as she gazed intently at the blank paper for a moment. That seems perfectly in order, she said placidly, handing it back. Then her eyes fell upon the bottle of gin and two glasses had certainly not been present a few seconds before. Uh, may I offer you a glass of gin? She said in an extra refined voice. Thank you very much, said Dumbledore beaming. It soon became clear that Mrs. Cole was no novice when it came to gin drinking. Pouring both of them a generous measure, she drained her own glass in one gulp, smacking her lips frantically. She smiled at Dumbledore for the first time, and he, doesn't, he did not hesitate to press his advantage. I was wondering whether you could tell me anything of Tom Riddle's history. I think he was born here in the orphanage. 
That's right, said Mrs. Cole, helping herself to more gin. I remember it clear as anything, because I had just started here myself. New Year's Eve and bitter cold snowing, you know. Nasty night. And this girl, not much older than I was myself at the time, came staggering up the front steps. Well, she wasn't the first. We took her in, and she had the baby within the hour. And she was dead in another hour. Mrs. Cole nodded impressively and took another generous gulp of gin. Did she say anything before she died? asked Dumbledore. Anything about the boy's father, for instance? Now, as it happens, she did, said Mrs. Cole, who seemed to be rather enjoying herself now with gin in her hand and an eager audience for her story. I remember she said to me, I hope he looks like his papa. And I won't lie, she was right to hope it, because she was no beauty. And then she told me he was to be named Tom for his father and Marvolo for her father. Yes, I know, funny name, isn't it? We wondered whether she came from a circus. And she said the boy's surname was to be Riddle, and she died soon after that without another word. Well, we named him just as she'd said. It seemed so important to the poor girl. But no Tom, nor Marvolo, nor any kind of Riddle ever came looking for him, nor any family at all. So he stayed in the orphanage, and he's been here ever since. Mrs. Cole helped herself almost absentmindedly to another healthy measure of gin. Two pink spots had appeared high on her cheekbones. Then she said, He's a funny boy. Yes, said Dumbledore, I thought he might be. He was a funny baby, too. Hardly ever cried, you know. And then when he got older, he was... odd. Odd in what way? asked Dumbledore gently. Well, he... But Mrs. Cole pulled up short, and there was nothing blurry or vague about the inquisitorial glance she shot at Dumbledore over the gin glass. He's definitely got a place at your school, you say? Definitely, said Dumbledore. And nothing I can say can change that? Nothing, said Dumbledore. You'll be taking him away whatever? Whatever, repeated Dumbledore gravely. She squinted at him as though deciding whether or not to trust him. Apparently she decided she could, because she said in a sudden rush, he scares the other children. You mean he is a bully? asked Dumbledore. I think he must be, said Mrs. Cole, frowning slightly, but it's very hard to catch him at it. There have been incidents, nasty things. Dumbledore did not press her, though Harry could tell that he was interested. She took yet another gulp of gin, and her rosy cheeks grew rosier still. Billy Stubbs' rabbit, well, Tom said he didn't do it, and I don't see how he could have done, but even so, it didn't hang itself from the rafters, did it? I shouldn't think so, no, said Dumbledore quietly. But I'm jiggered if I know how he got up there to do it. All I know is he and Billy had argued the day before, and then, Mrs. Cole took another stick of gin, slopping a little over her chin this time, on the summer outing, we take them out, you know, once a year, to the countryside, or the seaside. Well, Amy Benson and Dennis Bishop were never quite right afterwards, and all we ever got out of them is what they had gone into a cave with Tom Riddle. He swore they'd just gone exploring, but something happened in there, I'm sure of it. And, well, there have been a lot of things. Funny things. She looked around at Dumbledore again as though her cheeks were flushed, her gaze was steady. I don't think many people will be sorry to see the back of him. You understand, I'm sure, that we will not be keeping him permanently, said Dumbledore. He will have to return here, at the very least, every summer. Oh well, that's better than a whack on the nose with a rusty poker, said Mrs. Cole with a slight hiccup. She got to her feet, and Harry was impressed to see that she was quite steady even though two-thirds of the gin was now gone. I suppose you'd like to see him? Very much, said Dumbledore, rising too. She led him out of her office and up the stone stairs, calling out instructions and admonitions to helpers and children as she passed. The orphans, Harry saw, were all wearing the same kind of grayish tunic, 
They looked reasonably well cared for, but there was no denying that there, this was a grim place in which to grow up. Here we are, said Mrs. Cole as they turned off the second landing and stopped outside the first door along the long corridor. She knocked twice and entered. Tom, you've got a visitor. This is Mr. Dumberton. Sorry, Dunderbore. He's come to tell you. Well, I'll let him do it. Harry and the two Dumbledores entered the room and Mrs. Cole closed the door on them. It was a small bare room with nothing in it except an old wardrobe and an iron bedstead. A boy was sitting on top of the gray blankets, his legs stretched out in front of him holding a book. There was no trace of the gaunts in Tom Riddle's face. Merope had got her dying wish. He was his handsome father in miniature. Tall for eleven years old, dark-haired and pale. His eyes narrowed slightly as he took in Dumbledore's eccentric appearance, and there was a moment silence. How do you do, Tom? said Dumbledore, walking forward and holding out his hand. The boy hesitated, then took it, and they shook hands. Dumbledore drew up the hard wooden chair beside Riddle so that the pair of them looked rather like a hospital patient and a visitor. I'm Professor Dumbledore. Professor, repeated Riddle. He looked wary. Is that like doctor? What are you here for? Did she get you in to have a look at me? He was pointing at the door through, Mrs. Mich through which Mrs. Cole had just left. No, said Dumbledore, smiling. I don't believe you, said Riddle. She wants to be looked at, doesn't she? Tell the truth! He spoke the last three words with a ringing force that was almost shocking. It was a command, and a sound as though he had given it many times before. His eyes widened, and he was glaring at Dumbledore, who made no response except to continue smiling pleasantly. After a few seconds, Riddle stopped glaring, though he looked, if anything, warier still. Who are you? I have told you. My name is Professor Dumbledore, and I work at a school called Hogwarts. I have come to offer you a place at my school, your new school, if you would like to come. Riddle's reaction to this was most surprising. He leapt from the bed and backed away from Dumbledore, looking furious. You can't kid me. The asylum. That's where you're from, isn't it? Professor. Yes, of course. Well, I'm not going, see? That old cat's the one who should be in the asylum. I never did anything to little Amy Benson or Dennis Bishop, and you can ask them. They'll tell you. I am not from the asylum, said Dumbledore patiently. I am a teacher, and if you will sit down calmly, I shall tell you about Hogwarts. Of course, if you'd rather not come to the school, nobody will force you. I'd like to see them try, sneered Riddle. Hogwarts, Dumbledore went on as though he had not heard Riddle's last words, is a school for people with special abilities. I'm not mad. I know that you are not mad. Hogwarts is not a school for mad people. It is a school of magic. There was a silence. Riddle had frozen, his face expressionless, but his eyes flickered back and forth between each of Dumbledore's as though trying to catch one of them lying. Magic? He repeated in a whisper. That's right, said Dumbledore. It's... it's magic what I can do? What is it that you can do? All sorts, breathed Riddle. A flush of excitement was rising up his neck and into his hollow cheeks. He looked fevered. I can make things move without touching them. I can make animals do what I want them to do without training them. I can make bad things happen to people who annoy me. I can make them hurt if I want to. His legs were trembling. He stumbled forward and sat down on the bed again, staring at his hands, his head bowed as though in prayer. I knew I was different, he whispered to his own quivering fingers. I knew I was special. Always, I knew there was something. Well, you were quite right, said Dumbledore, who was no longer smiling but watching Riddle intently. You are a wizard. Riddle lifted his head, his face transfigured. There was a wild happiness upon it, yet... For some reason, it did not make him better looking. On the contrary, his finely carved features seemed somehow rougher, his expression almost bestial. 
Are you a wizard too? Yes, I am. Prove it, said Riddle at once in the same commanding tone he had used when he had said, tell the truth. Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. If, as I take it, you are accepting your place at Hogwarts. Of course I am. Then you will address me as Professor or Sir. Riddle's expression hardened for the most fleeting moment before he said in an unrecognizably polite voice, I'm sorry, sir. I meant, please, Professor, could you show me? Harry was sure that Dumbledore was going to refuse, that he would tell Riddle there would be plenty of time for practical demonstrations at Hogwarts, that they were currently in a building full of muggles and must therefore be cautious. But to his great surprise, however, Dumbledore drew his wand from an inside pocket of his suit jacket, pointed it at the shabby wardrobe in the corner, and gave the wand a casual flick. The wardrobe burst into flames. Riddle jumped to his feet. Harry could hardly blame him for howling in shock and rage. All his worldly possessions must be in there. But even as Riddle rounded on Dumbledore, the flames vanished, leaving the wardrobe completely undamaged. Riddle stared from the wardrobe to Dumbledore, then his expression greedy, pointed at the wand. Where can I get one of them? All in good time, said Dumbledore. I think there is something trying to get out of your wardrobe. And sure enough, a faint rattling could be heard from inside, and for the first time, Riddle looked frightened. Open the door, said Dumbledore. Riddle hesitated, then crossed the room and threw open the wardrobe door. On the topmost shelf, above a rail of threadbare clothes, a small cardboard box was shaking and rattling as though there were several frantic mice trapped inside it. Take it out, said Dumbledore. Riddle took down the quaking box. He looked unnerved. Is there anything in that box that you ought not to have? asked Dumbledore. Riddle threw Dumbledore a long, clear, calculating look. Yes, I suppose so, sir, he said finally in an expressionless voice. Open it, said Dumbledore. Riddle took off the lid and tipped the contents onto his bed without looking at them. Harry, who had expected something much more exciting, saw a small mess of everyday objects, a yo-yo, a silver thimble, a tarnished mouth organ among them. Once free of the box, they stopped quivering and lay quite still upon the thin blankets. You will return them to their owners with your apologies, said Dumbledore calmly, putting his wand back into his jacket. I shall know whether it has been done, and be warned, thieving is not tolerated at Hogwarts. Riddle did not even look remotely abashed. He was still staring coldly and appraisingly at Dumbledore, and at last he said in a colorless voice, Yes, sir. At Hogwarts, Dumbledore went on, we teach you not only to use magic, but to control it. You have, inadvertently, I am sure, been using your powers in a way that is neither taught nor tolerated at our school. You are not the first, nor will you be the last, to allow your magic to run away with you. But you should know that Hogwarts can expel students, and the Ministry of Magic, yes, there is a ministry, will punish lawbreakers still more severely. All new wizards must accept that, in entering our world, they abide by our laws. Yes, sir, said Riddle again. It was impossible to tell what he was thinking. His face remained quite blank as he put the little cache of stolen objects back into the cardboard box. When he had finished, he turned to Dumbledore and said baldly, I haven't got any money. That is easily remedied, said Dumbledore, drawing a leather money pouch from his pocket. There is a fund at Hogwarts for those who require assistance to buy books and robes. You might have to buy some of your spellbooks and so on secondhand, but... Where do you buy spellbooks? interrupted Riddle, who had taken the heavy money bag without thanking Dumbledore and was now examining a fat gold galleon. In Diagon Alley, said Dumbledore, I have your list of books and school equipment with me. I can help you find everything. You're coming with me? asked Riddle, looking up. 
Certainly, if you... I don't need you, said Riddle. I'm used to doing things for myself. I go running, I go round London on my own all the time. How do you get to this Diagon Alley? Sir, he added, catching Dumbledore's eye. Harry thought Dumbledore would insist upon accompanying Riddle, but once again he was surprised. Dumbledore handed Riddle the envelope containing his list of equipment, and after telling Riddle exactly how to get to the Leaky Cauldron from the orphanage, he said, You'll be able to see it, although muggles around you, non-magic people, that is, will not. Ask for Tom the barman. Easy enough to remember. He shares your name. Riddle gave an irritable twitch as though trying to displace an irksome fly. You dislike the name Tom? There are a lot of Toms, muttered Riddle. Then, as though he could not suppress the question, as though it burst from him in spite of himself, he asked, Was my father a wizard? He was called Tom Riddle, too, they've told me. I'm afraid I don't know, said Dumbledore, his voice gentle. My mother can't have been magic, or she wouldn't have died, said Riddle, more to himself than Dumbledore. It must have been him. So, when I've got all my stuff, when do I come to this Hogwarts? All the details are on the second piece of parchment in your envelope. You will leave from King's Cross Station on the 1st of September, and there's a train ticket in there, too. Riddle nodded. Dumbledore got to his feet and held out his hand again. Taking it, Riddle said, I can speak to snakes. I found out when we've been to the country on trips. They find me. They whisper to me. Is that normal for a wizard? Harry could tell that he had withheld this mention of the strange power until that moment determined to impress. It is unusual, said Dumbledore after a moment's hesitation, but not unheard of. His tone was casual, but his eyes moved curiously over Riddle's face. They stood for a moment, man and boy staring at each other. Then the handshake was broken and Dumbledore was at the door. Goodbye, Tom. I shall see you at Hogwarts. I think that will do, said the white-haired Dumbledore at Harry's side, and seconds later they were soaring weightlessly through the darkness once more, before landing squarely in the present-day office. Sit down, said Dumbledore, landing beside Harry. Harry obeyed, his mind still full of what he had just seen. He believed it much quicker than I did. I mean, when you told him he was a wizard, said Harry. I didn't believe Hagrid at all when he first told me. Yes, perfect. Riddle was perfectly ready to believe that he was, to use his word, special, said Dumbledore. Did you know, then, asked Harry. Did I know that I had just met the most dangerous dark wizard of all time, said Dumbledore? No. I had no idea that he was to grow up to be what he is. However, I was certainly intrigued by him. I returned to Hogwarts intending to keep an eye upon him, something I should have done in any case, given that he was alone and friendless, but which already I felt I ought to do for others' sake as much as his. His powers, as you heard, were surprisingly well developed for such a young wizard, and most interestingly and ominously of all, he had already discovered that he had some measure of control over them, and begun to use them consciously. And as you saw, they were not the random experience, experiments typical of young wizards, he was already using magic against other people, to frighten, to punish, to control. The little stories of the strangled rabbit and the young boy and girl he lured into a cave were most suggestive. I can make them hurt if I want to. And he was a parcel mouth, interjected Harry. Yes, indeed, a rare ability, and one supposedly connected to the dark arts, although we know there are parcel mouths among the great and the good too. In fact, his ability to speak to serpents did not make me nearly as uneasy as his obvious instincts for cruelty, secrecy, and domination. But time is making a fool of us again, said Dumbledore, indicating the dark sky beyond the windows. But before we part, I want to draw your attention to certain features of the scene we have just witnessed, for they have great bearing on the matters we shall be discussing in the near future meetings. Firstly, I hope you noticed Riddle's reaction when I mentioned that another one shared his first name, Tom. Harry nodded. 
There he showed his contempt for anything that tied him to other people, anything that made him ordinary. Even then, he wished to be different, separate, notorious. He shed his name, as you know, within a few short years of that conversation and recreated the mask of Lord Voldemort, behind which he has been hidden for so long. I trust you also noticed that Tom Riddle was already highly self-sufficient, secretive, and apparently friendless? He did not want help or companionship on his ship to Diagon Alley. He preferred to operate alone. The adult Voldemort is the same. You will hear that many of his Death Eaters claiming that they are in his confidence, that they alone are close to him, even understand him. They are deluded. Lord Voldemort has never had a friend, nor do I believe he has ever wanted one. And lastly, I hope you are not too sleepy to pay attention to this, Harry. The young Tom Riddle liked to collect trophies. You saw the st box of stolen articles he had hidden in his room. These were taken from victims of his bullying behaviors, souvenirs, if you will, of particularly unpleasant bits of magic. Bear in mind this magpie-like tendency, for this particularly, will be important later. And now, it really is time for bed. Harry got to his feet and he walked across the room. His eyes fell upon the little table on which Marvolo Gaunt's ring had rested, but this time the ring was no longer there. Hey, yes, Harry, said Dumbledore, for Harry had come to a halt. The ring's gone, said Harry, looking around, but I thought you might have the mouth organ or something. Dumbledore beamed at him, peering over the top of his half-moon spectacles. Very astute, Harry, but the mouth organ was only ever a mouth organ. And on that enigmatic note, he waved to Harry, who understood himself to be dismissed. And that finishes chapter 13 there. The reason, guys, that you, you must be catching on by now that we have to read that whole entire chapter is just think about what we learn from the history of Lord Voldemort, even from a young child. Dumbledore did a great job in explaining these things, too. And, you know, that big, that big foreshadow I was talking about on page 277 where he likes to keep trophies. Well, we're going to figure out why that's really important, especially uh, next week. It's going to come up really big. But there are some big things and big moments in here that really show how... Tom Riddle, even as a boy, was already destined to kind of become the dark wizard that he did, right? You know, being right. able to, be like, picking on these kids and not being able to be caught for it, you know, it, it was, it's pretty remarkable that he was able to get this rabbit to strangle itself. Like, like Dumbledore was saying, he had this crazy control over his power for 11 years old. Remember, like, Harry, he didn't know what he was doing. He accidentally made the glass disappear in the zoo, like when then set the snake on uh, Dudley back in Sorcerer's Stone. But like he had no idea what things would happen. They would just happen in crazy moments. Well, Tom Riddle, the the boy Tom Riddle, was using like his powers consciously. Like he knew what he was doing when he was using them. So he got the rabbit to kill himself. He did something to to Amy and Dennis Bishop there in that cave. And that cave actually does come important. In a couple weeks, uh, Chase will actually take you through that cave in a, in a few weeks from here today. So that's going to be a little foreshadow for you from us. But uh, yeah, like that's uh, these are just some things that really show you that this was already destined to, to happen. And I wonder that you know what ha what would have been the case if Dumbledore heard all of that from Tom Riddle and decided it's safer not to teach him how to use magic and just let him go through the world. Do you think? That he still would have become like a notorious mass murderer of muggles, even though he didn't have a wand, of, and he could still use his magical powers. Like, how do we think that would have turned out if Dumbledore just decided, you know what, we're not going to teach this, this man to use magic? Or do we think that Dumbledore allowed this because, like always, he tries to see the best in people and give everyone a fair chance? Like, I'm curious to get your ideas on that, Chase. Yeah, my ideas on that... Um... 
sorry, malice in the chalice. Um, throat was dry. Um, what I would say about that is, I feel like he would just cause harm to the Muggle world at that point. Like I feel like Dumbledore probably saw it. I mean, let Dumbledore researched him before he just went to that orphanage. So I feel like Dumbledore probably saw it as, you know, yeah, we're gonna, it's gonna give us an opportunity to give him a chance. But at the same time, if he's at Hogwarts, it's, it's not like he can really just go off the campus there. At least it'll give them that year. I mean, he was saying, like in this chapter, right, to, um, you know, I'm terrible with names. The girl that owns the orphanage, Miss Orpine or whatever her name is. Yeah. What's the girl's name? <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Cole. Yeah. Mrs. Cole is Mrs. Cole. Yeah. yeah, sorry. My bad. Um, yeah, Mrs. Cole. Um, he was telling Mrs. Cole, you know, he'll still have to come back over the summer, right? But at the same time, I feel like it was saying, at least for this point, uh, we can watch him for this year. It's actually very interesting. Um, we talked about it very brief- briefly on interesting facts um a few few weeks ago uh, when we were kind of going through some stuff that related to fantastic beasts and where to find them um it was a little bit ago because it it dealt with actually nagini but there is a theory where jk rowling has said some things in interviews where because the whole idea was nagini was actually a a maledictus um but they claim that of course he didn't run into her until a long time later but the whole idea in that cave is she was saying was he had the same similar thing with harry like he ran into snakes in that cave and that's what really freaked him out so that's a theory of course and uh that's what really freaked out amy benson is what they say is like his possible tongue abilities but just like um that's one great thing about dumbledore though is you know how he even responded to him it's unusual like it doesn't mean like you're a bad person it's very unusual so i i just don't think that to answer your question i don't think that's in dumbledore's character to just write this kid off keep in mind he's still a kid here yes he has some very it's almost like the kid that loves just to watch like um microwaves and shit explode outside but like on a whole nother level like it's like that but i feel like it's still he's still a kid at this point like you can't really he's almost like it makes you that that gets really detailed into the concept of what do you call the age of accountability because obviously he knows what he's doing but has he really been taught the difference in what's right and what's wrong in these situations with these new magical abilities that he has so to answer your question i just feel like one dumbledore probably saw it as one this will also help the muggle world out because at least we know with him being a child at least the thought is you know at even though he is does grow up to be the most powerful <laughs> dark wizard of all time they don't know that yet but the whole idea is you know at least mature wizards and witches can protect themselves against a child versus maybe a muggle world plus i don't think that's really in dumbledore's character just to write someone off when they're a child but that's a very good point you had 
I think for me, then the way I see it is that Dumbledore's thinking that with the right maybe discipline and guidance, maybe we can change his character. Like maybe we can make Tom into like you know somebody uh, who's a productive, nice, generous member of society. Like you know maybe change like who he's become. Maybe he's only maybe in Dumbledore's mind he's only who he's been forced to become because. Think about his life. He was born in an orphanage. His mom died. Never knew his father. No one came yeah. to look for him. He's abandoned as a kid, right? So maybe Dumbledore's like thinking, mm-hmm. well, maybe if we give him in the right set of circumstances, we we can help him turn out to be a you know a good person. So I'm thinking that's probably what his thought process was. Is like, hey, you know, we've got a great set of teachers at Hogwarts. I'm going to keep an eye on myself as the headmaster, um, you know. So maybe that they were. He was thinking that with all the the discipline and the teaching and showing how to control things in a good and positive way, that they would be able to change him as a person and make him better. And then I think that maybe that just didn't happen. And then also, there's another thing I want to point out from that chapter too. Mm-hmm. I thought was really cool is when Tom would say stuff in like commanding tones, almost like uh, Legilimens, like telling you to like do something and like see if you're lying to him or not. Like you know, tell the truth. And like he said, he was looking for Dumbledore's eyes to see if one of his eyes were lying. And like. He already had some wild abilities as an 11-year-old who didn't even know he was a wizard, right? So, like, this guy, he had some real special talent, like, as a, as a child, you know, and it really shows that and how great he is as a wizard growing up. I you know what, that's, he's a bad wizard, but he's still great in terms of the stuff he's able to accomplish and do. You know, just I thought that was really cool. He even when, remember when he told Dumbledore, prove it, and, like, said the same commanding tone. So, prove like, it. he's very used <laughs> yeah. to, like, you know, giving commands and having them being followed, and he seems to be pretty adept at knowing when people are lying to him or not already, you know, so I just thought it was crazy. So uh, I'd be interested to get your take on that as well. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to ask you a question on that because yeah. it, uh, and and I know this is you know we got to stay on focus on this episode, but I feel like this question is pretty important. At what do you ever feel like it was ever a situation? Because we've discussed this on the show, and I, I do definitely agree with you. He is the darkest lord, you know probably one of the you could argue one of the most powerful wizards of all time do you think this was ever like an anakin skywalker situation like of this guy could be almost like how harry is the chosen one because they just saw so much potential in him or do you think they saw it as more of like wow this guy's gonna mess some stuff up just like with going for proof here how dumbledore was saying you know, he really was worried more about his tendencies on what he was saying as far as like how he can hurt people and, and that sort of thing. Or do you think it was ever was ever was a situation of, hey, we have this other kid, we have this kid, and you know, he possibly is a direct heir of Salazar Slytherin. He does have these amazing magical abilities he never really grew up with any parents so maybe there is a chance just like you're saying you know we coach him up and he really could be something amazing i mean not to give anything away but there is parts in this book where they even talked about you know he was a top student like so you can't say he didn't have any potential so it makes you wonder like was this ever an anakin skywalker situation that just went south i don't think so and just simply because like the circumstances are different right like in the star wars universe there was always like dark lords and siths there's always like the master and the apprentice right where in this one it's it's not really like that like there were there have been dark wizards in the past you know gellert grinderwald for instance and stuff but Mm -hmm. like 
you know, in terms of, it, it doesn't seem like he was trying to become a dark wizard or like, because like the thing with Anakin is like, he could have been the one that brought yeah. balance to the force or he, he threw it, you know, no one's words, you know, he was supposed to bring balance to the force, not throw it right, in the darkness. Yeah. Right. I just don't think you, you can know, try. <laughs> That's Jay Nelly's favorite line. It guy. is. I like that a lot. <laughs> but like, I just don't see the correlation simply because it doesn't seem like the magical world was any sort of turmoil at the time. You know what I mean? There was no, there was right. no like big heavy conflict of like, we need a savior. You know, that came because of Lord Voldemort. Like, because Lord Voldemort did all the stuff, they needed a savior. And then yeah. that comes into the chosen one thing you're talking about with Harry and all that. So, no, I, I just, I, I don't believe that it's more of an Anakin Skywalker situation. Mm-hmm. I just believe that uh, he wanted to see how far he could take his powers and, and push the limits of the magical boundaries. And we see how it came out. It turned out. Yeah. And one last quick one, uh, quick question here, just on that same uh, topic there as far as so my question in regards to that being do we just classify this little kid as a sicko like a psycho basically because that's at least Anakin uh, which I, I understand I understand 100% like the universes don't exactly like align with choices and stuff but there's still I guess his family lifestyle kind of led up to it but yeah i mean basically it's the way voldemort kind of happened was he was just obsessed with power the whole time so i guess we can just he's basically just a psycho is is really the whole idea and then the other quick thing i was going to say just how you said like you know uh, i i piggybacking on what you were saying but just kind of in the opposite effect where you know tom was like saying like uh, like give it to me and all this stuff and really demanding of Dumbledore one thing I really liked about Dumbledore here he doesn't just take shit from this child like he was just like you know like the thieving thing he sat there and told him he said you know and that will not be tolerated <laughs> like you're not going to be doing that and uh, that's one place where I really gained a lot of respect from Dumbledore here he wasn't just like even though he just met this kid you know, you'll have a lot of uh, teachers and counselors will kind of be like on the super nice end, like trying just to get someone in to win, her o- win them over. Like Dumbledore was straight up like, listen, if you don't want to go, then fine, don't go. <laughs> like I'm not going to sit here and try to win you over right now. So, uh, but yeah, just on those two questions, would you just classify Voldemort as like a sicko really? Because he, he just really, is it, he just becomes obsessed with power do you think that's what really launched his whole his whole direction south because he's really been on a direction south since he was like a child which is almost unheard of so i I take it almost as the things that we see that are really popular nowadays like with netflix and the documentaries on serial killers he's shown a lot of serial killer tendencies right the the need Mm -hmm. to dominate other people like secrecy keeping to himself like you know you guys always hear about that stuff like the not to put this in a light situation at all just to draw a comparison but like with school shooters they're usually the quiet person like that holds stuff in their bags like they're, they're they're the ones that like aren't widely accepted by their peers and it seems like tom riddle has been like a loner ever since there and then like the people who would try like he would you know do, do these weird things to and i remember he killed the bunny and a really high a high uh mm-hmm. idea of like what serial killers do is they kill small animals before they grow up to kill people so 
I think he's more along the headlines had like the tendency to be a serial killer, um, you know, just just from birth. He, he was showing the classic signs of becoming a serial killer, which in fact he did become. You know, just different words right. used in the magical community. But yeah, so I, that's what I think. That I, I, it just might be like a, a disorder, a mental disorder that just he he was born with that he felt the need to carry out. You know, he never wanted yeah, to improve himself. He just felt the power and he just decided that I can do this and no one can stop me and here we go and I think that's kind of what happened yeah no that's good and <laughs> I like how you brought out too you know how there were even dark wizards before like Gellert Grindelwald but at least Gellert Grindelwald was doing it for a purpose like he always said like for the greater good because yeah. it's what he believed was like the better situation for the world like it's like Voldemort started yep. doing this such as like a little kid like it really is like a psychopath like i feel like he would have done this anyways whether he had no army whatsoever which so yeah no good stuff man i'll let you take us away interesting uh topics there Heck yeah. <laughs> on the dark for sure side. no they're really good on the dark side <laughs> so now going <laughs> into chapter 14 I'll take a couple bullet points and I'll actually let Chase take over from a certain page and he'll take us to the end of this chapter with some cool stuff when it comes to Quidditch. But uh, I'm not going to mention too much about this on page 279 because I've got an interesting fact about it. But I just want to say that uh, that Snargoluf stumps are mentioned here on page 279 and you guys will hear a little bit about that in a few hours when I do my interesting facts there. Um, On page 279, Ron questions why Dumbledore is sharing... Uh, showing Harry all these memories and what the use of it is. And Hermione is like actually telling him the, that there's this really, it's going to be super helpful to kind of understand what you have to defeat. You got to understand where it came from. That's kind of basically the thought process that I get from their little conversation back and forth. And that's right there on page 279. Uh, going on to page 280, Hermione tells him that uh, Professor Slughorn introduced uh, the Slug Club to Gwenog Jones, the captain of the Hollyhead Harpies, or the Holyhead Harpies, sorry. Uh, now that that I know that Chase has actually talked about Gwenog Jones before and the Hollyhead RP is when we were talking on like the interesting facts stuff when we were talking about Quidditch and that's and we also talked about Gwenog Jones in the beginning in uh, episode one of Half Blood Prince because when yeah, we, Harry went back. to Slughorn's house yeah well, yeah he went to Slughorn's house they he he mentioned all the people that he knew and people he was connected with and Gwenog Jones is one of them and now that he's back in school he was able to bring her and show uh, and like you know introduce him to like his, what they call the Slug Club. Um, <laughs> From there, you know, I'm going to read on page 280, the last paragraph through the first paragraph on 281, regarding how you actually remove a pod from the Snargoluf stump. So, anyways. Uh, okay, Professor, we're starting now, said Ron, adding quietly, in which she had turned away again. We should have used Muffliato, Harry. No, we shouldn't, said Hermione at once, looking as uh, she always did, intensely cross at the thought of the half-blood prince and his spells. Well, come on, we better get going. She gave the other two an apprehensive look. They all took deep breaths and dived at the gnarled stump between them. It sprang to life at once. Long, prickly, bramble-like vines flew out the top and whipped through the air. One tangled itself in Hermione's hair, and Ron beat it back with a pair of secateurs. Harry succeeded in trapping a couple of vines and knotting them together, a hole open in the middle of all the tentacle-like branches, and Hermione plunged her arm bravely into the hole, which closed like a trap around her elbow. Harry and Ron tugged and wrenched at the vines, forcing the hole open again, and Hermione snatched her arm free, clutching in her fingers a pod just like Neville's. At once, the prickly vine shot back inside, and the gnarled stump sat there looking as innocently as a dead lump of wood. So that's a bit about how you remove the <laughs> pods from the Snargoluf stumps. Uh, moving on from there, I thought it was interesting. Like Slughorn's like a little bit of a stalker, man. 
Because, like, you know, Hermione was saying that uh, <laughs> Slughorn made Hermione check what Harry's free evenings were so that Slughorn could get Harry to attend one of his get-togethers. Like, man, like, why you want this boy so bad in your in your place? Like, that's a little bit weird, Slughorn. You're, like, literally checking Harry's schedule. Like, make sure we can get Harry this time. <laughs> like, all right. That's great. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Slughorn's the man, dude. Like he's like the guy. Uh, now here's the thing. Like he's that typical guy that if he sees a celebrity or something or someone that has great potential, like we've talked about before, like he's all about it. Yeah. Like never once was he ever like even acknowledging Ron that multiple times was next to Harry like all the time, and never was he ever even ever gonna mention that kid like comes from the poor house you keep yourself in the poor house that's where you're gonna stay you know you're not the smartest of the group at least even though you know hermione at least her parents are dentists they might not be the richest but she's super smart harry's famous like what do you have to offer guy in the middle absolutely nothing (laughs) it's it's yeah i mean he's that guy that will throw your name around if you ever once even say hey like sees a celebrity takes a picture with him and then instantly is like oh yeah man brad pitt we go way back and then brad pitt's like dude like i I saw you on the side of the street one time and you asked for like 10 selfies like, See, I don't deal? agree. I don't agree with that analogy. I don't agree with that, and this is the reason why. Because all the people that like he's got connections with, he helped teach, so they all have a okay. relationship with Slughorn. Brett, like you know, that, that, that's like saying like he's like pretending to know these people. He actually does know these people in high places because he helped. He like he feels good, and we learn a little bit that more more about this later on when we get Slughorn's memory. But like he helps people get to these prominent places. And so, like, he's, he's one of those guys, like, I knew him when. Like, I knew Brad Pitt when he was just starting out as a child actor. I helped him develop okay, into who he is, is today. True. You know, yeah. that's, that's what I think but more it's than always that. He actually does know benefit. these people. Like, that's my oh, problem. For sure. It's always for something yeah. to benefit him. Like, when does he ever Absolutely. do anything for anyone else? It's it's for, like, inflated self-importance. He wants to feel really important, you know? Like, I knew all these famous people. I helped them get to where they are, right? That That's kind of his whole yeah. deal. And it's funny that you mentioned that about, like, Ron and how he kind of overlooks him because that's actually where we're about to get into right now. On uh, the second to last paragraph on page 281 through the first paragraph on page 284, a couple, three pages here. But this is pretty important. Uh, this is talking about... Um, Ron, who was attempting to burst the pot in the bowl by putting both hands on it, standing up and squashing it as hard as he could, said angrily, Is this another party just for Slughorn's favorites? Just for the Slug Club, yes, said Hermione. The pod flew out from Ron's fingers and hit the greenhouse glass, rebounding onto the back of Professor Sprout's head, knocking off her old patched hat, and Harry went to retrieve the pod. When he got back, Hermione was saying, Look, I didn't make up the name Slug Club. Slug Club, repeated Ron with a sneer worthy of Malfoy. <laughs> it's pathetic. Well, I hope you enjoy your party. Why don't you try hooking up with McLaggen? Then Slughorn can make you king and queen slug. <laughs> We're allowed to bring guests, said Hermione, who for some reason had turned a bright, boiling scarlet. And I was going to ask you to come. But if you think it's that stupid, then I won't bother. Harry suddenly wished the pot had flown a little farther so that he need not have been sitting there with a pair of them. Unnoticed by either, he seized the bowl that contained the pot and began to try and open it by the noisiest and most energetic means he could think of. Or fortunately, he could still hear every word of their conversation. You were going to ask me? Asked Ron in a completely different voice. Yes, said Hermione angrily. But obviously, if you'd rather I hooked up with Nick Lagan, there was a pause while Harry continued to pound the resilient pot with a trowel. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, said Ron in a quiet voice. 
Harry missed the pod, hit the bowl, and shattered it. Reparo, he said hastily, poking the pieces with his wand, and the bowl sprang back together again. The crash, however, appeared to have awoken Ron and Hermione to Harry's presence. Hermione looked flustered and immediately started fussing over her copy of Flush-Eating Trees of the World to find out the correct way to juice Snargliff pods. Ron, on the other hand, looked sheepish, but also rather pleased with himself. Hand it over, Harry, said Hermione hurriedly. It says we're supposed to puncture them with something sharp. Harry passed her the pot in the bowl, and he and Ron both snapped their goggles back over their eyes and died once more for the stump. It was not as though he was really surprised, thought Harry, as he wrestled with a thorny vine intent upon throttling him. He had an inkling that this might happen sooner or later, but he was not sure how he felt about it. He and Cho were now too embarrassed to look at each other, let alone talk to each other. What if Ron and Hermione started going out together then split up? Could their friendship survive it? Harry remembered the few weeks when they had been talking to each other and not been talking to each other in the third year, and he had not enjoyed trying to bridge the distance between them. And then what? What if they didn't split up? What if they became like Bill and Fleur, and it became excruciatingly embarrassing to be in their presence so that he was shut out for good? Gotcha! yelled Ron, pulling a second pod from the stump just as Hermione managed to burst the first one open so the bowl was full of tubers wriggling like pale green worms. The rest of the lesson passed without further mention of Slughorn's party, although Harry watched his two friends more closely over the next few days. Ron and Hermione did not seem any different, except that they were a little polite to each other than usual. Harry supposed he would just have to wait and see what happened under the influence of Butterbeer and Slughorn's dimly lit room on the night of the party. In the meantime, however, he had more pressing worries. I just wanted to read that one there because it's a big foreshadow. Yeah. Like, you know, Ron and Hermione's little get-together there. and it's uh, it, it, <laughs> We'll see that this party doesn't turn out the way... That it just mentions like you know, they had dimly lit room with the butter beer. It doesn't doesn't turn out that way. We'll see why in, in just a few. But anyways, why moving is it on. Ron yeah. is an ass all the time. Like why is it Ron can never like first of all, if it's like he can never take any hints. Like this girl has literally put up with his bullshit for for six years now. Put up with his bullshit. I would probably say in like. Three and a half, year three and a half, definitely four. Like, definitely four, and she's still hanging along, and he couldn't learn his lesson after year four, and he starts to come around year five. He goes back to the same old shit. Like, he can't even, like, everyone in the entire school realizes what's going on, except for Ron. Like, Ron is, like, it's almost like he's oblivious, or he's just an ass. Like, what do you think that is? Maybe, like, the fifth grade boy that tries to pull the girl's hair to be an ass because he think it, thinks it's like she'll think it's like adorable or do you think he's just for some reason couldn't turn out to be a bill and wasn't competent enough <laughs> to understand the situation which is why you had bill getting all these hot girls like Flora delacour <laughs> but he can't ever take a hint from the one girl that's put up with this shit all these years? I don't it's, know. It's tough, man. Like, I'll be honest. Like, in high school, at least for me, I don't know if it's the same for you. Like, everyone would tell me a certain girl liked me. And, like, I wouldn't believe that. Like, I, I wouldn't believe it myself. Like, I, like, I would want... I, I would need that person to specifically tell yeah. me to my face, yes, I like you. And, like, then I would believe it. But people are like, oh, she likes you. Like, and it's all whispering. And I'm thinking, like, nah, they're just trying to mess around. They, they just want me to embarrass myself, ask her out. And then, like, she's going to say no. And I'm going to look stupid. Like... All those like weird anxious teenage worries that you have of like you know those kind of things when in reality yeah, yeah it is like now looking back on it yeah they did they they, they did like me and I could have been, you know been better about it like I just think Ron with you know the the misgivings of youth 
just is a little bit like unsure of himself. He's not confident. He's never been in this situation before. He's 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 figuring out the murky waters of relationships in your early years, and he just doesn't want to do the wrong thing, especially because they have such a tight knit group as it is already as friends. Like yeah. Harry, Ron, and Hermione, if they mess that up, and all of a sudden like they, they, there's probably a lot going through his head, and like he just doesn't really know if she even likes him like that anyway. So he's just like, you know what? I'm just gonna treat her like I always treated her, and see like what happens there. And then, and then Hermione's like, well, I wish you would treat me differently because I like you. It's just I don't know, man. I just think Ron Why don't doesn't. You think he doesn't like, know. Oh, sorry, not to cut you off there. Yeah, you good. Um, I was just going to say, like, I guess it's because the situation we're talking about in the book right now, like, Harry's wondering, like, what would happen with his two best friends. Do you think that's why he, like, never said anything to either one of them? Like, played the owl in between? <laughs> like, the messenger owl? Probably. Yeah, I would I would say probably. Kind of, kind of similar to what, like, Hermione does later on in this book with Harry and somebody else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Hermione has an idea of what's going on, but she doesn't say anything to either of them either. I don't right, want to give anything yeah. away yet. And but. Speaking of not giving away anything about that, but let's go back to year four where we talked about what's funny is Ron kind of played a little bit of the owl when he was like, and then again, he did it in his Ron way that did not help whatsoever at all. But he was like, you can go with Harry, Jenny. <laughs> you can go with Harry. <laughs> back to you, Jay Nelly. Yeah, you got it, bro. So then, just one quick thing here on page 284, uh, Harry had to replace Katie Bell with Dean Thomas because Katie Bell is still in St. Mungo's, so now Dean Thomas, who incidentally is Ginny's boyfriend at the time, uh, he's going to be on the team with them. Now, uh, I think this is pretty funny at Quidditch practice, I just made a quick note on page 285. Ron panicked and punched Demelza Robbins in the mouth at Quidditch practice. <laughs> like just like you said, like Ron just never seems to do the right thing at any right time. He was getting so flustered at Quidditch practice that like he tried to like punch the quaffle and end up smotting Demelza Robbins in the mouth, like cutting her lip open and stuff. Um, yeah, <laughs> he's got bad go luck, lip. man. Ever yeah, since he, he did that doggy paddle thing, I was like, yeah, man, <laughs> gotta go bad on stuff, some man. other moves. <laughs> Now, what I'll do here is I'll read from page 286 to 290, and then what I'll do is I'll let Chase take over from 290 through the end of the chapter. I've got a couple paragraphs here that I want to I want to read from 286 to 290. I'll start here. It starts here with he kept up. Uh, this is talking about Ron, uh, Harry speaking to Ron encouragingly about Quidditch because of how disastrous that practice was, where he punched his own chaser in the mouth, <laughs> and, and it happened to be a girl. So, anyways. Um, he kept up a, a relentless flow of encouragement all the way back up to the castle. And by the time they reached the second floor, Ron was looking marginally more cheerful. When Harry pushed open the tapestry to make their usual shortcut up to Gryffindor Tower, they found themselves looking at Dean and Ginny, who were locked in a close embrace, kissing fiercely as though glued together. It was as though something large and scaly erupted into life in Harry's stomach, clawing at his insides. Hot blood seemed to flood his brain so that all that, all that thought was extinguished. Replaced by a savage urge to jinx Dean into a jelly. Wrestling with this sudden madness, he heard Ron's voice as though from a great distance away. Oi! Dean and Ginny broke apart looking around. What? said Ginny. I don't want to find my sister snogging people in public. This was a deserted corridor till you came butting in, said Ginny. Dean was looking embarrassed. He gave Harry a shifty grin that Harry did not return, as the newborn monster inside him was roaring for Dean's instant dismissal from the team. Uh, come on, Jenny, said Dean. Let's get back to the common room. You go, said Jenny. I want a word with my dear brother. 
And Dean left, looking as though he was not sorry to depart the scene. Right, said Jenny, tossing her long red hair out of her face, glaring at Ron. Let's get this straight once and for all. It is none of your business who I go out with or what I do with them, Ron. Yeah, it is, said Ron just as angrily. Do you think I want people saying my sister's a... A what? shouted Jenny, drawing her wand. A what exactly? He doesn't mean anything, Jenny, said Harry automatically, though the monster was roaring its approval at Ron's words. Oh, yes, he does, she said, flaring up at Harry. Just because he's never snogged anyone in his life, just because the best kiss he's ever had is from our Aunt Muriel. Shut your mouth, bellowed Ron, bypassing Red and turning maroon. <laughs> no, I will not, yelled Jenny beside herself. I've seen you with Phlegm, hoping she'll kiss you on the cheek every time you see her. It's pathetic. If you went out and got a bit of snogging done yourself, you wouldn't mind so much that everyone else does it. Ron pulled out his wand, too, and Harry stepped swiftly in between them. You don't know what you're talking about, Ron roared, trying to get a clear shot at Jenny around Harry, who was now standing in front of her with his arms outstretched. Just because I don't do it in public... Jenny screamed with a derisive laughter, trying to push Harry out of the way. Been kissing Pidwidgeon, have you? Or have you got a picture of Aunt Muriel stashed under your pillow? <laughs> you! A streak of orange light flew from under Harry's left arm, which missed Jenny by inches, and Ron pushed, uh, Harry pushed Ron up against the wall. Don't be stupid. Harry snogged Cho Chang, shouted Jenny, who sounded close to tears now, and Hermione snogged Victor Crumb. It's only you who act like it's something disgusting, Ron, and that's because you've got about as much experience as a 12-year-old. And with that, she stormed away. Harry quickly let go of Ron, but the look on his face was murderous. They both stood there, breathing heavily, until Mrs. Norris Filch's cat appeared around the corridor, which broke the tension. Come on, said Harry, as the sound of Filch's shuffling feet reached their ears. They hurried up the stairs and along a seventh-floor corridor. Oi! Out of the way! Ron barked at a small girl who jumped in fright and dropped a bottle of toad spawn. Harry had hardly noticed the sound of shattering glass. He felt disoriented, dizzy, being struck by a lightning bolt. It must be something like this. It's just because she's Ron's sister, he told himself. You just didn't like seeing her kissing Dean because she's Ron's sister. But an unbidden into his mind came an image of that same deserted corridor with himself kissing Jenny instead. And the monster in his chest purred. And then he saw Ron ripping open the tapestry curtain, drawing his wand on Harry, shouting things like betrayal of trust and supposed to be my friend. Do you think Hermione did snog Crumb? Ron asked abruptly as they approached the fat lady, and Harry gave a guilty start and wrenched his imagination away from a corridor in which no Ron intruded, in which he and Ginny were quite alone. Uh, what? He said confusedly. Oh, uh, the, answer, the honest answer was yes, but he did not want to give it. However, Ron seemed to gather the worst from the look on Harry's face. Dilgrout, he said darkly to the fat lady, and they climbed through the portrait hole into the common room. Neither of them mentioned Ginny or Hermione again. Indeed, they barely spoke to each other that evening and got into bed in silence, each absorbed in their own thoughts. Harry lay awake for a long time, looking up at the canopy of his four-poster and trying to convince himself that his feelings for Ginny were entirely elder-brotherly. They had lived, had they not, like brother and sister all summer, playing Quidditch, teasing Ron, and having a laugh about Bill and Flem. He had known Ginny for years now. It was natural that he should feel protective. Natural that he should want to look out for her. To want to rip Dean limb from limb for kissing her. No, he, he would have to control that particularly brotherly feeling. She, Ron gave a great grunting snore. She's Ron's sister, Harry told himself firmly. Ron's sister. She's out of bounds. He would not risk his friendship with Ron for anything. He punched his pillow into a more comfortable shape and waited for sleep to come and trying his utmost not to allow his thoughts to stray anywhere near Ginny. And that's where I'll stop and kind of let Chase take over from there. But... 
I want to mention a couple things on that. Not only is the foreshadows of certain relationships and talking about past ones with Hermione and Victor Crumb and Ron and not having experience, which comes into play a couple chapters from now, and you know Harry and Ginny. But also, if you guys remember what we were talking about, that when they they it says they they uh, hurried up the stairs along a seventh floor corridor, oi, out of the raid, Ron barked at a smuggler who jumped in fright and dropped the ball of Toad Spawn. That's really important. That's a huge foreshadow right there because the seventh floor corridor is the location of a certain room that was used a lot last book and we're going to start to see it come up a lot more so that was actually a light little foreshadow that is very easy to read over if you're just thinking it's there for detail like no that that little tiny sentence was very important that's the last paragraph on page 288 but with that i'll turn it over to chase and uh he'll take it from there man yeah man all i was gonna say before i get started like i mean in jenny's as we know like she's the sweetest girl like you really gotta pull some shit to get her set off but at the same time like they all know just like she brought up with flim you know flor delacour about like ron's (laughs) secret crushes i would say i feel like she hit him below the belt like that's not cool like she brought up all three that was brutal that wasn't right like first you're gonna say like of course like you know you've only had a kiss from like your aunt and stuff but then to go like brings up floor all right okay but then the one person we all know from the outside looking in that we know she has some clue about because uh, everyone from the outside and their mother <laughs> gets an idea about this like <laughs> and I, that's what really gets him here is just like what he's saying to harry like you would think she really kissed him well of course she dated him all summer which again was <laughs> your fault let's go back to this that was really your fault anyways <laughs> so it's, it's i i gotta stick up for ronster here and he's not even my boy but i mean come on man someone's gotta play the hero so i'll stay i'll step in the way and take the blows for him because that's not cool (laughs) that was low i get it he started it he was an ass but there's only so many shots below the belt you can take and she hit him with the trifecta like that was just not cool he doesn't have any balls left (laughs) like you just took them all away like dude come on bro come on how do you it's like he's two different people yeah are you on Jenny's side here or Ron's? Like, I get it. Ron started it. Like, we know he's not the smartest Look. guy, and he is an ass half the time. Just like when he barges in the way and jumps in the way of Harry's little game he's got going on. I mean, he, he doesn't exactly really on personal space. But at the same time, that was kind of messed up. Like, <laughs> that was low. I'm not really on anyone's side here just for the simple fact that, like, they, people say things in anger that they don't mean. Like, you ever had yeah. someone that you're really close to? Like, you and I have had disagreements before where we argue with each other and say dumb things that we don't mean mm-hmm. because we're pissed off in the moment. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so, like, it's not really so much I'm taking anyone's side. I think they both said some messed up stuff because, like, basically what Ron was saying is, like, I don't want people saying my sister's uh. Well, if we're going to fill in the blank, he's probably going to say whore or hussy or slut or something around those lines. Yeah, and, oh, like, that's something exactly that's out of bounds. You can't. You, right, but you can't say that about your <laughs> sister. You can't say that to her. That, that's that's out of bounds too. So Jenny's like, all right, you want to take it there? Well, I want to take it here. And it's like just uh, seeing who can say what to hurt the other person the most. So I'm not on anyone's side. I think they're both in the wrong. 
But like, I do think that Jenny got the best of him in that argument, though. She yeah. she wiped the floor with his ass, bro. <laughs> she she did. Uh, she definitely did. That was like, you know, we talk about that movie Waiting. Remember what Anna Ferris did to Ryan Reynolds in that movie? That's exactly what happened. It was a slave ass. By the way, am I the only one that feels bad for Dean? Like, Dean is, like, once again, Victor Crumb, like, the neutral, nice guy. He has no idea here. He's had some secret little crush for years. Like, he's thinking, dude's my Quidditch cap. Well, he didn't. Like, this was a whole new thing. Like, like, Harry didn't have this crush for years. This is something that's just a new feeling inside of him. So, like, he... Exactly. Like, so it's not really anyone's fault. Like, Harry's just now realizing, wait a second, I don't like this. And, like, to your point, Dean's like, what the heck, man? I'm just here doing my thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like... Cannot win, man. And on top of that, think about Dean, right? Like, he, he joins the Quidditch team, and he's probably like, you know, like, I'm really looking forward to being friends with this, these guys. Before he even, even plays, like, really in his first game, before he really, like, actually gets to play with the team and get to experience that camaraderie, like, the two, like, looked at as biggest leaders, well, Ron, we know he needs some help, but he's been on the team before, and Harry, the biggest leader, the captain, like, they're both like, fuck you, man, fuck you. <laughs> I feel, I can't, I feel so bad for him, man. Like, I wish and I And on top of that, too, be the hero. like, think about it, like, Jenny's on the team, too, so now it's all fucking weird, man. Jenny's on the team, too, like, so <laughs> he's like, what do I do, man? I'm just like, like, you know, he's got to feel so uncomfortable because his girlfriend's on the team with him. He can't show that he likes her because Harry, he's here, Ron's here. <laughs> like, it's just all bad, man. But I'll let you take it from page 290 and take us to the end of the chapter, brother. It sounds good, brother. <laughs> good stuff. So, so I, I, the way I left off was that paragraph uh, where it says, like, uh, to Harry's dismay. Like, there on 290, do you see, like, that, like, second to last paragraph, to Harry's dismay? That's kind of where I left yep. it off there. And, yeah, gotcha. cool. Um, to Harry's dismay, Ron's new aggression did not wear off over the next few days. Worse still, it coincided with an even deeper dip in his keeping skills, which made him still more aggressive, so that during the final Quidditch practice before Saturday's match, he failed to save every goal the Chasers aimed at him, but bellowed at everybody, so much that he reduced Desmelda Robbins to tears. You shut up and leave her alone, shouted Peaks who was about two-thirds of Ron's height, though admittedly carrying a heavy bat. Enough, bellowed Harry, who had seen Jenny glowering in Ron's direction and remembering her reputation as an accomplished caster of the bat bogey hex, soared over to intervene before things got out of hand. Peaks, go back, go and pack up the bludgers. Demelza, pull yourself together, and you play really well today. Ron, he waited until the rest of the team were out of earshot before saying it. You're my best mate, but carry on treating the rest of the team like this. I'm going to kick you off the team. He really thought for a moment that Ron might hit him, but then something much worse happened. Ron seemed to sag on his broom. All the fight went out of him, and then he said, I resign. I'm pathetic. You're not pathetic, and you're not resigning, said Harry, fiercely seizing Ron by the front of his robes. You can save anything when you're on form. It's a mental problem you've got. You're calling me mental? Yeah? Maybe I am. They glared at each other for a moment, and then Ron shook his head wearily. I know you haven't got any time to find another keeper, so I'll play tomorrow. But if we lose, and we will, I'm taking myself off the team. 
Nothing Harry said made any difference. He tried boosting Ron's confidence all through dinner, but Ron was too busy being grumpy and surely with Hermione to notice. Harry persisted in the common room that evening, but his assertion that the whole team would be devastated if Ron left was somewhat undermined by the fact that the rest of the team was sitting in a huddle in the distant corner, clearly muttering about Ron and casting him nasty looks. Finally, Harry tried to getting angry again in the hope of provoking Ron into a defiant and hopefully goal-saving attitude, but the strategy did not appear to work any better than encouragement. Ron went to bed as dejected and hopeless as ever. Harry lay awake for a very long time in the darkness. He did not want to lose the upcoming match. Not only was it his first as captain, but he was determined to beat Draco Malfoy at Quidditch even if he could not yet prove his suspicions about him. Yet, if Ron played, as he had done in the last few practices, their chances of winning were very slim. If only there was something he could do to make Ron pull himself together, make him play at the top of his form, something that would ensure Ron had a really good day. And the answer came to Harry in one sudden glorious stroke of inspiration. Breakfast was a usual excitable affair next morning. The Slytherins hissed and booed loudly as every member of Gryffindor team entered the Great Hall. Harry glanced at the ceiling and saw a clear pale blue sky, a good omen. The Gryffindor table, a solid mass of red and gold, cheered as Harry and Ron approached. Harry grinned and waved. Ron grimaced weakly and shook his head. Cheer up, Ron, called Lavender. I know you'll be brilliant. Ron ignored her. Tea? Harry asked him. Coffee? Pumpkin juice? Anything, said Ron glumbly, taking a moody bite of toast. A few minutes later, Hermione, who had become so tired of Ron's recent unpleasant behavior that she had not come down to breakfast with them, paused on her way up the table. How are you both feeling, she asked tentatively, her eyes on the back of Ron's head. Fine, said Harry, who was concentrating on handing Ron a glass of pumpkin juice. There you go, Ron. Drink up. Ron had just raised the glass on his lips when Hermione spoke sharply. Don't drink that, Ron! Both Harry and Ron looked up at her. Why not? said Ron. Hermione was now staring at Harry as though she could not believe her eyes. You just put something in that drink! Excuse me? said Harry. You heard me. I saw you. You just tipped something into Ron's drink. You've got the bottle in your hand right now. I don't know what you're talking about, said Harry, stowing the little bottle hastily in his pocket. Ron, I warn you, don't drink it, Hermione said again. Alarmed, but Ron picked up the glass, drained it in one gulp, and said, Stop bossing me around, Hermione. She looked scandalized, bending low so that only Harry could hear her. She hissed. You should be expelled for that. I'd never have believed it on you believed it of you, Harry. Hark who's talking, he whispered back. Confunded anyone lately? She stormed up the table away from them. Harry watched her go without regret. Hermione had never really understood what a serious business quidditch was. He then looked around at Ron, who was smacking his lips. Nearly time, said Harry blithely. The frosty grass crunched underfoot as they strode down to the stadium. 
Pretty lucky the weather's good, eh? Harry asked Ron. Yeah, said Ron, who is pale and sick-looking. Jenny and Demelza were already wearing their Quidditch robes and waiting in the changing room. Conditions look ideal, said Jenny, ignoring Ron. And guess what? That Slytherin chaser, Vasey, he took a bludger in the, hand, in the head yesterday during their practice. And he's too sore to play. And even better than that, Malfoy has gone off sick too. What? said Harry, wheeling around to stare at her. He's ill? What's wrong with him? No idea, but it's great for us, said Jenny brightly. They're playing Harper instead. He's in my year and he's an idiot. Harry smiled back vaguely, but as he pulled on his scarlet robes, his mind was far from Quidditch. Malfoy had once before claimed he could not play due to an injury, but on the occasion he had made sure the whole match was rescheduled for a time that suited the Slytherins better. Why was he now happy to let a substitute go on? Was he really ill, or was he faking? Fishy, isn't it? He said in an undertone to Ron. Malfoy not playing. Lucky, I call it, <laughs> said Ron, looking slightly more animated. And Vasey off, too. He's their best goal scorer. I didn't fancy. Hey, <laughs> he said suddenly, freezing halfway through the pulling on his keeper's gloves, and staring at Harry. What? Are you... Ron had dropped his voice. He looked both scared and excited. Might drink. Might pumpkin juice. You... You didn't. Harry raised his eyebrow eyebrows but said nothing except we'll be starting in about five minutes you better get your boots on they walked out onto the pitch to tumultuous roars and boos on the end of the stadium was solid red and gold on the other a sea of green and silver many hufflepuffs and ravenclaws had taken sides too amidst all the yelling and clapping harry could distinctly hear the roar of luna lovegood's famous lion topped hat Harry stepped up to Madam Hooch, the referee who is standing ready to release the balls from the crate. Captains, shake hands, she said. And Harry, hand his hand, crushed by the new Slytherin captain, Urquhart, mount your brooms on the whistle. Three, two, one. The whistle sounded. Harry and the others kicked off hard from the frozen ground, and they were away. Harry soared around the perimeter of the grounds, looking around for the snitch and keeping one eye on Harper, who was zigzagging far below him. Then a voice that was jarringly different to the usual commentator started up. Well, there they go, and I think we're all surprised to see the team that Potter's put together this year. Many thought, given Ronald Weasley's patchy performance as keeper last year, that he might be off the team, but of course... A close personal friendship with the captain does help. These words were greeted with jeers and applause from the Slytherin end of the pitch. Harry craned around on his broom to look toward the commentator podium. A tall, skinny blonde boy with an upturned nose was standing there, talking into the magical megaphone that had once been Lee Jordan's. Harry recognized Zachariah Smith, a Hufflepuff player whom he heartedly disliked. Oh, and here comes Slytherin's first attempt on a goal. It's Urquhart striking down the pitch, and Harry's stomach turned over. Weasley saves it. Well, he's bound to get lucky sometimes, I suppose. That's right, Smith, he is, muttered Harry. 
grinning to himself as he dived amongst the chasers with his eyes searching all around for some hint of elusive snitch. With half an hour of the game gone, Gryffindor were leading 60 points to zero. Ron having made some truly spectacular saves, some by the very tips of his gloves, and Ginny having scored four of Gryffindor's six goals, this effectively stopped Zachariah. Wondering loudly whether the two Weasleys were only there because Harry liked him, and he started on Peaks and Cootie instead. Of course, Coot isn't really the usual build for a beater, said Zachariah loftily. They've generally got a bit more muscle. Hit a bludger at him, Harry called to Coot as he zoomed past, but Coot grinning broadly chose to aim the next bludger at Harper instead, who was just passing Harry in the opposite direction. Harry was pleased to hear the dull thunk that meant the bludger had found its mark. It seemed as though Gryffindor could do no wrong. Again and again they scored, and again and again, at the other end of the pitch, Ron saved goals with apparent ease. He was actually smiling now. When the crowd greeted a particularly good save, with a, ta- with a rousing chorus of the old favorite, Weasley is our king, he pretended to conduct them from on high. Thinks he's something special today, doesn't he? Said a snide voice, and Harry was nearly knocked off his broom as Harper collided with him, hard and deliberately. Your blood traitor, pal. Madam Hooch's back was turned, and though Gryffindor's bellowed, shouted in anger, by the time she looked around, Harper had already sped off. His shoulder aching, Harry raced after him, determined to ram him back. And I think Harper of the Slytherin seen the snitch, said Zachariah Smith through his megaphone. Yes, he's certainly something. Potter hasn't. Smith really was an idiot, thought Harry. Hadn't he noticed collide? But next moment, his stomach seemed to drop out of the sky. Smith was right, and Harry was wrong. Harper had not sped upward at random. He had spotted what Harry had not. The snitch was speeding along the high above them, glinting brightly against the clear blue sky. Harry accelerated. The wind was whistling in his ears so that it drowned all the sound of Smith's commentary or the crowd, but Harper was still ahead of him, and Gryffindor was only a hundred points up. If Harper got there first, Gryffindor lost, and now Harper was feet from it, his hand outstretched. Oi, Harper! yelled Harry in desperation. How much did Malfoy pay you to come on instead of him? He did not know what made him say it, but Harper did a double take and he fumbled the snitch, let it slip through his fingers and shot right past it. Harry made a great swipe for the tiny fluttering ball and caught it. Yes! Harry yelled. Wheeling around, he hurtled back toward the ground. The snitch held high in his hand. As the crowd realized what had happened, a great shout went up that almost drowned the sound of the whistle that signaled the end of the game. Jenny, where are you going? yelled Harry who had found himself trapped in the midst of a mass midair hug with the rest of the team, but Jenny sped right on past them until, with an almighty crash, she collided with the commentator's podium. As the crowd shrieked and laughed, the Gryffindor team landed beside the wreckage of the wood, under which Zachariah was feeling stirring. Here he heard Jenny sing blithingly to an irate Professor McGonagall, "'Forgot to break! Professor, sorry!' Laughing, Harry broke free of the rest of the team and hugged Jenny, but let go very quickly. Avoiding her gaze, he clapped a cheering Ron on the back instead. All enmity forgotten, the Gryffindor team left the pitch arm arm in arm, punching the air and waving at their supporters to their supporters. The atmosphere in the changing room was jubilant. 
Party up in the common room, Seema said, yelled Dean exuberantly. Come on, Jenny. Demelza? Ron and Harry were the last two in the changing room. They were just about to leave when Hermione enters. She was twisting her Gryffindor scarf in her hands and looked upset but determined. I want a word with you, Harry. She took a deep breath. You shouldn't have done it. You heard Slughorn. It's illegal. What are you going to do? Turn us in? Demanded Ron. What are you two talking about? Asked Harry, turning away to hang up his robe so that neither of them would see him grinning. You know perfectly well what we're talking about, said Hermione shrillingly. You spiked Ron's juice with Lucky Potion at breakfast. Felix Felix's. No, I didn't, said Harry, turning back to face them both. Yes, you did, Harry, and that's why everything went right. They were Slytherin players missing, and Ron saved everything. I didn't put it in, said Harry, grinning broadly. He slipped his hand inside his jacket pocket and drew out the tiny bottle that Hermione had seen in his hand that morning. It was full of golden potion, and the cork was still tightly sealed with the wax. I wanted Ron to think I'd done it, so I faked it. When I knew you were looking, he looked at Ron. You saved everything because you felt lucky. You did it all yourself. He pocketed the potion again. There really wasn't anything in my pumpkin juice, Ron said, astounded. But the weather's good. And Vasey couldn't play. I honestly haven't been given lucky potion. Harry shook his head. Ron, Ron gaped at him for a moment, then rounded on Hermione, imitating her voice. You added Felix Felices to Ron's juice this morning? That's why he saved everything? See? I can save goals without your help, Hermione. I never said you couldn't. Ron, you thought you'd been given it too. But Ron had already strode past her, out the door with his broomstick over his shoulder. Er, said Harry into the sudden silence. He had not expected his plan to backfire like this. Shall, shall we go up to the party then? You go, said Hermione, blinking back tears. I'm sick of Ron at the moment. I don't know what I'm supposed to have done. And she stormed out of the changing room too. Harry walked slowly back up the grounds towards the castle through the crowd, many of whom shouted congratulations at him. But he felt a great sense of letdown. He had been sure that if Ron won the match, he and Hermione would be friends again, immediately. He did not see how he could possibly explain to Hermione that what she had done to offend Ron was kiss Victor Crumb, not when the offense had occurred so long ago. Harry could not see Hermione at the Gryffindor celebration party, which was in full swing when he arrived. Renewed cheers and clapping greeted his appearance. He was soon surrounded by a mob of people congratulating him. What with trying to shake off the Creevy brothers who wanted a blow-by-blow -blow match analysis and a large group of girls that encircled him, laughing at his least amusing comments and battling their eyelids, it was some time before he could try and find Ron. At last, he extricated himself from Romilda Vane, who was hinting heavily that she would like to go to Slughorn's Christmas party with him. As he was ducking towards the drinks table, he walked straight into Jenny. Arnold, the pygmy puff, riding on her shoulder, and Crookshanks, mewing, mewing, hopefully, at, meowing at her heels, hopefully at her heels. Looking for Ron, she asked, smirking. He's over there, the filthy hypocrite. Harry looked into the corner, and she was indicating. There, in full view of the whole room, stood Ron wrapped so closely around Lavender Brown. It was hard to tell 
whose hands were he were whose hands were whose. It looks like he's eating her face, doesn't it? Said Jenny dis dispassionately. But I suppose he's got to refine his technique somehow. Good game, Harry. She patted him on the arm, Harry's felt swooping sensation in his stomach, but then she walked off to help herself to more butterbeer. Crookshanks trotted after her, his yellow eyes fixed upon Arnold. Harry turned away from Ron, who did not look like he would be surfacing soon, just as the portrait hole was closing. With a sinking feeling, he thought he saw a mane of bushy brown hair whipping out of sight. He darted forward, sidestepped Romilia Vane again, and pushed open the portrait of the fat lady. The corridor outside seemed to be deserted. Hermione? He found her in the first unlocked classroom, he tried. She was sitting on the teacher's desk alone, except for a small ring of twittering yellow birds circling her head, which she had clearly just conjured out of midair. Harry could not help admiring her spellwork at the time like this. Oh, hello, Harry, she said in a brittle voice. I was just practicing. Yeah, they're they're really good, said Harry. He had no idea what to say to her. He was just wondering whether there was any chance that she had noticed Ron, that she had merely left the room because the party was a little too rowdy, when she said in an unnaturally high-pitched voice, Ron seems to be enjoying celebrations. Or does he? said Harry. Don't pretend you didn't see him, said Hermione. He wasn't exactly hiding it, it was the door behind them burst open to Harry's horror. Ron came in laughing, pulling Lavender by the hand. Oh, he said, drawing up a short at the sight of Harry and Hermione. Oops, said Lavender, and she backed up out of the room, giggling. The door swung behind her. There was a horrible, swelling, billowing silence. Hermione was staring at Ron, who refused to look at her but said with an odd mixture of bravado and awkwardness, Hi, Harry. I wondered where you got to. Hermione slid off the desk. The little flock of golden birds continued to twitter in circles around her head so that she looked like a strange feathery model of the solar system. You shouldn't leave Lavender waiting outside, she said quietly. She'll wonder where you've gone. She walked very slowly and erectly toward the door. Harry glanced at Ron, who was looking relieved that nothing worse had happened. Apungo! Came a shriek from the doorway. Harry spun around to see Hermione pointing her wand at Ron. Her expression wild. The little flock of birds was speeding like a hail of fat golden bullets towards Ron, who yelped and covered his face with his hands. But the birds attacked, pecking and clawing at every bit of flesh they could reach. Jermafim! He yelled. But with one last look of vindictive fury, Hermione wrenched open the door and dis disappeared through it, and Harry thought he heard a sob before it slammed. Ron cannot keep himself out of digging holes. <laughs> just can't, man. He just can't. He's, you know, as they said in the movie Holes, you take a bad boy, you make him dig five feet, and the dirt and the shovel will give him a beat. But apparently, he just never caught on to the beat part because he can never get in a rhythm no matter what it was even if he's enjoying his little snogging i'll let him go with it right i'll let him have his little moment it's fine hermione's had hers with crumb but then he has to walk into the same room and then cause a scene like you couldn't even just leave like just say oh i'm sorry guys and pick up on a hint that they're having their own moment talking about 
<laughs> even if he doesn't pick up on the problem that it's because he's causing the problem like it's no matter what he does he is ah oh, he just kills it for himself every time not to mention hermione is the only one that stuck up for him through this entire thing literally the only one literally went to bat and saw harry put some shit in his drink can't even like realize what's going on literally about to stick up for this guy like this is her man like gonna gonna go against her best friend for this guy and all he does is shit on her the whole time literally like took the bottle and just drank it whatever i'm not gonna listen to you uh, sorry girlfriend i can do what i want because i'm a dumbass like i don't i don't know man the dude's out of control like you're like you think this girl is gonna actually give you bad advice She's a prefect too. The only difference is her grades are a shitload higher than yours. That's the only difference there. I don't know, man. Like, he never ceases to amaze me. He, <laughs> he never ceases to amaze me. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are I'm happy that he performed well at Quidditch and it wasn't even cheating. He just thought he had gotten the potion. So, like, he's got the ability to be good when he's not inside of the set. So, it was nice to see Ron getting uh, his moment of glory again. Kind of very similar to like the Order of the Phoenix, where like after that first goal went in and like Hagrid took Hermione and Harry mm -hmm. to go see Grop, Ron actually like shut out the team the rest of the way in terms of his saves. So it was nice to see Ron get another uh, <clears throat> another notch in his feather cap, I guess. And he finally has a girl that he can kiss now, and we're gonna see how their relationship plays out throughout the remainder of this book. But it's nice to see uh, you know good things happen to him, even though I agree with you. He just never does the right thing. It's great that, like, you know, even in his top moments, he's still fucking up. <laughs> like, he's still doing dumb shit. And, Which, uh, yeah, like, I Lavender, mean, it is Sorry, it not is. to interrupt you here. He just riles me up sometimes. Like, Lavender <laughs> Brown just came out of nowhere. Like, I mean, he just... It, it almost was kind of like one of those... You, <laughs> these two people saw each other at the club and just never noticed each other. I'm probably damn related to her. <laughs> Last name is Brown, and I'm still embarrassed by what happened by them, too. They literally have this massive Quidditch match. Everything's going great. Ron has a chance to control himself, get the girl he wants, or at least give that whole, like, I'm doing the proper thing, setting an example for the younger students, and no. He's getting his make out on right on the dance floor like it's prom night. His well, prom he never night gets was any sort of like, like that. attention. He is always overshadowed by everyone. He's overshadowed by his older brothers. Like Bill was like this handsome guy that every every girl liked. Charlie works with dragons in Romania. Percy was like the smartest person in their family. And Fred and George are like the coolest because like they do the joke shop and they're the best at business. And then there's Ginny who's like really attractive and popular and getting all these boys and good at Quidditch. And then there's just Ron who just sucks, you know. <laughs> so like Ron. you have to. Like, I don't blame Ron for taking his moment and just running with it, you know. Like screw it. If I'm Ron, I'm making out with her in front of everybody too. I I don't know dude like this guy like does yeah, not have it, it easy like everyone in his family is just way better than him at everything and so he's like this is my moment i'm taking it fuck all you guys i'm taking my moment and you're gonna sit here and enjoy it you're all gonna sit here and enjoy my moment so that's how now, I, I, feel I will about say that. this like i think part of that like piggybacking off what you're saying is because he got the short end of the straw with like his closest older brothers which 
you know, they gave him a hard time a lot, but you, I would argue, they're the closest brothers to him is Fred and George. But because they really spent more time making fun of him because it's funny, because that's how they were close and knew to be close, it's not like he could really learn from their swag power. Or Bill over here, surfer dude, bringing home, like, uh... Miss France models, <laughs> Bo Batten's Academy swimsuit models over here, man. I feel bad for him because he had all these like he has, he has more siblings than most people, and most of them literally like look at all his siblings though. Even like Percy that no one really likes right now, you can still argue he was very successful. He is very like, successful. He, he works underneath the Minister of Magic. It's very successful. Yeah, exactly. Like, like not like, for nothing, he shows up later on during Christmas during this book, like with the Minister of Magic. <laughs> like, like you know, it's just... like you don't think anyone would have ever told him out of all his older brothers. Which I, you know, like I grew up in a house with a, a younger brother. You know, my cousins, most of them were boys, so I get it. Like I had, of course. You know, my girl cousins that I saw, like, my sisters, too. So I get the whole Jenny thing as well. Definitely do. And uh, one of my best friends from home, like, his little sister was always, like, a sister to me growing up. So I get that side. I'm just saying, like, as far as, like, you would have thought, like, someone would have taught him some swag <laughs> at some point. But good good for him. I agree with you. Like, all right, let him have his moment. I mean, it kind of puts him in a hole he's gonna dig himself out of almost like madden when i'm playing you and i'm down by a hundred like you you're down by a lot man you got some you got some ass kissing to do <laughs> that's for sure with that i'll turn it back over to you man sounds good but we're gonna open up this next chapter chapter 15 the unbreakable vow a couple bullet points here i think are important to point out is uh and right there in the beginning of the chapter, page 303, every girl is trying to catch Harry under the mistletoe and give him the old smoochy smoochy. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, on, uh, underneath that, page 304, uh, Harry is now caught up again being the middleman with Ron and Hermione, and they're not speaking to each other. So what he feared was going to happen did happen. He's like, remember back in my third year, I had to play hopscotch between the two? Well, he's back playing hopscotch again between... Hermione and Ron, because they can't get their stuff together <laughs> between themselves. Uh, now, on page 305, I'll read the last uh, paragraph on page 305 through a uh, certain part on page 309. It's about three and a half pages here. but cool. uh, This is speaking regarding Harry's book, The Advanced Potion Making, and like the Half-Blood Prince that we've been speaking on. So, last paragraph starts with, uh, I'm not talking about your stupid so-called prince said Hermione, giving his book a nasty look as though it had been rude to her. I'm talking about earlier. I went into the girls' bathroom just before I came in here, and there were about a dozen girls in there, including that Romilda Vane, trying to decide how to slip you a love potion. They're all hoping that they're going to get to take you to them to get you to take them to Slughorn's party. And they all seem to have bought Fred and George's love potions, which I'm afraid to say probably work. <laughs> Why didn't you confiscate them then? demanded Harry. It seemed extraordinary that Hermione's mania for upholding rules could have abandoned her at this crucial juncture. They didn't have the potions with them in the bathroom, said Hermione scornfully. They were just discussing tactics. As I doubt whether even the half-blood prince, she gave the book another nasty look, could dream up an antidote for a dozen different love potions at once, I'd just invite someone to go with you. That'll get all the others to stop thinking that they still have a chance. It's tomorrow night and they're getting desperate. There isn't anyone I want to invite, mumbled Harry, who was still trying not to think about Ginny any more than he could help. 
despite the fact that she kept cropping up in his dreams in ways that made him devoutly thankful that Ron could not form legitimacy. <laughs> well, just be careful what you drink, because Ramilda Vane looked like she meant business, said Hermione grimly. And she hit hitched up the long roll of parchment on which she was writing her arithmancy essay and continued to scratch away with her quill. Here he watched her with his mind on a long his mind a long way away. Hang on a moment, he said slowly. I thought Filch had banned anything bought at Weasley Wizard Weezes. And when has anyone ever paid attention to what Filch has banned? asked Hermione, still concentrating on her essay. But I thought all the owls were being searched. So how come these girls are able to bring in love potions to the school? Fred and George suddenly disguised as perfumes and cough potions, said Hermione. It's part of their owl order service. Well, you know a lot about it. Hermione gave him the kind of nasty look she had just given the copy of Advanced Potion Making. It was all on the back of the bottles they showed Ginny and me in the summer, she said coldly. I don't go around putting potions in people's drinks, or pretending to either, which is just as bad. Yeah, well, never mind that, said Harry quickly. The point is, Filch is being fooled, isn't he? These girls are getting stuff into the school disguised as something else. So why couldn't Malfoy have brought the necklace into the school? Oh, Harry, not that again. Come on, why not, demanded Harry. Look, sighed Hermione. Secrecy sensors <laughs> detect jinxes, curses, and concealment charms, don't they? They're used to find dark magic and dark objects. They'd have picked up a powerful curse just like the one on the necklace within seconds. But something that's just been put in the wrong bottle wouldn't register. Anyways, love potions aren't dark or dangerous. Easy for you to say, muttered Harry, thinking over Milda Vane. So it would be down to Filch to realize that it wasn't a cough potion, and he's not a very good wizard. I doubt he can tell one potion from... Hermione stopped. Harry had heard it too. Somebody moved close behind them among the book dark bookshelves. They waited, and a moment later, the vulture-like countenance of Madame Pince appeared around the corner. Her sunken cheeks, her skin like parchment and her long hooked nose illuminated unflatteringly by the lamp she was carrying. The library is now closed, she said. Mind you return anything you have borrowed to the correct... What have you done to that book, you depraved boy? <laughs> it isn't the library's, it's mine, said Harry hastily, snatching his copy of Advanced Potion Making off the table as she lunged at it with claw-like hands. Despoiled, she hissed, desecrated, befouled. It's just a book that's been written on, said Harry, tugging it out of her grip. She looked as though she might have a seizure. Hermione, who had hastily packed her things, grabbed Harry by the arm and frog-marched him away. She'll ban you from the library if you're not careful. Why did you have to bring that stupid book? It's not my fault she's barking mad, Hermione. Or do you think she overheard you being rude about Filch? I've always thought there might be something going on between them. Oh, ha, ha. Enjoying the fact that they can now speak normally again, they made their way along the deserted lamplit corridors back to the common room, arguing about whether or not Filch and Madame Pence were secretly in love with each other. Baubles, said Harry to the fat lady, this being the new festive password. Same to you, said the fat lady with a roguish grin, and she swung forward to admit them. Hi, Harry, said Ramilda Vane, the moment he had climbed through the portal hole. Fancy a gillywater? Hermione gave him a what-did-I-tell-you look over her shoulder. No thanks, said Harry quickly. I don't like it much. Well, take these anyways, said Romilda, th thrusting a box into his hands. Chocolate cauldrons, they've got fire whiskey in them. My grand sent them to me, but I don't like them. Uh, oh, right. Thanks a lot, said Harry, who could not think of what else to say. I'm just gonna go over here with... He hurried off behind Hermione, her voice tailing away feebly. Told you, said Hermione succinctly. Sooner you ask someone, sooner they'll all leave you alone, and you can... 
but her face suddenly turned blank. She had just spotted Ron and Lavender, who were intertwined in the same armchair. Well, good night, Harry, said Hermione, though it was only 7 o'clock in the evening, and she left for the girls' dormitory without another word. So that's where I wanted to stop there, because I think that that's really funny. There's a lot of cool things that happen. Um, Madam Pince, this is like the first big reaction we ever get from Madam Pince in the entire series. Uh, really upset about the writing on the advanced potion-making book. Uh, we're back at this weird juncture where Hermione and Ron aren't talking to each other, so Harry's got to hang out with Hermione, who's always in the library, so they're whispering back and forth. Now there's this weird, like, conspiracy or rumor going around that Madame Pince and Argus Filch have a secret love romance. I think that was a little kind of cool. But most importantly in that little area was the, um, the threat of the love potions and also how people can smuggle things into the school uh, that disguises stuff that they're not. Because it's both going to become important later, not only because of the necklace that Malfoy mentioned, but because of the love potions as well. And we're going to see exactly what happens when somebody takes one of these love potions later on, not to give anything away. But I'll go ahead and continue on from there. Uh, on page 311, Harry does ask Luna to go to Slughorn's party with him as friends. And then on page uh, 312, I'm going to read from the top of the page through page 314 here. So this is this is Peeves, of course, doing his old poltergeist bothering everybody face here. Potty asks Looney to go to the party. Potty loves Looney. Potty loves Looney. <laughs> and he zoomed away, cackling and shrieking. Potty loves Looney. Nice to keep these things private, said Harry. And sure enough, in no time at all, the whole school seemed to know that Harry Potter was taking Luna Lovegood to Slughorn's party. You could have taken anyone, said Ron in disbelief over dinner. Anyone, and you chose Looney Lovegood? Don't call her that, Ron, snapped Ginny, pausing behind Harry on her way to join friends. I'm really glad you're taking her, Harry. She's so excited. Like, first off, let's stop right here and just say, screw Ron. Ron's an asshole because... He never ceases to... He doesn't even have a date besides Lavender that he just met at the Hogwarts club. Right. uh, Yeah, basically the Hogwarts giraffe. That used to be an old club in the 80s where, you know... They would meet people one night, and <laughs> it was like the it was like the fun time. My know? biggest problem, though, is that like he's sitting there acting like saying these negative things about Luna, like she wasn't in the Department of Mysteries with them trying to save the day. Like she was with you at like the time where you all could have died together. Like you don't talk shit about someone that like like that. Like that's like one of the truest friends you've ever had. You know, he like <laughs> he never ceases to make no. He's just he a talks dick. Shit. He, I don't even get it. It's like the little man syndrome. Like it's he gotta talks be. shit about the person that's like doing better than he is. I, it's I just really it. sad because Luna is a good person. She was there, like like putting her life on the line, like to make sure that what happened in the Department of Mysteries they they could get out safely. And he's gonna sit there and talk. There was only six of them, right? Ron, Harry, Hermione, Ginny, Neville, Luna. Six out of how how many people go to Hogwarts? Maybe five hundred plus. There's six people that are like you have to be like bound tightly. Like they fought against dark wizards together. They fought alongside the Order of the Phoenix together. They were there when Voldemort and Dumbledore battled. Like like these are crazy life events. And Ron's gonna go over here and talk shit about Luna, call her Looney Lovegood. Fuck you, Ron. You're a bitch. Anyways, because <laughs> he's like one of those people in high school that like in order to be the class like clown, he only knows how to make fun of people to be funny. I guess. Because he's not Fred and George. Like, Fred and George were actually funny people. 
Like, yeah. I feel like he tried to learn from his predecessors, but somewhere it just went all wrong. Went all he wrong. He never ceases to amaze me. He, 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 it's it's uh, it's astonishing how he tops himself every time. And I'm a Tony <laughs> Romo fan, but it's like Tony Romo throwing interceptions. Like, it's an art form how bad he is with people. When it matters. <laughs> yeah, when it's it matters. Yeah, fucking exactly. snake you. You're like two different people, Ronald. <laughs> ridiculous back to you man yeah i'm gonna move on here where she says then she moved down the table to sit with dean harry tried to feel pleased that Ginny was glad that he was taking them into the party but he could not quite manage it a long way along the table hermione was sitting alone playing with her stew harry noticed ron looking at her furtively you could say sorry suggested harry bluntly what and get attacked by another flock of canaries muttered ron what did you have to imitate her for she laughed at my mustache. So did I. It was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. But Ron did not seem to have heard. Lavender had just arrived with Parvati. Squeezing herself between Harry and Ron, Lavender flung her arms around Ron's neck. Hi, Harry, who said Parvati, who, like him, looked faintly embarrassed and bored by the behavior of their two friends. Hi, said Harry. How are you? You're staying at Hogwarts, then. I heard your parents wanted you to leave. I managed to talk them out of it for the time being, said Parvati. That Katie thing really had them freaked out, but there hasn't been anything since. Uh, oh, hi, Hermione. Parvati positively beamed. Harry could tell that she was feeling guilty for having laughed at Hermione in Transfiguration. He looked around and saw that Hermione was beaming back, if possible, even more brightly. Girls were very strange sometimes. Hi, Parvati, said Hermione, ignoring Ron and Lavender completely. Are you going to Slughorn Party tonight? No invite, said Parvati gloomily. I'd love to go, though. It sounds like it's going to be really good. You're going, aren't you? Yes. I'm eating Cormac at eight, and we're... And there was a sound like a plunger being withdrawn from a blocked sink, and Ron surfaced. Hermione acted, though, as she had not seen or heard anything. We're going up to the party together. Cormac, said Parvati. Cormac McLaggen, you mean? <clears throat> That's right, said Hermione sweetly. The one who... Almost... She put a great deal of emphasis on the word. Became Gryffindor Keeper. Are you going out with him, then? Asked Parvati wide-eyed. Oh, yes, didn't you know? said Hermione with a very unhermione-ish giggle. No, said Parvati, looking positively agog at this piece of gossip. Wow, you like your Quidditch players, don't you? First Crumb, then McLaggen. I like really good Quidditch players, Hermione corrected her, still smiling. Well, see you. Gotta go get ready for the party. <laughs> and she left, and at once... Lavender and Parvati put their heads together to discuss this new development with everything they had ever heard about McLagan and all they had ever guessed about Hermione. Ron looked strangely blank and said nothing. Harry is left to ponder in silence in the depths which girls would sink to get revenge. So then that's where I'll leave that for the, the straight reading. Now for another kind of bullet point here on page 314. thought this was important because this is actually a conversation Chase and Hyatt had before we started today. Uh, Luna tells Harry that the Minister of Magic, Rufus Scrimmageor, is a vampire. It's ridiculous, but, you know, her and her dad believe strange things. <laughs> so, I, need, I, mean, I want to make it clear for everybody, Rufus Scrimmageor is not, in fact, a vampire. This is just one of those weird conspiracy thingies that Luna comes up with, Luna and her dad come up with, just like the Crumplehorn Snorkak, the Nargles, the whatever it is. It's like, it's, he's not really a vampire. But, we are about to be introduced to a real vampire on page 315. Uh, his name is Sanguini. Uh, we've heard of them throughout the series, but this is the first time we're actually introduced to a vampire, and I thought that was really, really cool. Um, on page 
through the 316, I'm going to read the fourth paragraph. This is actually going to talk a little bit about the one time the vampire has this weird look, but there's nothing crazy that happens. I do wish we got a little bit more of this vampire here. But let me go ahead and read this fourth paragraph. This is t talking about the biography that Sanguini's friend who brought him, his name's uh, Warple, um, he actually wrote... A, he wrote a couple of different books. He's a famous author. His name's Eldred Warple. He's the author of uh, Blood Brothers, My Life Amongst Vampires. But anyways, he's talking to Harry about potentially writing a biography about Harry. So here we go. Just as modest as Horace describes, said Warple, but seriously, his manner changed. It suddenly became businesslike. I would be delighted to write it myself. People are craving to know more about you, dear boy. Craving. If you were prepared to grant me a few interviews, say in four or five hour sessions, why, we could have the book finished within months. And with all very little effort on your part, I assure you, ask Sanguini here if it isn't quite... Sanguini, stay here, added Warple, suddenly stern, for the vampire had been edging towards the nearby group of girls with a rather hungry look in his eye. Here, have a pasty, said Warple, seizing one from a passing elf and stuffing it into Sanguini's hand before turning his attention back to Harry. So that's just a paragraph I want to read there. So him trying to write Harry's like little biography. Harry's like, yeah, we're not doing that. And then the vampire, looking like it might attack some of those girls, but ended up nothing happened. So that's as much as we get from the vampire and, and, and Harry Potter. But last thing I have before I'll turn it over to Chase, who will kind of take us through the rest of the chapter, is on page 317. Hermione is actually having a horrible time with Cormac McLaggen. And she says like she thought the only reason she took Cormac McLaggen and is going out with him is because she thought Cormac McLaggen would bother Ron the most. And she also yeah. had considered Zachariah Smith. So he's like, you considered Smith? And she's like, yes, I did. And honestly, I wish I would have gone with him because Cormac's the worst. So, like, it's funny. Like, <laughs> we're starting to see Hermione trying to play Ron's game back at him. Like, oh, you want to make me jealous? Well, I'm going to make you jealous here. So it's like they're playing this, like, game of, like, jealous chicken. And it's just making them all bad. Like, it, like none of them are having a good time eventually. Like, Ron's having a good time now, but we'll see how that turns out. Hermione's already regretting it at Slughorn's party. Uh, so with that, man, I'll, I'll, take, I'll turn it over to you on page 318, you know, when Professor Treeline shows up, and I'll let you take us through the end of the chapter. Yeah, sounds good, man. Uh, and this is kind of a, I guess, a big part, because, you know, I... Maybe a little bit. We don't see it as much here, but definitely later on in this book, Trelawney is not happy with Dumbledore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, starting here, it says, The three of them made their way over to the other side of the room, scooping up goblets and mead on their way, realizing too late that Professor Trelawney was standing there alone. Hello, said Luna politely to Professor Trelawney. Good evening, my dear, said Professor Trelawney, focusing upon Luna with some difficulty. Harry could smell cooking sherry again. I haven't seen you in my classes lately. No, I've got friends this year, said Luna. Oh, of course, said Professor Trelawney with an angry, drunken titter. Or Dobbin, as I prefer to think of him. You would have thought, would you not, that now I am returned to school. Professor Dumbledore might have got rid of the horse. But no. We share classes. It's an insult, frankly, an insult. Do you know? Professor Trinlani seemed too tipsy to have recognized Harry. Under cover of her furious criticisms of friends, Harry drew closer to Hermione and said, Let's get something straight. Are you planning to tell Ron that you interfered at keeper tryouts? Hermione raised her eyebrows. Do you really think I'd stoop that low? Harry looked at her shrewdly. Hermione, 
if you can ask out McLaggen, there's a difference, said Hermione with dignity. I've got no plans to tell Ron anything about what might or might not have happened at Keeper tryouts. Good, said Harry, feverently, because he'll just fall apart again and we'll lose the next match. Quidditch, said Hermione angrily. Is that all boys care about? Cormac hasn't asked me one single question about myself. No, I've just been treated to a hundred great saves made by Cormac McLaggen nonstop ever since. Oh no, here he comes. She moved so fast it was as though she had dis disapparated. One moment she was there, the next she had squeezed between two goffing witches and vanished. Seen Hermione? Asked McLaggen, forcing his way through the throng a minute later. No, sorry, said Harry, and he turned quickly to join Luna's conversation, forgetting for a split second to whom she was talking. Harry Potter, said Professor Trelawney in a deep, vibrant tones, noticing him for the first time. Oh, hello, said Harry unenthusiastically. My dear boy, she said in a very caring whisper, the rumors, the stories, the chosen one. Of course, I have known for a very long time. The omens were never good, Harry. But why have you not returned to divination? For you of all people, the subject is of most utter importance. Ah, uh, Sybil, we all think our subjects most important, said a loud voice. And Slughorn appeared at Professor Trelawney's other side, his face very red. His velvet hat a little askew, a glass of meat in one hand, and an enormous menace pie in the other. But I don't think I've ever known such a natural impotence, said Slughorn, regarding Harry with a fond, if bloodshot eye. Instinctive, you know, like his mother. I've only ever taught a few with this kind of ability, I can tell you that, Sybil. Why, even Severus. And to Harry's horror, Slughorn threw out an arm and seemed to scoop Snape out of thin air toward them. Stop skulking and come and join us, Severus, hiccuped Slughorn happily. I was just talking about Harry's exceptional potion making. Some credit must go to you, of course. You taught him for five years. Trapped with Slughorn's arm around his shoulders, Snape looked down his hooked nose at Harry. His black eyes narrowed. Funny. I never had the impression that I managed to teach Potter anything at all. Well, then it's natural ability, shouted Slughorn. You should have seen what he gave me first lesson. Drought of living death. Never had a student produce finer on first attempt. I don't think even you, Severus. Really, said Snape <laughs> quietly, his eyes still boring into Harry's, who felt a certain disquiet. The last thing he wanted was for Snape to start investigating the source of his newfound brilliance at potions. Remind me what other subjects you're taking, Harry? Asked Slughorn. Defense against the dark arts, charms, transfiguration, herbology. All, all the subjects required in short for an aurora, said Snape with the faintest sneer. Yeah, well, what I'd like to do, said Harry defiantly. And a great one you'll make, too, boomed Slughorn. I don't think you should be in Aurora, Harry, said Luna unexpectedly. Everybody looked at her. The Aurors are part of the Roth gang conspiracy. I thought everyone knew that. 
They're working to bring down the Ministry of Magic from within using a combination of dark magic and gum disease. Harry inhaled <laughs> half his meat up his nose as he started to laugh. Really, it had been worth bringing Luna just for this. Emerging from his goblet, coughing, sopping, wet, but still grinning, he saw something calculated to raise his spirits even higher. Draco Malfoy being dragged by the ear toward them by Argus Filch. Professor Slughorn wheezed Filch. His jowls quivered in the maniacal light of mischief detection in his bulging eyes. I discovered the boy lurking in an upstairs corridor. He claims to have been invited to your party and to have delayed in setting out. Did you issue him with an invitation? Malfoy pulled himself free of Filch's grip, looking furious. All right, I wasn't invited, he said angrily. I was trying to gatecrash. Happy? No, I'm not said Filch, a statement to complete odds with the glee on his face. You're in trouble, you are. Didn't the headmaster say the nighttime prowling's out? Unless you got permission, didn't he? That's all right, Argus. That's all right, says Slughorn. Waving hand, it's Christmas. It's not a crime to want to come to a party just this once. We'll forget any punishment. You may stay, Draco. Filch's expression of outrage, disappointment was perfectly predictable but why harry wondered watching him did malfoy look almost equally unhappy and why was snape looking at malfoy as though both angry and was it possible a little afraid but almost before harry had registered what he had seen filch had turned and shuffled away muttering under his breath malfoy had composed his face into a smile was thanking slughorn for his generosity and snape's face was smoothly inscrutable again it's nothing it's nothing said slughorn waving away malfoy's things i did know your grandfather after all he always spoke very highly of you sir said malfoy quickly said you were the best potion maker he ever known harry stared at malfoy it was not the sucking up that intrigued him he had watched malfoy do that to snape for a long time it was the fact that malfoy did after all look a little ill this was the first time he had seen Malfoy close up for ages. He now saw that Malfoy had dark shadows under his eyes and a distinctly grayish tinge to his skin. I'd like a wor word with you, Draco, said Snape suddenly. Oh, now, Severus, said Slughorn, hiccuping again. It's Christmas! Don't be too hard! I'm head of his house, and I shall... Decide how hard or otherwise to be, said Snape curtly. Follow me, Draco. They left, Snape leading the way, Malfoy looking resentful. Harry stood there for a moment, irresolute, then said, I'll be back in a bit, Luna, or uh, a bathroom. All right, she said cheerfully, and he thought he heard her. As he heard, hurried off into the crowd, resumed the subject of the Roftang conspiracy with Professor Trelawney, who seemed sincerely interested. It was easy once out of the party to pull the invisibility cloak out of his pocket and throw it over himself, for the corridor was quite deserted. What was more difficult was finding Snape and Malfoy. Harry ran down the corridor, the noise of his feet masked by the music and loud talk still issuing from Slughorn's office behind him. Perhaps Snape had taken Malfoy to his office in the dungeons, or perhaps 
He was escorting him back to the Slytherin common room. Harry pressed his ear against the door after the door. He dashed down the corridor until, with a great jolt of excitement, he crouched down to the keyhole of the last classroom in the corridor and heard voices. Cannot afford mistakes, Draco. Because if you are expelled, I didn't have anything to do with it, all right? I hope you're telling the truth. Because it was both clumsy and foolish. Already you are suspected of having a hand in it. Who suspects me? said Malfoy angrily. For the last time, I didn't do it, okay? The bell girl must have had an enemy no one knows about. Don't look at me like that. I know what you're doing. I'm not stupid, but it won't work. I can stop you. There was a pause and then Snape said quietly, Ah, Aunt Bellatrix has been teaching you a clemency, I see. What thoughts are you trying to conceal from your master, Draco? I'm not trying to conceal anything from him. I just don't want you butting in. Harry pressed his ear still more closely against the keyhole. What had happened to make Malfoy speak to Snape like this? Snape? Toward whom he had always shown respect and liking. So that is why you've been avoiding me this term. You have feared my interference. You realize that. Had anybody else failed to come to my office when I had told them repeatedly to be there, Draco? So put me in detention. Report me to Dumbledore, jeered Malfoy. There was another pause. Then Snape said, You know perfectly well that I do not wish to do either of those things. You better stop telling me to come to your office then. Listen to me, said Snape, his voice so low now that Harry had to push his ear very hard against Keyhold here. I am trying to help you. I swore to your mother I would protect you. I made the unbreakable vow, Draco. Looks like you'll have to break it then, because I don't need your protection. It's not my job. It's my job. He gave it to me, and I'm doing it. I've got a plan. It's going to work. It's just taking a bit longer than I thought it would. What's your plan? It's none of your business. If you tell me what you are trying to do, I can assist you. I've got all the assistance I need. Thanks. I'm not alone. You were certainly alone tonight, which was foolish in this extreme wandering the corridors without lookouts or backups with our elementary mistakes. I would have had Crab and Goyle with me if you hadn't been put them in detention. Keep your voice down, spat Snape, for Malfoy's voice had risen excitedly. If your friends Crab and Goyle intend to pass their defense against the Dark Arts Owl this time around, they will need to work a little harder than they are doing at press. What does it matter, said Malfoy. Defense against the Dark Arts is just all a joke, isn't it? An act like any of us need protecting against the Dark Arts? It is an act that is crucial to success, Draco, said Snape. Where do you think I would have been all these years if I had not known how to act? Now listen to me. You are being incautious, wandering around at night, getting yourself caught, and if you are placing your reliance and assistance like Crab and Goyle, they're not the only ones I've got other people on my side. Better people. Then why not confide in me? I can, I know what you're up to. You want to steal my glory. There was another pause and then Snape said coldly, You are speaking like a child. 
I quite understand that your father's capture and imprisonment has upset you, but Harry had barely a second warning. He heard Malfoy's footsteps on the other side of the door and flung himself out of the way just as it burst open. Malfoy was striding away down the corridor past the open door of Slughorn's office, around the distant corner and out of sight. Hardly daring to breathe, Harry remained crouched down as Snape emerged slowly from the classroom, his expression unfathomable. He returned to the party. Harry remained on the floor, hidden, beneath a cloak, his mind racing. Something's to... going on, <clears throat> man. Yeah, that took us to the end of chapter 15 there, and there's a lot of big stuff in there too, right? Like, not just in the yeah. beginnings that we were talking about between, like, relationship issues and all that, but now... That unbreakable vow that was made in like the first couple chapters that we did in our episode one of this series of this book, it's now come back again. It's it's now making its way back around. So Snape even tells Drake like I made the unbreakable vow. Like I I have to try my best to protect you, you know. And and honestly, in doing this, he's actually fulfilling the unbreakable vow by trying to yeah. get Draco to open up to him. But Draco's like refusing. So <clears throat> it's like it's one of those weird things. But now. We all know for sure, and Harry finally is going to be able to somewhat convince his friends, as we, we're going to come to find in here, that he his suspicions about Malfoy, while we, won't, we don't know fully if they're entirely true yet, they're definitely come to more than Hermione and Ron have been thinking about. They've been kind of disregarding Harry and just been like, who cares? Like, no, Harry, you're just being crazy, you're just being crazy. Well, now we've got some pretty substantial, substantial evidence, because... Not only is Snape talking about this, he's talking about, oh, your Aunt Bellatrix has taught you clemency. Well, we know for sure that Bellatrix is a Death Eater, right? She yeah. killed Sirius right. last book. Like, we know for a fact. Like, that these are things that she was in prison for being a Death Eater in Azkaban. So, he's talking openly about, you know, being cordial enough to talk with, you know, I made your mom the unbreakable vow. Well, guess what? If her sister is a Death Eater, we know Lucius Malfoy is a Death Eater. It only makes sense that, you know, Narcissa is probably a Death Eater, too. And if she he made the unbreakable vow... Just recently, it's starting to think like, okay, well, Snape's probably not on the good side. Like, you know, start, you start going down that road, you know. I know we had that in the very beginning, but now Harry sees it. Because at Spinner's End, Harry wasn't there. But now Harry's listening right. to this. And he's already had his misgivings about Snape from the very beginning of the series. And on top of that, he's never liked Malfoy. And now he's got more evidence to support his claim that Malfoy's a Death Eater and he's been given some sort of task to complete. Now, we still don't know what that is, but we're starting to kind of see it moving towards that direction. Right. Yeah, it, it definitely... Uh, it definitely will, it wakes you up as an audience member when you see Draco's having a problem with Snape because that never happens. Um, also, at the same time, too, I think Snape, you know, which really plays on later on, no spoilers here or anything, but like... If you look kind of from the outside looking in, yeah, he, he's very stern and maybe doesn't respond to things in the right way, but he really does look out for people. Like, he easily could have been like, whatever, do your thing. Like, I get it. He made the unbreakable vow, but I, th I honestly, like, I got a lot of respect for him because I wouldn't put up with that shit. <laughs> like, I mean like you're trying to there's i mean he put up with this from harry teaching him a cluency lessons back in year five and now he's trying to help draco here and like none of these kids like 
and and what's even better about him is instead of him saying you're just a stupid little kid like he actually tries to talk to them like they're adults and think they'll get in their head like you know maybe i should look from the outside looking in and realize i don't know it all and i can learn from someone that's been there before but i i mean i get it like going back in time you know there's things you know you kind of do is true you learn you know your dad didn't know a little something when you thought you were 10 feet tall and bulletproof but like it, it's it, it's funny seeing especially the difference level of maturity here like you notice how he was so like calm and collected and like all draco fucking did the whole time was interrupt him like he didn't get he got out maybe two sentences and all draco did was interrupt him the entire time just like harry did <laughs> last year just like harry did during like every lesson same problem harry has with dumbledore like getting too curious because then he just jumps in the way of things when Dumbledore tells him all the time. Like, you know, like we'll even talk about later on, you know. Like, I've already answered your question there. Or like, maybe you shouldn't go snooping around my office. Or maybe you should stop throwing things like a child. Like, that's the problem here. Is no one ever wants to actually calm down and listen. And it could change the outcome, but it doesn't because... Um, because just the level of their age which really brings it to perspective there but yeah i don't know how he does it man i wouldn't have taken that i mean he definitely has some commitment i would have bounced by now once i took my house at spinner's end i would have sold that bitch i would have got myself a house out in uh maybe like Durmstrang, <laughs> like gone way out there you already had kakaroff that was a cool dude i mean he's gone now but i'm sure you got friends over there <laughs> you're fine man yeah, back to you, brother. Awesome. Let's start up with chapter 16 here. A very frosty Christmas. And it starts up talking about, you know, we were just mentioning Unbreakable Vow. We're about to learn the consequences of what happens with an Unbreakable Vow. So, he, this, is, this is like Ron and Harry having a conversation about it. Unbreakable Vow, said Ron looking stunned. Nah, you can't have. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure, said Harry. Why? What does it mean? Well... You can't break an unbreakable vow. I'd work that much out for myself, funnily enough. What happens if you break it then? You die, said Ron simply. Fred and George tried to get me to make one when I was about five. I nearly did, too. I was holding hands with Fred and everything when Dad found us. He went mental, said Ron with a reminiscent gleam in his eye. Only time I've ever seen Dad as angry as Mom. Fred reckons his left butt cheek was never been the same since. So that's just an important little paragraph right there. We know, like, it's very simple. You break the unbreakable vow, you die, right? But I think it's a very, like, almost everything. There's loopholes with wordings and stuff. So you guys remember, in the beginning, the, the wording that was used by Narcissus Malfoy is like, will you, to the best of your ability, protect Draco and complete the task if he's unsuccessful? So, you know, as long as Snape is giving these attempts and actually is trying, he's still good, you know what I mean? So... But still, that, that's, the, that's the consequence of breaking an unbreakable vow. You die. Uh, on page 326, I'm going to go ahead uh, and kind of take it from here through page 329. i got three pages here because there's some really big foreshadowing going on. But first off, I'll take this here. Uh, yeah, well, passing over Fred's left buttock. I beg your pardon, said Fred's voice as the twins entered the kitchen. Ah, George, look at this. They're using knives and everything. Bless them. 
I'll be 17 in two and a half months' time, said Ron grumpily, and I'll be able to do it by magic. But meanwhile, said George, sitting down at the kitchen table, putting his feet up, we can enjoy watching you demonstrate the correct use of a whoopsie-daisy. You made me do that, said Ron angrily, sucking his cut thumb. You wait, when I'm 17, I'm sure you'll dazzle us all with your hitherto unsuspected magical skills, yawned Fred. And speaking of hitherto unsuspected skills, Ronald, said George, what is this we hear from Ginny about you and a young lady, unless our information is faulty? Lavender Brown. Ron turned a little pink, but he did not look displeased as he turned back to the sprouts. Mind your own business. What a snappy retort, said Fred. I really don't know how you think of them. No, what we wanted to know was, how did it happen? What do you mean? Did she have an accident or something? What? Well, how did she, su how did she sustain such extensive brain damage? Careful now! Mrs. Weasley entered the room just in time to see Ron throw the sprout knife of Fred, who had turned it into a paper airplane with a lazy flick of his wand. Ron, she said furiously, don't you ever let me see you throwing knives again. I won't, said Ron. Let you see, he added under his breath as he turned back to the Sprout Mountain. Fred, George, I'm sorry, dears, but Remus is arriving tonight, so Bill will have to squeeze in with you two. No problem, said George. Then as Charlie isn't coming home, that just leaves Harry and Ron in the attic, and if Fleur shares with Ginny... Oh, that'll make Ginny's Christmas, muttered Fred. Everyone should be comfortable. Well, they'll have a bed at least, said Mrs. Weasley, sounding slightly harassed. Percy definitely not showing his ugly face then, asked Fred. Mrs. Weasley turned away before she answered. No, he's busy. I expect at the ministry. Or he's the world's biggest prat, said Fred as Mrs. Weasley left the kitchen. One of the two. Well, let's get going then, George. What are you two up to? asked Ron. Can't you help us with these sprouts? You could just use your wand and we'll be free too. No, I don't think we can do that, said Fred seriously. It's very character-building stuff, learning to peel sprouts without magic. Makes you appreciate how difficult it is for muggles and squibs. And if you want people to help you, Ron, added George, throwing the paper airplane at him, I wouldn't chuck knives at them. Just a little hint. We're off to the village. There's a pretty girl working in the paper shop who thinks my card tricks are something marvelous. Almost like real magic. Gits, said Ron, darkly watching Fred and George setting off across the snow yard. Would have only taken them ten seconds, and we could have gone too. I couldn't, said Harry. I promised Dumbledore I wouldn't wander off while I'm staying here. Oh, yeah. He peeled a few more sprouts and then said, Are you going to tell Dumbledore what you heard Snape and Malfoy say to each other? Yep, said Harry. I'm going to tell anyone who can put a stop to it, and Dumbledore's top of the list. I might have another word with your dad, too. It's a pity you didn't hear what Malfoy is actually doing, though. I couldn't have done, could I? That's the whole point. He was refusing to tell Snape. There was a silence for a moment or two, and then Ron said, Of course you know what they say, right? Dad and Dumbledore and all of them? They'll say, they'll say Snape isn't really trying to help Malfoy. He was just trying to find out what Malfoy's up to. They didn't hear him, said Harry flatly. No one's that good an actor. Not even Snape. Yeah, I'm just saying, though. Harry turned to face him, frowning. You think I'm right, though? Yeah, I do, said Ron hastily. Seriously, I do. But they're all convinced Snape's in the order, aren't they? Harry said nothing. It already occurred to him that this would be the most likely objection to the new evidence he could hear Hermione now. Obviously, Harry, he is pretending to offer help so he could trick Malfoy into telling him what he's doing. This was pure imagination, and he had no opportunity to tell Hermione what he had overheard. She had disappeared from Slughorn's party before he returned to it, or so he had been informed by an irate McLagan, and she had already gone to bed by the time he returned to the common room, and as he and Ron had left for the borough early the next day, he had barely had time to wish her a happy Christmas and tell her that he had some very important news when they got back from the holidays. 
He was not entirely sure that she heard him, though. Ron and Lavender had been saying a thoroughly non-verbal goodbye just behind him. So, I think this is pretty important, too. There's some really heavy foreshadow talking about on the second paragraph of 329 here about Snape and his loyalties. Like, you know, um, having them all think Snape's in the order and Harry's saying, well, no one can be that good of an actor. He's really trying to help Malfoy. So, that's some pretty big foreshadow for future reference on page 330 i'm gonna go ahead and read celestina warbuck's song lyrics because they're a little uh, suggestive and mrs weasley likes to get mr weasley <laughs> sing it to mr weasley to get them all riled up yeah. but uh mm. this is this is the song Listen ladies and gentlemen buttons, baby. <laughs> yeah yes kind of it's kind of basically how that song sounds i'm gonna go ahead and sing it for you guys oh come and stir my cauldron and if you do it right I'll boil you up some hot, strong love to keep you warm tonight. <laughs> so that is our Celestina Warbuck song lyrics performed by Janelle. You guys are very, very welcome. Sounded but like Sinatra there, man. That was good. Did what you, was that? you like what that was little rat pack? Yeah, that was good. I liked it. It was, uh, had a little tone to it there, a little, little-esque, uh, almost like a little John a little Mayer. Esque. Maybe change uh, John Mayer oh, to boy. Janelle up in here. We got this Golly. afternoon. <laughs> yeah. It's all you, Jay Nelly. You got it, brother. So let me go ahead and take us on a little bit further here on page 331. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs all the way through 333. So let me go ahead and take it from where it says, No problem, said Harry Grinning. Has been busy at the ministry? Very, said Mr. Weasley. And I wouldn't mind if we were getting anywhere. But of the three arrests we've made in the last couple months, I doubt that any one of them is a genuine Death Eater. Only don't repeat that, Harry, he added quickly, looking much more awake all of a sudden. They're not still holding Stan Shunpike, are they? asked Harry. I'm afraid so, said Mr. Weasley. I know Dumbledore's tried appealing to directly to Scrimgeour about Stan. I mean, anyone who's actually interviewed him agrees that he's about as much as a Death Eater as this Satsuma. But the top levels want to look as though they're making some progress. And three arrests sound better than three mistaken arrests and releases. But again, Harry, this is all top secret. I won't say anything, said Harry. He hesitated for a moment, wondering how best to embark on what he wanted to say. As he marshaled his thoughts, Celestina Warbuck began a ballad called You Charmed the Heart Right Out of Me. Mr. Weasley, you know what I told you at the station when we were setting off for school? I checked Harry, said Mr. Weasley at once. I went and searched the Malfoy's house. There was nothing either broken or whole that shouldn't have been there. Yeah, I know. I saw in the prophet that you'd looked. But this is something different. Well, something more. And he told Mr. Weasley everything that he had overheard between Malfoy and Snape. As Harry spoke, he saw Lupin's head turn a little towards him, taking in every word. And when he had finished, there was silence, except for Celestina's crooning. <laughs> oh, my poor heart, where has it gone? It's left me for a spell. Has it occurred to you, Harry, said Mr. Weasley, that Snape was simply pretend pretending to offer help so he could find out what Malfoy's up to? Said Harry quickly, yes, I thought you'd say that. But how do we know? It isn't our business to know, said Lupin unexpectedly. He had turned his back to the fire now and faced Harry across from Mr. Weasley. It's Dumbledore's business, and Dumbledore trusts Severus, and that ought to be good enough for all of us. But, said Harry, just say Dumbledore's wrong about Snape. People have said it. Many times. It comes down to whether or not you trust Dumbledore's judgment. I do. Therefore, I trust Severus. But Dumbledore can make mistakes, argued Harry. He says it himself, and you, he looked directly into Lupin's eye. Do you honestly like Snape? I neither like nor dislike Severus, said Lupin. No, Harry, I am speaking the truth, he added as Harry pulled a skeptical expression. 
We shall never be boss and friends, perhaps, after all that has happened between James and Sirius and Severus. There is too much bitterness there. But I do not forget that during the year that I taught at Hogwarts, Severus made the Wolfsbane potion for me every month, and made it perfectly for every, so that I did not have to suffer as I usually do at the full moon. But he accidentally let it slip that you're a werewolf, so you had to leave, said, Angri said Harry angrily. Lupin shrugged. The news would have leaked out anyways. We both know he wanted my job, but he could have wrecked so much worse damage on me by tampering with the potion. He kept me healthy, and I must be careful, grateful. Maybe he didn't dare mess with the potion with Dumbledore watching him. You are determined to hate him, Harry, said Lupin with a faint smile, and I understand. But James is your father, and Sirius is your godfather. You have inherited an old prejudice. By all means, tell Dumbledore what you have told Arthur and me, but not, do not expect him to share your view of the matter. Do not even expect him to be surprised by what you tell him. It might have been on Dumbledore's orders that Severus questioned Draco. So that's where I wanted to put that there. I thought that was important. And then on page 334, I'm going to do a couple more pages here as well. I'm going to read from the top of the page through a couple paragraphs on page 337. So this is uh, Harry asking Lupin, because this is really important, guys. What have you been up to lately? Harry asked Lupin as Mr. Weasley bustled off to fetch the eggnog and everybody else stretched and broke into conversation. I've been underground, said Lupin, almost literally. That's why I haven't been able to write. Sending letters to you would have been something of a giveaway. What do you mean? I've been living among my fellows, my equals, said Lupin. Werewolves, he added, at Harry's look of incomprehension. Nearly all of them are on Voldemort's side. Dumbledore wanted a spy, and here I was, ready-made. He sounded a little bitter, and perhaps realized it, for he smiled more warmly as he went on. I'm not complaining. It is necessary work, and who can do it better than I? However, it has been difficult gaining their trust. I bear the unmistakable signs of having tried to live among wizards, you see, where they have shunned normal society and live on the margins, stealing and sometimes killing to eat. How come they like Voldemort? They think that under his rule, they will have a better life said Lupin, and it's hard to argue with Greyback out there. Who's Greyback? You haven't heard of him? Lupin's hands closed convulsively in his lap. Fenrir Greyback is perhaps the most savage werewolf alive today. He regards it as mission in life to bite and contaminate as many people as possible. He wants to create enough werewolves to overcome the wizards. Voldemort has promised him prey in return for his services. Greyback specializes in children. Bite them young, he says and raise them away from their parents, ways them to hate normal wizards. And Voldemort has threatened to unleash him upon people's sons and daughters. It is a threat that usually produces good results. Lupin paused, and then said, It was Greyback who bit me. What? said Harry astonished. When, when you were a kid, you mean? Yes, my father had offended him. I did not know for a very long time the identity of the werewolf who attacked me. I even felt pity for him thinking that he had no control, knowing how by then how it felt to transform. But Greyback is not like that. At the full moon, he positions himself close to victims, ensuring that he is near enough to strike. He plans it all. And this is the man Voldemort is using to marshal the werewolves. I cannot pretend that my particular brand of reasoned argument is making much headway against Greyback's insistence that we werewolves deserve blood, that we ought to revenge ourselves on normal people. But you're normal, said Harry fiercely. You just got a, a problem. And Lupin burst out laughing. Sometimes you remind me a lot of James. He called it my furry little problem in company. 
Many people were under the impression that I owned a badly behaved rabbit. He accepted a glass of eggnog from Mr. Weasley with a word of thanks. He looked slightly more cheerful. Harry, meanwhile, felt a rush of excitement. This last mention of his father had reminded him something there was one, something he wanted to ask uh, Lupin. Have you ever heard of someone called the Half-Blood Prince? The Half-Blood what? Prince, said Harry, watching him closely for signs of recognition. There are no wizarding princes, said Lupin, now smiling. Is this a title you're thinking of adopting? I should have thought the chosen one would be enough. It's nothing to do with me, said Harry indignantly. The Half-Blood Prince is someone who used to go to Hogwarts. I've got his old potions book. He wrote spells all over it, spells he invented. One of them was Levicorpus. Oh, that one had a great vogue during my time at Hogwarts, said Rupin reminiscently. There are a few months in my fifth year where you couldn't move for being hoisted in the air by your ankle. My dad used it. I saw him in the pensieve. He used it on Snape. He tried to sound casual, as though this was a throwaway comment of no real importance. But he was not sure he achieved the right effect, because Lupin's smile was a little too understanding. Yes, but he wasn't the only one. As I say, it was very popular. You know how these spells come and go. But it sounds like it was invented while you were at school, Harry persisted. Not necessarily. Jinxes go in and out of fashion like everything else. He looked into Harry's face and then said quietly, James is a pureblood Harry, and I promise you, he never asks us to call him Prince. Now abandoning pretense, Harry said, And it wasn't serious either? Or you? Definitely not. Oh, said Harry as he stared into the fire. I just thought, uh, well, he's helped me out a lot in potions class, the prince has. How old is this book, Harry? I don't know, I never checked. Well, perhaps that would give you some clue as to when the prince was at Hogwarts. And that's kind of where I wanted to stop there on, on page uh, 337. Now going on to page 338, I thought this was funny. Just for Christmas gifts that Ron got this really ugly gold necklace labeled My Sweetheart from Lavender Brown. And like he's starting to have his first misgivings about it. He's like, ugh. Why would she think I'd want to wear that? <laughs> you know, just being his typical Ron stuff. So, uh, on page three thirty nine, we get to see what Creature gives Harry for his Christmas gifts. Uh, Creature sent Harry a package full of maggots, which was nice of him. Good, good, <laughs> great job, Creature. And then, uh, yeah, Mrs. Weasley questioning Lupin about Tonks and says she gave Lupin an annoyed look, as though it was all his fault. She was getting fluor for a daughter in law instead of Tonks. Well, that line's kind of a foreshadow because we're going to start to learn a little bit about Tonks and, and Lupin and all that. So, from there on page 341, I'll go ahead and let Chase take you from the top of page 341 through the end of the chapter, and we'll we'll discuss it afterwards. Yeah, you can finish it out if you want. You want me to finish it out? This one. All right, yeah, sounds I'll, like I'll a plan, man. One. I'll I'll finish this bad boy out. Let me uh. A little cheers to your health, sir. <laughs> cheers, malice in the chalice, man. You had me going with that whole John Mayer. It was like a your skin like porcelain. <laughs> oh yeah, Jay Nelly in the building. Good stuff, man. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go ahead and bring us through the rest of this chapter. Arthur said, "Mrs. Weasley." Suddenly, she had risen from her chair. Her hand was pressed over her heart as she was staring out of the kitchen window. Arthur, it's Percy. What? Mr. Weasley looked around. Everybody looked quickly at the window. Ginny stood up for a better look, and there, sure enough, was Percy Weasley striding across the snowy yard, his horn-rimmed glasses glinting in the sunlight. He was not, however, alone. Arthur, he's, he's with the minister! And sure enough, the man Harry had seen in the Daily Prophet was following along in Percy's wake, limping slightly, his mane of graying hair, and his black cloak flecked with snow. 
before any of them could say anything, before Mr. and Mrs. Weasley could do more than exchange stunned looks, the back door opened and there stood Percy. There was a moment's painful silence, then Percy said rather stiffly, Merry Christmas, Mother. Oh, Percy, said Mrs. Weasley, and she threw herself into his arms. Rufus Scrimmageor paused in the doorway, leaning on his walking stick, smiling as he observed this affecting scene. You must forgive this intrusion, he said when Mrs. Weasley looked around at him, beaming and wiping her eyes. Percy and I were in the vicinity, working, you know, and he couldn't resist dropping in and seeing you all. But Percy showed no sign of wanting to greet any of the rest of the family. He stood poker straight and awkward looking and stared over everybody else's heads. Mr. Weasley, Fred, and George were all observing him, stony-faced. Please, come in, sit down, minister, fluttered Mrs. Weasley, straightening her hat. Have a little perky or some tooting. I mean, no, no, my dear Molly, said Scrimmageor. Harry guessed that he had checked her name with Percy before they entered the house. I do not want to intrude. I wouldn't be here at all if Percy hadn't wanted to see you all so badly. Oh, Percy, said Mrs. Weasley, tearfully reaching up to kiss him. We've only looked in for five minutes, so we'll have a stroll around the yard while you catch up with Percy. No, no, I assure you, I don't want to butt in. Well, if anyone cared to show me your charming garden... Ah, that young man's finished. Why doesn't he take the stroll with me? And the atmosphere around the table changed perceptibly. Everybody looked from Scrimmageor to Harry. Nobody seemed to find Scrimmageor's pretense that he did not know Harry's name convincing, or find it natural that he should be chosen to accompany the minister around the garden when Ginny, Fleur, George had also had clean plates. Yeah, all right, said Harry into the silence. He was not fooled, for all Scrimmageor's talk that they had just been in the area and that Percy wanted to look up his family, this must be the real reason they had come, so that Scrimmageor could speak to Harry alone. It's fine, he said quietly as he passed Lupin, who had half risen from his chair. Fine, he added as Mr. Weasley opened his mouth to speak. Wonderful, said Scrimmageur, standing back to let Harry pass through the door ahead of him. We'll just take a turn around the garden and Percy and I'll be off. Carry on, everyone. Harry walked across the yard towards the Weasley's overgrown, snow-covered garden. Scrimmageur limping slightly at his side. He had, Harry knew, been the head of the Auror office and he looked tough and battle-scarred, very different from portly fudge in his bowler hat. Charming, said Scrimmador, stopping at the garden fence, looking out over the snowy lawn and the indistinguishable plants. Charming. Harry said nothing. He could tell Scrimmador was watching him. I've wanted to meet you for a very long time, said Scrimmador, and after a few minutes, moments, he said, Did you know that? No, said Harry truthfully. Oh, yes, for a very long time, but Dumbledore has been very protective of you, said Scrimmageur. Natural, of course, natural, after what you've been through, especially what happened at the Ministry. He waited for Harry to say something, but Harry did not oblige. And so he went on, I've been hoping for an occasion to talk to you ever since I gained office, but Dumbledore has, most understandably, as I say, prevented this. Still, Harry said nothing, waiting. The rumors that have flown around, said Scrimmageur, well... Of course, we both know how these stories get distorted, all these whispers of a prophecy of you being the Chosen One. They were getting near it now, Harry thought, the reason Scrimmageur was here. I assume Dumbledore has discussed these matters with you? Harry deliberated, wondered whether he ought to lie or not. He looked at the little gnome prints all around the flower beds and the scuffed up patch that had marked the spot where Fred had caught the gnome now wearing the tutu at the top of the Christmas tree and finally decided on the truth, or a bit of it. Yeah, we've discussed it. Have you, have you, said Scrimmageur. Harry could see out of the corner of his eye. 
Scrimgeour is squinting at him. So he pretended to be interested in a gnome that had just poked its head out from the underneath a frozen rhododendron. And what has Dumbledore told you, Harry? Sorry, but that's between us, said Harry. He kept his voice as pleasant as he could, and Scrimgeour's tone, too, was light and friendly. Oh, of course. If it's a question of confidences, I wouldn't want you to divulge. No, no, no. In any case, does it really matter whether you are the chosen one or not? Harry had to mull that one over for a few seconds before responding. I don't really know what you mean, Minister. <clears throat> well, of course, to you, it will matter enormously, said Scrimgeour with a laugh, but to the wizarding community at large, it's all perception, isn't it? It's what people believe that's important. Harry said nothing. He thought he saw dimly where they were heading, and he was not going to help Scrimgeour get there. The gnome under the rhododendron was now digging for worms as its roots, and Harry kept his eyes fixed upon it. People believe you are the chosen one, you see, said Scrimgeour. They think you're quite the hero, which of course you are, Harry, chosen or not. How many times have you faced he who must, be not who must not be named now? Well, anyways, he pressed on, without waiting for a reply. The point is you are a symbol of hope for many, Harry. The idea that there is someone out there who might be able, who might even be destined to destroy he who must not be named, well, naturally it gives people a lift. And I can't help but feel that once you realize this, you might consider it, well, almost a duty to stand alongside the ministry and give everyone a boost. The gnome had just managed to get a hold of a worm. It was now tugging very hard on it, trying to get it out of the frozen ground. And Harry was silent, so long that Scrimmager said, looking from Harry to the gnome, Funny little chaps, aren't they? But what say you, Harry? I don't understand exactly what you want, said Harry slowly. Stand alongside the ministry. What does that mean? Well, well, nothing at all onerous, I assure you, said Scrimmager. If you were to be seen popping in and out of the ministry from time to time, for instance, that would give the right impression. And of course, while you were there, you would have ample opportunity to speak to Gawain Robards as my successor the head of the Auror Office. Dolores, Dolores Umbridge has told me that you cherish an ambition to become an Auror. Well, that could be arranged very easily. Harry felt anger bubbling in the pit of his stomach. So Dolores Umbridge was still at the ministry, was she? So basically, he said as though he just wanted to clarify a few points. You'd like to give the impression that I'm working for the ministry. It would give everyone a lift to think you were more involved, Harry, said Scrimgeour, sounding relieved that Harry had caught on so quickly. The chosen one, you know. It's all about giving people hope, the feeling that exciting things are happening. But if I keep running in and out of the ministry, said Harry, still endeavoring to keep his voice friendly, won't that seem as though I approve of what the ministry is up to? Well, said Scrimgeour, frowning slightly, yes, that's partly why we'd like... Nope, I don't think that'll work, said Harry pleasantly. You see, I don't like some of the things the Ministry's doing. Locking up Stan Shumpike, for instance. Scrimgeour did not speak for a moment, but his expression hardened instantly. I would not expect you to understand, he said. And he was not as successful at keeping anger out of his voice. These are dangerous times. Certain measures need to be taken. You are 16 years old. Dumbledore is a lot older than 16, and he doesn't think Stan should be an Azkaban either. You're making Stan out to be a scapegoat, just like you want me to make a mascot. They looked at each other long and hard. Finally, Scrimgeour said with no pretense at warmth, I see. You prefer, like your hero, Dumbledore, to disassociate yourself from the ministry. I don't want to be used, said Harry. Some would say it's your duty to be used by the ministry. Yeah, and others might say it's your duty to check that people really are death eaters before you chuck them in prison, said Harry, his temper rising now. You're doing what Barty Crouch did. You never get it right, you people, do you? Either we got Fudge pretending everything is lovely while people get murdered right under his nose, 
or you've got you chucking the wrong people in the jail and pretending you've got the chosen one working for you. So you're not the chosen one, said Scrimmager. I thought you said it didn't matter either way, said Harry with a bitter laugh. Not to you, anyway. I shouldn't have said that, said Scrimmager quickly. It was tactless. No, it was honest, said Harry, one of the only honest things you've ever said to me. You don't care whether I live or die, but you do care that I help you convince everyone that you're winning the war against Voldemort. I haven't forgotten, Minister. He raised his right fist, and there, shining white on the back of his colored, cold hand, were the scars which Dolor's umbrage had forced him to carve into his own flesh. I must not tell lies. I don't remember you rushing to my defense when I was trying to tell everyone that Voldemort was back. The Ministry wasn't so keen to be pals last year. They stood silent, as icy as the ground beneath their feet. The gnomon finally managed to extricate his worm, and was now sucking on it happily, leaning against the bottommost branch of the rhododendron bush. What is Dumbledore up to? said Scrimmager brusquely. Where does he go when he is absent from Hogwarts? No idea, said Harry. And you wouldn't tell me if you knew, said Scrimmager. Would you? No, I wouldn't. Well then, I shall have to see whether I can't find out by other means. You can try, said Harry indifferently. But you seem cleverer than Fudge. So I'd have thought that you'd have learned from his mistakes. He tried interfering at Hogwarts. You might have noticed that he's not minister anymore, but Dumbledore's still headmaster. I'd leave Dumbledore alone if I were you. There was a long pause. Well, it's clear to me that he's done a very good job on you, said Scrimmager, his eyes cold and hard behind his wired and grasses. Dumbledore's man through and through, aren't you, Potter? Yeah, I am, said Harry. Glad we straightened that out. And turning his back on the minister, he strode back towards the house. And that stops us at 16. So now, what we were talking about from the beginning as well, we're starting to see, like, that's, that's why this these chapters are so intensive, because we're starting to see yeah. full circle moments coming along just inside this book itself. In the very beginning, you, we were getting, you know, Fudge was talking to the other prime minister saying, well, maybe if Dumbledore would let me talk to the boy, I might still be, he's going on to say he might still be, you know, the minister of magic, if he was able to talk to Harry and try to convince Harry what Rufus Scrimmager is trying to convince Harry to do and pretend that, him and the Ministry are pales, that he's the chosen one, that he approves what the Ministry is doing, give the people hope. And Harry's like, no, like that's all fake. Like You guys weren't cool with me last year. Y'all want to put me in Azkaban for defending myself against the mentors that your person sent on me and admitted to it. Like <laughs> He's just showing, he showed up to his lines like, I, I must not tell lies. Like The person who caused all these problems is still working for the Ministry, apparently. And you want and you gonna kill these people who aren't Death Eaters? There's no innocent to proven guilty with you guys. Nope, just think you're a Death Eater. Right to Azkaban, no trial, no nothing. Like, he's he's making really good points on why the Ministry's fucking up still. Like, so it's just one of yeah. those things that great, great full full circle moments that happen throughout this chapter. Standing up to the Ministry, it sucks because like I mentioned in, in Order of the Phoenix, it's still almost like we have this like power triangle mm-hmm. of like Voldemort gaining power with his Death Eaters. Harry and Dumbledore doing their best to overthrow Voldemort and try to stop him. And then there's the Ministry, like, trying to save face, trying to battle, battle yeah. Voldemort, but also trying to get Dumbledore and Harry on their side. And it's, like, it's a it's a whole mix. If they would just, like, stop and listen to mm-hmm. what Dumbledore had to say, like, we would probably not have half the problems that we do in this situation. But anyways. It reminds me of, like, uh, his little connivingness here i mean they're not they don't have the same i guess um i guess a drive for this or action reason but it reminds me going back two books of bagman remember like when he owed all that money to the goblins and stuff so he was like up near harry and he's like i mean i can help you out harry 
I mean, I can help you out. Like, I mean, if you want to be, and then Scrimmador is like, I mean, if you want to be an Aurora, you know, you just, you just come talk to me and uh, we can make that, we can make that work as long as we help each other out. When I mean help each other out, I mean, you're helping me though. Like, as long as you help me, I can help you. <laughs> it's just corrupt, man. It it's, shows the corruption and uh, exactly why Dumbledore never, never wanted to be a part of it. It's, it's. Uh, it just goes to show like even if they're trying to I don't know do you even agree with this because I guess their whole idea is just so no one gets panicked in the wizarding community which I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's still not good either like I agree entirely with Harry it's like um, they can't they can't seem to get it right um I mean, it's just everyone's trying to save face and save their own ass is what they're doing. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. They're making mistakes, and mistakes are costly at this point in time because people are dying, disappearing, and you can't sit here and try to put... My dad always made this... Like, sorry for the... the uh, What's it called? The metaphor here, guys, but you can't put roses on shit and make it smell good. Like you know exactly. what I mean? Yeah. So, man. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Yeah, for sure. But what I'll do here is I'm gonna jump through a couple bullet points of this next chapter because there's only a few, and I'm gonna let Chase actually cool. read the majority of the uh, this the rest of the chapter for the one we're gonna jump into now, which is the second to last one we'll do today, which is a sluggish memory, and this is very very important. So. I'm going to jump through my bullet points and I'll let Chase kind of take over from that page and then uh, where I stop and he'll finish up through that chapter and then we'll get into our final one and we're we're on a roll, man. So let's uh, let's jump in right here at page 349. I have a couple things here that uh, Harry, Ron, and Ginny were set to return to Hogwarts via the flu network. I just found that interesting a little bit because you know how the flu network's being monitored and like there's not certain ways you can get in and out of Hogwarts. Well, they set this specific one up for them because of Harry, which is funny because Harry just had the big blowout fight with the Minister of Magic, but they're still, you know, I think they're a little hopeful that Harry is going to come around, and especially because yeah. of what happens at the end of this book. I don't want to give anything away, but anyways, uh, then on top of that, same thing on page 349. This is something I thought was funny. Fred, George, and Ginny splattered Percy's glasses with parsnips because like they're mad at him and like he was acting like an ass even there. He didn't even want to be there, and they just throw like like parsnips like the way that they're made and the way that they're crushed up and mashed. If you guys don't know what parsnips are, just think of like more yellow mashed potatoes, like oranger mashed potatoes. So basically, they they cover his glasses covered in mashed potatoes that look more orange. If that gives you guys any sort of idea of how that visual would look, but ever seen the movie um, Ted? On page... No, I haven't seen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the one with the uh, the the bear, right? Yeah, and he said, uh, I'm not going to mention it because we keep it clean on this show, but then he said, and I sold the parsnip to a family of four that had four small children. That takes guts. I like guts. <laughs> I'm promoting you. You know what scene I'm talking about? In not really, no. Store. I haven't seen that in so long. Oh, yeah. It's been a long Basically, time. Basically, he hooks I, up I, I with a scroll with a parsnip because he's a bear. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Anyways, gotcha. yes, that'll make you think of parsnips in ways you never thought of before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like porcelain. <laughs> Body is wonderland. <laughs> Anyways, back to you, Jay. Jay Nelly in the building. Yeah, alrighty, so on page 350, the flu network drops them off in Professor McGonagall's office. Page 351, 
Hermione gives Harry a note from Dumbledore with the next lesson set for the following night. And on page 352, Harry tells Hermione about Snape and Malfoy's conversation. And Hermione actually starts to deliberate it. She's like, no, I can't actually deny anything that, like, he's actually up to something at this point in time. But she thinks that, like, maybe when Snape said, you know, what are you trying to hide from your master? Like, Hermione's like, maybe he means his father. But, like, everyone's like, dude, come on. It doesn't mean his father. Like, stop. Like, just understand that I'm right here, Hermione. I know you don't like to, I know you don't like to hear it, but I was right. You were wrong. Malfoy's up to something. Just fucking admit it and let's get it over with. But uh, then going on here from page uh, 353, that we actually have something really fun about uh, about to come up here. So on page 353, I'm going to go ahead and start from she stared across the room, apparently lost in thought, not even noticing Lavender tickling Ron. How's Lupin? Not great, said Harry, and he told her all about Lupin's mission among the werewolves and the difficulties he was facing. Have you ever heard of this Fenrir Greyback? Yes, I have, said Hermione, sounding startled, and so have you, Harry. When? History of magic? You know very well I never listen... No, no, not history of magic. Malfoy threatened Borgen with him, said Hermione, back in Nocturne Alley. Don't you remember he told Borgen that Greyback was an old family friend and that he'd be checking up on Borgen's progress? Harry gaped at her. I forgot. But this proves Malfoy's a Death Eater. How else could he be in contact with Greyback and telling him what to do? It is pretty suspicious, breathed Hermione and Les. Oh, come on, said Harry in exasperation. You can't get around this one. Well, there is the possibility that was an empty threat. You're unbelievable, you are, said Harry, shaking his head. We'll see who's right. You'll be eating your words, Hermione. Just like the Ministry. Oh, yeah, I had a row with Rufus Scrimmager as well. And the rest of the evening passed amicably, with both of them abusing the Minister of Magic for Hermione, like Ron, thought that all the Ministry, after all the Ministry had put Harry through the previous year, they had a great deal of nerve asking him for help now. And the new term started next morning with a pleasant surprise for the six years. A large sign had been pinned to the common room notice boards overnight. Apparition lessons. If you are 17 years of age or will turn 17 on or before the 31st of August next, you are eligible for a 12-week course of apparition lessons from a Ministry of Magic apparition instructor. Please sign below if you would like to participate. Cost 12 galleons. So that's pretty cool now. We're going to learn how to apparate. We're going to have some of our people learning this new skill that we've talked about from a long time ago. This is going to be something that they're able to use. Well, if they can pass their test, who knows? We'll see. Uh, then one last thing I have before I turn it over to Chase is just a couple things from Seamus. Uh, page 355. Uh, let's see here. Perfect. Lost in visions at this happy process. How cool it would be when we can just Seamus clicked his fingers to indicate disappearance. My cousin Fergus does it just to annoy me. You wait till I can do it back. He'll never have another peaceful moment. Lost in vision of this happy prospect, he flicked his wand a little too enthusiastically so that instead of producing the fountain of pure water that was the object of today's charm lesson, he let out a hose-like jet that ricocheted off the ceiling and knocked Professor Flitwick flat on his back. And then, and then Harry's already operated, Ron told uh, a slightly abashed Seamus after Professor Flitwick had dried himself off with a wave of his wand and set Seamus' lines. So Professor Flitwick made Seamus write the lines, I am a wizard, not a baboon brandishing a stick. Uh, someone took him. Sidelong apparition, you know? So then Harry has to explain a little bit about what apparition felt like, all that good stuff there. But then on page 356, Harry finally arrives at Dumbledore's office. And with that, I'll let Chase go ahead and take you from the arrival at the office through the end of this chapter, and he'll take it away from there. Awesome, man. Uh, 
I do want to say, I always like saying the Gryffindor passwords to the common room. So there's a new password. And my girl Hermione had her little moment where she like came out of nowhere after Ron once again is trying to act like he's... You know he's he's the cat's meow, right? The cat's and she meow. just goes absence, <laughs> and like it opened up the Gryffindor common room. So I thought it was cool, just because you know I like mentioning the passwords. Um, but yeah, here we are now, and uh, it, it definitely what's about to happen. Uh, I mean, really sets to me. Maybe I mean I would say what's about to happen in the information we have really sets the tone as for the whole main purpose of this book for finding out uh, these big key things about the war we're having. Um, And then, uh, so I'll finish this out, this chapter, and I'll turn it back to you to let uh, our boy Ronald complain about his birthday parties. (laughs) And I'll let you take that whole chapter to finish this out, man. Um, So it says... On page 356, uh, uh, second-to-last paragraph, the lamps in Dumbledore's office were lit. The portraits of previous headmasters were snoring gently in their frames, and the pensieve was ready upon the desk once more. Dumbledore's hands lay on either side of it, the right one as blackened and burnt-looking as ever. It did not seem to have healed at all, and Harry wondered, for perhaps the hundredth time, what had caused such distinctive injury but did not ask. Dumbledore had said that he would know eventually, and there was in any case another subject he wanted to discuss. But before Harry could say anything about Snape and Malfoy, Dumbledore spoke. I hear that you met the Minister of Magic over Christmas. Yes, said Harry. He's he's not very happy with me. No, sighed Dumbledore. He is not very happy with me either. We must try not to sink beneath our anguish, Harry. But battle on, Harry grinned. He wanted me to tell the wizarding community that ministry is doing a wonderful job. Dumbledore smiled. It was Fudge's idea originally, you know. During his last days in the office, when he was trying desperately to cling to his post, he sought a meeting with you, hoping that you would give him your support after everything Fudge did last year, said Harry angrily. After Umbridge? I told Cornelius there was no chance of it, but the idea did not die when he left office. Within hours of Scrimmageor's appointment, we met and he demanded that I arrange a meeting with you. So that's why you argued? Harry blurted out. It was in the Daily Prophet? The Prophet is bound to report the truth occasionally, said Dumbledore. If only accidentally, yes, that was why we argued. Well, it appears that Rufus found a way to corner you at last. He accused me of being Dumbledore's man, through and through. How very rude of him. I told him I was. Dumbledore opened his mouth to speak and then closed it again. Behind Harry Fox of the Phoenix let out a low, soft, musical cry. To Harry's intense embarrassment... He suddenly realized that Dumbledore's bright blue eyes looked rather watery and stared hastily at his own knees. But Dumbledore spoke. However, his voice was quite steady. I am very touched, Harry. Scrimmageor wanted to know where you go when you're not at Hogwarts, said Harry, still looking fixedly at his knees. Yes, 
He is very nosy about that, said Dumbledore, now sounding cheerful, and Harry thought it safe to look up again. He has even attempted to have me followed. Amusing, really. He said dollish to tail me. It, was kind. it wasn't kind. I have already been forced to jinx dollish twice. I did it again with the greatest regret. So, they still don't know where you go? Asked Harry, hoping for more information on the intriguing subject, but Dumbledore merely smiled over the top of his half-moon spectacles. No, they don't. And the time is not quite right for you to know either. Now, I suggest we press on, unless there's anything else. There is actually, sir, said Harry. It's about Malfoy and Snape. Professor Snape, Harry. Yes, sir, I heard them during Professor Slughorn's party. Well, I, I followed them, actually. Dumbledore listened to Harry's story with an impressive face. When Harry had finished, he did not speak for a few moments, then said, Thank you for telling me this, Harry, but I suggest that you put it out of your mind. I do not think that is of great importance. Not of great importance? repeated Harry incredulously. Professor, did you understand? Yes, Harry. Blessed as I am with extraordinary brain power, I understood everything you told me, said Dumbledore, a little sharply. I think you might even consider the possibility that I understood more than you did. Again, I am glad that you have confided in me, but let me reassure you that you have not told me anything that causes me disquiet. Harry sat in seething silence, glaring at Dumbledore. What was going on? Did this mean that Dumbledore had endeared ordered Snape to find out what Malfoy was doing? in which case he had already heard everything Harry had just told him from Snape? Or was he really worried by what he had heard, but pretending not to be? So, sir, said Harry, in what he hoped was a polite, calm voice, you definitely still trust? I have been tolerant enough to answer that question already, said Dumbledore, but he did not sound very tolerant anymore. My answer has not changed. I should think not, said a snide voice. Phineas Nigellus was evidently only pretending to be asleep. Dumbledore ignored him. And now, Harry, I must insist that we press on. I have more important things to discuss with you this evening. Harry sat there feeling munchiness, mutuous. How would it be if he refused to permit the change of the subject? If he insisted upon arguing the case against Malfoy? As though he had read Harry's mind, Dumbledore shook his head. Ah, Harry, how often this happens, even between the best of friends. Each of us believes that what we have to say is much more important than anything else, than anything the other might have to contribute. I don't think what you've got to say is unimportant, sir, said Harry stiffly. Well, you're quite right, because it is not, said Dumbledore briskly. I have two more memories to show you this evening both obtained with enormous difficulty, and the second of them is, I think, the most important I have collected. Harry did not say anything to this. He still felt angry at the reception his confidences had received, but could not see what was to be gained by arguing further. So, said Dumbledore in a ringing voice, we meet this evening to continue the tale of Tom Riddle, whom we left last lesson, poised on the threshold of his years at Hogwarts, 
you will remember how excited he was to hear that he was a wizard that he refused my company on a trip to Diagon Alley, and that I, in turn, warned him against continued thievering, thievery when he arrived at the school. Well, the start of the school year arrived, and with it came Tom Riddle, a quiet boy in his second-hand robes who lined up with the other first years to be sorted. He was placed into the Slytherin house almost the moment that the sorting hat touched his head, continued Dumbledore waving his blackened hand toward the shelf over his head with the sorting hat, ancient and unmoving. How soon Riddle learned the famous founder of the house? He could talk to snakes? I do not know. Perhaps that very evening? The knowledge I can only have excited him and increased his sense of self-importance. However, if he was frightening or impressing fellow Slytherins with displays of apostle tongue in their common room, no hint of it reached the staff. He showed no sign of outward arrogance or aggression at all. As an unusually talented and very good-looking orphan, he naturally drew attention to sympathy from the staff almost from the moment of his arrival. He seemed polite, quiet, and thirsty for knowledge. Nearly all were most favorably impressed by him. Didn't you tell him, sir, what he'd been like when you met him at the orphanage? asked Harry. No, I did not. Though he had shown no hint of remorse, it was possible that he felt sorry for how he had behaved before, and was resolved to turn over the fresh leaf. I chose to give him that chance. Dumbledore paused and looked inquiry at Harry, who had opened his mouth to speak. Here again was Dumbledore's tendency to trust people in spite of overwhelming evidence that they did not deserve it. But then Harry remembered something. But you didn't really trust him, sir. Did you? He told me that Riddle, who came out of the diary, said, Dumbledore never seems to like me as much as the other teachers did. Let us say that I did not take it for granted that he was trustworthy, said Dumbledore. I had, as I have already indicated, resolved to keep a close eye upon him, and so I did. I cannot pretend that I gleaned a great deal from my observations at first. He was very guarded with me. He felt, I am sure, that in the thrill of discovery, his true identity, he had told me a little too much. He was careful never to reveal as much again, but he could not take back what he had let slip in his excitement, nor what Miss Cole had confided in me. However, he had the sense never to try to charm me as he charmed so many of my colleagues. As he moved up the school, he gathered about him a group of dedicated friends. I call them that for want of a better term, although, as I have already indicated, Riddle undoubtedly felt no affection for any of them. The group had a kind dark glamour within the castle, and they were motley collection, a mixture of weak seeking protection, the ambitious seeking some shared glory, and thuggish gravitating toward a leader who could show them more refined forms of cruelty. In other words, they were the forerunners of the Death Eaters, and indeed, some of them became the first Death Eaters after leaving Hogwarts. Rigidly controlled by Riddle, they were never detected in open wrongdoing, although their seven years at Hogwarts were marked by a number of nasty incidents to which they were never satisfactorily linked, the most serious of which was, of course, in opening the Chamber of Secrets, 
which resulted in the death of a girl. As you know, Hagrid was wrongly accused of that crime. I've not been able to find many memories of Riddle at Hogwarts, said Dumbledore, placing his withered hand on the pensieve. Few who know him then are prepared to talk about him. They are too terrified. What I know, I found out after he had left Hogwarts. After much painstaking effort, after tracing those few who could be tricked into speaking after searching old records and questioning muggle and wizard witnesses alike, those who I could persuade to talk to me that Riddle was obsessed with his parentage, this is understandable, of course. He had grown up in an orphanage and naturally wished to know he came to be there. It seemed to search in vain for some trace of Tom Riddle Sr. in his shields in the trophy room on the list of prefects in the old school records, even in the books of wizarding history. Finally, he was forced to accept that his father had never set foot in Hogwarts, and I believe that it was then that he dropped the name forever, assumed the identity of Lord Voldemort, and began his investigations into his previously despised mother's families, the woman whom, you will remember, he had thought could not be a witch if she had succumbed to the shameful human weakness of death. All he had to go upon was the single name Marvolo, which he knew from those who ran the orphanage had been Mother's father's name. Finally, after painstaking research through old books of wizarding families, he discovered the existence of Slytherin's surviving line. In the summer of his 16th year, he left the orphanage to which he returned annually and set off to find his gaunt relatives, and now, Harry, if you will stand. Dumbledore rose, and Harry saw that he was again holding a small crystal bottle filled with swirling, pearly memory. I was very lucky to collect this, he said, as he poured the gleaming mass into the pensive. As you will understand when we have experienced it, shall we? Harry stepped up to the stone basin and bowed obediently until his face sank through the surface of the memory. He felt the fam familiar sensation of falling through nothingness and then landed upon a dirty stone floor in almost total darkness. It took him several seconds to recognize the place by which time Dumbledore had landed beside him. The Gaunt's house was now more indescribably filthy than anywhere Harry had ever seen. The ceiling was thick with cobwebs, the floor coated in grime. Moldy and rotting food lay upon the table and mist a mass of crusted pots. The only light came from a single guttering candle placed at the feet of a man with hair and beard so overgrown Harry could see neither eyes nor mouth. He was slumped in an armchair by the fire and Harry wondered for a moment whether he was dead. But then there came a loud knock at the door and the man jerked awake. Raising a wand in his right hand and a short knife in the left, the door creaked open. There on the threshold, holding on an old-fashioned lamp, stood a boy. Harry recognized at once, tall, pale, dark-haired, and handsome, the teenage Voldemort. Voldemort's eyes moved slowly around the hovel and then found the man in the armchair. For a few seconds, they looked at each other and then the man staggered upright, the many empty bottles at his feet clattering and tinkling across the floor. You! he bellowed. You! And he hurled drunkenly at Riddle, wand and knife held aloft. Stop! Riddle spoke in tongue. The man skidded into the table, sending the moldy pots crashing to the floor. He stared at Riddle. There was a long silence while they contemplated each other. The man broke it. You speak it? 
Yes, I speak it, said Riddle. He moved forward into the room, allowing the door to swing shut behind him. Harry could not help but feel a resentful admiration for Voldemort, complete lack of fear. His face merely expressed disgust and perhaps disappointment. Where is Marvolo? he asked. Dead, said the other. Died years ago, didn't he? Riddle frowned. Who are you, then? I'm Morphine, and I. Marvolo's son? Of course I am, then. Morphine pushed the hair out of his dirty face the better to see Riddle, and Harry saw that he wore Marvolo's black stone ring on, the right, on his right hand. I thought you was that muggle, whispered Morphine. You look mighty like that muggle. What muggle, said Riddle sharply. That muggle what my sister took a fancy to. That muggle what lives in the big house over the way, said Morphine, and he spat unexpectedly upon the floor between them. You look right like them, like him, Riddle. But he's older now, ain't he? He's older than you. Now I think it, I think on it. Morphine looked slightly dazed and swayed a little, still clutching the edge of the table for support. He come back, see, he added stupidly. Voldemort was gazing at Morphine as though appraising his possibilities. Now he moved a little closer and said, Riddle came back? Er. He left her. Serve her right, Mary and Filt, said Morphine, spitting on the floor again. Robbed us, mind. Before she ran off, where's the locket? Ugh. Where's Slytherin's locket? Voldemort did not answer. Morphine was working himself into a rage again. He brandished his knife and shouted, Dishonored us? She did that little slut? And whore, you coming here? Asking questions about all that? It's over, isn't it? It's over! He looked away, staggering slightly, and Voldemort moved forward. As he did so, an unnatural darkness fell, extinguishing Voldemort's lamp and Morphine's candle, extinguishing everything. Dumbledore's fingers closed tightly around Harry's arm, and they were soaring back into the present again. The soft golden light in Dumbledore's office seemed to dazzle Harry's eyes after the impenetrable darkness. Is that all? said Harry at once. Why did it go dark? What happened? Because Morphine could not remember anything from that point onward said Dumbledore, gesturing Harry back into his seat. When he awoke the next morning, he was lying on the floor, quite alone. Marvelous ring had gone. Meanwhile, in the village of Little Hangleton, a maid was running along the high street, screaming that there were three bodies lying in the drawing room of the big house, Tom Riddle Sr. and his mother and father. The Muggle authorities were perplexed, as far as I'm aware. They do not know to this day how the riddles died, for the Avada Kedavra curse does not only leave any sign of damage. The exception sits before me, Dumbledore added with a nod to Harry's scar. The Ministry, on the other hand, knew at once that this was a wizard's murder. They also knew that a convicted Muggle hater lived across the valley from Riddle's house, a muggle hater who had already been imprisoned once for attacking one of the murdered people. So the ministry called upon Morphine. They did not need question him to use Vertasierum or Legilimency. He admitted to the murder on the spot, giving details only the murder can know. He was proud, he said, to have killed the muggles. 
had been awaiting his chance all these years. He handed over his wand, which was proved at once to have been used to kill the riddles, and he permitted himself to be led off to Azkaban without a fight. All that disturbed, disturbed him was the fact that his father's ring had disappeared. He'll kill me for losing it, he told his captors over and over again. He'll kill me for losing his ring. And that, apparently, was all he ever said again. He lived out the remainder of his life in Azkaban, lamentating the loss of Marvolo's lost last heirloom and is buried beside the prison alongside the other poor souls who have expired within its walls. So Voldemort stole Morphine's wand and used it, said Harry, sitting up straight. That's right, said Dumbledore. We have no memories to show us this, but I think we can be fairly sure what happened. Voldemort stupefied his uncle, took his wand, and proceeded across the valley to the big house over the way. There, he murdered the muggle man who had abandoned his witch mother, and for good measure, his muggle grandparents thus obliterating the last of the unworthy riddle line, revenging himself upon the father who never wanted him. Then he returned to the gaunt hovel, performed the complex bit of magic that would implant a false memory in Uncle's mind, laid Morphine's wand beside its unconscious owner, pocketed the ancient ring he wore, and departed. And Morphine never realized he hadn't done it? Never, said Dumbledore. He gave, as I say, a full, boastful confession. But he had the real memory in him all that time? Yes, but it took a great deal of skilled legilimency to coax out of him, said Dumbledore. And why should anyone dwell further into Morphine's mind when he had already confessed to the crime? However, I was able to secure a visit to Morphine in the last weeks of his life, by which time I was attempted to discover as much as I could about Voldemort's past. I extracted this memory with difficulty. When I saw what it contained, I attempted to use it to secure Morphine's release from Azkaban. Before the Ministry reached their decision, however, Morphine had died. But how come Ministry didn't realize that Voldemort had done all that to Morphine? Harry asked angrily. He was underage at the time, wasn't he? I thought they could detect underage magic. You're quite right. They can detect magic, but not the perpetrator. You will remember that you were blamed by the Ministry for the hover charm that was in fact cast by Dobby, growled Harold. Growled Harry. This injustice still rankled. So if you're underage and you do magic inside an adult witch or wizard's house, the Ministry won't know? This will certainly be unable to tell who performed the magic, said Dumbledore, smiling slightly at the look of great indignation on Harry's face. They rely on witch and wizard parents to enforce their offspring's obedience while within their walls. Well, that's rubbish, snapped Harry. Look what happened here. Look what happened to Morphine. I agree, said Dumbledore. Whatever Morphine was, he did not deserve to die as he did. Blame for murders? He had not committed, but it is getting late. And I want you to see the other memory before we part. Dumbledore took from inside his pocket another crystal file. 
And Harry fell silent at once, remembering that Dumbledore had said it was the most important one he collected. Harry noticed that the contents proved difficult to empty into the pensive, as though they had congealed slightly. Did memories go bad? This will not take long, said Dumbledore. When he had finally emptied the file, we shall be back before you know it. Once more into the pensive, then. And Harry fell again through the silver surface, landing this time right in front of the man he recognized at once. It was a much younger horse Slughorn. Harry's used to him, bald, that he found the sight of Slughorn with thick, shiny, straw-colored hair, quite disconcerting. It looked as though he had his head thatched, though there were already a shiny galleon-sized bald patch on the crown. His mustache less massive than it was these days was gingerly, gingery blonde. He was not quite as rotund as Slughorn, Harry knew, though the golden buttons on his richly embroidered waistcoat were taking a fair amount of strain, his little feet resting upon a velvet poof. He was sitting well back in a comfortable wing chair, one had grasping a small glass of wine and the other searching through a box of crystallized pineapple. Harry looked around as Dumbledore appeared beside him and saw that they were standing in Slughorn's office. Half a dozen boys were sitting around Slughorn, all on harder or lower seats than his, and all in their mid-teens. Harry recognized Voldemort at once. His was the most handsome face, and he looked the most relaxed of all the boys. His right hand lay negligently upon the arm of his chair. With a jolt, Harry saw that he was wearing Marvolo's gold and black ring. He had already killed his father. Sir, is it that Professor Mary thought is retiring? He asked. Tom, Tom, if I knew I could tell you, I couldn't tell you, said Slughorn, waging a reproving sugar-covered finger at Riddle, though ruining the effect slightly by winking. I must say, I'd like to know where you get your information, boy. More knowledgeable than half the staff you are. Riddled smiled. The other boy laughed and cast him an admiring look. What with your uncanny ability to know things you shouldn't, and your careful flattery of the people who matter. Thank you for the pineapple, by the way. You're quite right. It is my favorite. As several of the boys tittered, something very odd happened. The whole room was suddenly filled with thick white fog, so that Harry could see nothing but the face of Dumbledore who was standing beside him. Then Slughorn's voice rang out through the mist unnaturally loudly. You'll go wrong, boy! Mark my words! The fog cleared as suddenly as it had appeared, and yet nobody made any allusion to it, nor did anybody look as though anything unusual had just happened. Bewildered, Harry looked around as a small golden clock standing upon Slughorn's desk chimed eleven o'clock. Good gracious, it is time already, said Slughorn. You better get going, boys, or we'll all be in trouble. That's strange. I want your essay by tomorrow, or it's detention. Same goes for you, Avery. Slughorn pulled himself out of his armchair and carried his empty glass over to the desk as the boys filled it out. Voldemort, however, stayed behind. Harry could tell he had dawdled deliberately, wanting to be the last in the room with Slughorn. Look sharp, Tom, said Slughorn, turning around and finding him still present. You don't want to be caught out of bed out these hours, and you're a prefect. Sir, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away, then, my boy, ask away. 
Sir, I I wondered what you know about about Horcruxes. And it happened all over again. The dense fog filled the room so that Harry could not see Slughorn or Voldemort at all. Only Dumbledore, smiling serenely beside him. And Slughorn's voice boomed out again just as it had done before. I don't know anything about Horcruxes and I wouldn't tell you if I did. Now get out of here and once don't let me catch you mentioning them again. Well, that's that, said Dumbledore placidly beside Harry. Time to go. And Harry's feet left the floor to the fall. Seconds later, back onto the rug in front of Dumbledore's desk. That's all there is, said Harry blankly. Dumbledore had said that this was the most important memory of all, but he could not see what was so significant about it. Admittedly, the fog and the fact that nobody seemed to have noticed it was odd, but other than that, nothing seemed to have happened except that Voldemort had asked him a question and failed to get an answer. As you might have noticed, said Dumbledore, reseating himself behind the desk, and the memory has been tampered with. Tampered with, repeated Harry, sitting back down to you. Certainly, said Dumbledore. Professor Slughorn had meddled with his own recollections. But why would he do that? Because I think he is ashamed of what he remembers, said Dumbledore. He has tried to rework the memory to show himself in a better light, obliterating those parts which he does not wish me to see. It is, as you will have noticed, very crudely done, and that is all to the good, for it shows the true memory is still beneath the alterations. And so, for the first time I am giving you homework, Harry. It will be your job to persuade Professor Slughorn to divulge the real memory which will undoubtedly be our most crucial piece of information of all. Harry stared at him. But surely, sir, he said, keeping his voice as respectful as possible. You don't need me to... You could use legilimency or veritas aerum. Professor Slughorn is an extremely able wizard who will be expecting both, said Dumbledore. He is much more accomplished at occlumency than poor Morphin Gaunt and I would be astonished if he has not carried an antidote to Veritasiarum with him ever since I coerced him into giving me this travesty of a recollection. No, I think it would be foolish to attempt to wrest the truth from Professor Slughorn by force, and might do much more harm than good. I do not wish him to leave Hogwarts. However, he has his weaknesses like the rest of us, and I believe that you are the one person who might be able to penetrate his defenses. It is most important that we secure the true memory, Harry. How important? We will only know when we have seen the real thing. So good luck and good night. A little taken aback by the abrupt dismissal, Harry got to his feet quickly. Good night, sir. As he closed the study door behind him, he distinctly heard Phineas Nigelius say, I can't see why the boy should be able to do it better than you, Dumbledore. I would expect you to, Phineas, replied Dumbledore, and Fox gave another low musical cry. Yeah, man, it's, um, so now what we know is we got this memory that is playing a significant role 
into Voldemort's uprising here and Slughorn is concealing something from us that we don't know and uh, so now Harry's been sent on this mission um, because Dumbledore thinks he has the talent to actually persuade over Slughorn to gain this memory that is going to play a very huge role uh, later on. So with that, man, I'm going to turn it back over to you and uh, you'll take this, uh, take us to the end of this episode today, man. For sure. I do want to make some uh, acknowledgments on this chapter because there's a couple mm-hmm. things that I think I want to point out that are wildly important. We hear the word Horcruxes mm-hmm. for the first time. The word right. Horcruxes is used in that Slughorn memory, and that yep. honestly one of the biggest things that we'll find out in the Harry Potter series. So <clears throat> Horcruxes are mentioned. We're going to figure out later on what they like. That's kind of what the whole thing about the memory is to dealing with is to figure out what was said about Horcruxes and what kind of information was passed on to him talking from mm-hmm. Slughorn to Lord Voldemort or Tom Riddle at the time. Yeah. Also, I think it was important as well uh, what he was did to his own family, how he uh, he was so able, he said, because Dumbledore said he used a complex bit of magic to implant a false memory in his uncle Morphe. Yeah. So that way it said that he's the one that killed it. So we get that full circle. That The first chapter of Goblet of Fire is exactly what that day represents. Remember that day they came running down mm-hmm. from the thing saying they're all murdered in their yep. beds? So we got to That's see right. exactly what and happens. A huge, like, full, full huge. circle there of uh, ex- exactly what happened and how the Riddles died in the Riddle house. So now we know that Tom Riddle, as a teenage self, knocked his uncle unconscious with a stupefied charm or something similar and then went and performed the murders put the memory of the murders into his uncle's mind, took the ring. The ring's still important because we're going to figure out, you know, the ring and the horcruxes and the things are all connected. Like, the, the memory, the horcruxes, the ring, everything's all connected. So, it just, this that chapter itself was just super important on a lot of different levels, a lot of full circle moments coming around. Big key things to, you know, what we need to dive into to figure out the rest of where the series is going. It was just one of the better chapters all in all in terms of plot line and storyline i would say so definitely yeah definitely yeah with that man yeah we got some birthday surprises (laughs) for some that might (laughs) not deserve it (laughs) (laughs) well unfortunately something happens for ron's birthday surprises that he doesn't deserve (laughs) but we're gonna jump right into that here in the chapter 18 the last uh, chapter that we'll cover today before we get into our potholes and then our interesting fact and then we'll, we'll leave it after that. But let me go ahead and dive right into chapter 18 here. Birthday surprises. A couple cool uh, bullet points here. Harry tells Ron and Hermione. Of course, he's got to tell them separately because Harry and... Or, I'm sorry, Hermione and Ron are still fighting. But he tells them both about the Horcruxes and the task that Dumbledore set Harry. And Ron thinks it's going to be easy because Slughorn loves him. He's like, oh, you're, you're Slughorn's like, you know, dream child. He'll tell you anything you want. And Hermione's like, listen, if Dumbledore couldn't get it, it definitely can't be easy. So... There we go again with Ron kind of being Ron and Hermione actually thinking through the problem. So uh, <laughs> from there, on page 374, I'll read from the second paragraph uh, to another thing. It's actually on the same page, actually. So anyways, they must be a really advanced dark magic, or why would Voldemort have wanted to know about them? I think it's going to be difficult to get the information, Harry. You'll have to be very careful about how you approach Slughorn with, with a strategy. You'll think it out with a strategy. Well, Ron reckons I should just hang back after potions this afternoon. Oh, well, if Juan Juan thinks that, you better do it, she said, flaring up once. After all, when has Juan Juan's judgment ever been faulty? Hermione, can't you? No, she said angrily and stormed away, leaving Harry alone and ankle-deep in snow. 
So there, I just wanted to put that out there. It's important. Uh, page 375, Slughorn has them all pick a poison uh, and try to make an antidote for it. Now, Hermione's happy because she knows the Half-Blood Prince's book is not going to be able to help since it wouldn't know the exact poison that Harry picked. And Harry wouldn't even know the exact poison. They've got to like uh, extract it bit by bit. That's why you see that towards the end of this, like Hermione has like 17 vials of different stuff. So like, Hermione's happy. She's like, ha-ha, the book's not going to be able to help you out with this because you've got to figure out what the properties are and the actual like, equations behind it and, and the science behind it. And so I'm actually going to go ahead and read how that turns out from the last paragraph on page 376 uh, all the way through uh, 380, uh, page 380. So you got about four pages here. So It took Harry only five minutes to realize that his reputation as the best potion maker in the class was crashing around his ears. Slughorn had peered hopefully into his cauldron on the first circuit of the dungeon, preparing to exclaim in delight as he usually did, but instead had withdrawn his head hastily, coughing as the smell of bad eggs overwhelmed him. Hermione's expression could not have been any smugger. She had loathed being outperformed in every potions class. She was now decanting the mysteriously separated ingredients of her poison into ten different crystal files. More to avoid watching this irritating sight than anything else, Harry bent over the Half-Blood Prince's book and turned a few pages with unnecessary force. And there it was, scrawled right across a long list of antidotes. Just shove a bezor down their throats. Harry stared at these words for a moment. Hadn't he long ago heard of Bezors? Hadn't Snape mentioned them in their first ever potions class? A stone taken from the stomach of a goat, which would protect from most poisons? It was not an answer to Galpolat's problem, and Snape had still been their teacher. Harry would not have dared to do it with Snape. But this was a moment for desperate measures. He hastened towards the store cupboard and rummaged within it, pushing aside unicorn horns and tangled of dried herbs until he found at the very back a small cardboard box on which had been scribbled the word Bezors. He opened the box just as Slughorn called. Two minutes left, everyone. Inside were half a dozen shriveled brown objects looking more like dried up kidneys than real stones. Harry seized one, put the box back in the cupboard, and then hurried back to his cauldron. Time's up, called Slughorn genially. Well, let's see how you've done. Blaze, what have you got for me? Slowly, Slughorn moved around the room, examining the various antidotes. Nobody had finished the task, although Hermione was trying to cram a few more ingredients into her bottle before Slughorn reached her. Ron had given up completely, and there was merely trying to avoid breathing in the putrid flames issuing from his cauldron. Harry stood there, the bezer clutched in a slightly sweaty hand. Slughorn reached their table last. He sniffed Ernie's potion and passed on to Ron's with a grimace. He did not linger over Ron's cauldron, but backed away swiftly, retching slightly. And you, Harry? What have you got to show me? Harry held out his hand, the bezor sitting in his palm. Slughorn looked down at it for a full ten seconds. Harry wondered for a moment whether he was going to shout at him, and he threw his head back and roared with laughter. You've got nerve, boy, he boomed, taking the bezor and holding it up so the class could see. Oh, you're like your mother. Well, I can't fault you. A bezor certainly would act as an antidote to all these potions. Hermione, who was sweaty-faced and had soot on her nose, looked livid. Her half-finished antidote comprised 52 ingredients, including a chunk of her own hair bubbled sluggishly behind Slughorn, who had eyes for nobody but Harry. And you thought of a bezor all by yourself, did you, Harry? She asked through gritted teeth. That's the individual spirit of a real potion maker, said Slughorn happily, before Harry could reply. 
Just like his mother, she had the same intuitive grasp of potion making. It's undoubtedly Lily he gets it from. Yes, Harry, yes. If you got a Bezor to hand, of course that would do the trick. Although, as they don't work on everything and are pretty rare, it's still worth knowing how to mix antidotes. And the only person in the room looking angrier than Hermione was Malfoy, who, Harry was pleased to see, had spilled something that looked like cat sick all over himself. But before either of them could express their fury that Harry had come up at the top of the class by not doing any work, the bell rang. Time to pack up! And an extra ten points for Gryffindor for sheer cheek! Still chuckling, he waddled back to his desk at the front of the dungeon. Harry dawdled behind, taking an inordinate amount of time to do up his bag. Neither Ron nor Hermione wished him any luck as they left. They both looked rather annoyed. And at last, Harry and Slughorn were the only two left in the room. Come on now, Harry, you'll be late for your lesson, said Slughorn affably, snapping the gold clasp shut on his dragon skin briefcase. Sir, said Harry, reminding himself irresistibly of Voldemort, I, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away then, my dear boy, ask away. Sir, I wondered what you know about... about Horcruxes. Slughorn froze. His round face seemed to sink in upon itself. He licked his lips and said hoarsely, What did you say? I asked whether you know anything about Horcruxes, sir. You see, Dumbledore put you up to this, whispered Slughorn. His voice had changed completely. It was not genial anymore, but shocked, terrified. He fumbled in his breast pocket and pulled out a handkerchief and mopped his sweaty brow. Dumbledore's shown you that, that memory. Well, hasn't he? Yes, said Harry, deciding that on the spot it was best not to lie. Yes, of course, said Slughorn quietly, still dabbing at his white face. Of course, well, if you've seen that memory, Harry, you'll know that I don't know anything, anything, he repeated forcefully about Horcruxes. He seized his dragonskin briefcase and stuffed his handkerchief back into his pocket and marched to the dungeon door. Sir, said Harry desperately, I just, I just thought there might be more to the memory. Did you? Then you were wrong, weren't you? Wrong! He bellowed the last word before Harry could say another word, slammed the dungeon door behind him. So that's a little bit of the thing I wanted to read there, because that's pretty important. Just simply because Harry decided, instead of asking about the memory specifically, he was going to ask about the same topic. I think it was kind of a dumb strategy. Like Hermione said, you need to think up a strategy before you just go ask him. But Harry took Ron's advice, and shocker, it failed. And so now we're in this weird spot where now Slughorn's on his guard, right? Now he's going to do his best, and we're going to see how he tries to avoid Harry uh, for, for a decent amount of time before we get to where we're going to get to. Now, Full circle moment. Sorry, real yeah, quick. No, take uh, it. Just mentioning that when has Harry ever taken Hermione's advice? Right. Because last time I recall, last book, she was giving him advice <laughs> the entire book. Yeah, about like about Voldemort and saying like, hey, the Sirius might not be there, might be a trap, and he's like, not, mm -hmm. he's not having it. Yeah, he doesn't take her <laughs> advice too often, does he? Never. But... On phase 381, the library was yielding no results as to what Horcruxes were, nor what they do. Similarly, on page 381, there was only one single mention of Horcruxes, and it was the book called Magic Most Evil. And then in, the, in that section, it said, the only thing that was mentioned is one sentence. Of the Horcrux, wickedest of magical inventions, we shall not speak nor give direction. Which is kind of funny, because Hermione at that point was like, well, why even mention it, then, you idiots? <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> right. uh, the first the first sixth-year apparition test was scheduled for the first Saturday in February. And on page 382, we find that their, their ministry apparition instructor, his name is Wilkie Twycross, and it's going to be a 12-week course. On page two, 382, I'm going to go ahead and read the last paragraph uh, through the first paragraph on page 383, just a short little spot here. As you may know, it is usually impossible to apparate or disapparate within Hogwarts. 
The headmaster has lifted this enchantment purely within the Great Hall for one hour so as to enable you to practice. May I emphasize that you will not be able to apparate outside the walls of this hall and that you'd be unwise to try. I want to bring our attention to what I just said there. Simply because, Chase, from what me and you know, and everyone else who's read the book, I know we're getting through it, but how it finished and what happens later on, mm-hmm. wouldn't it have been a smarter plan for a certain student to use that knowledge to their benefit? How you can apparate at a specific time inside of Hogwarts at a specific moment in a specific area, I feel like that would have like really solved a lot of problems for somebody. I don't know if you would catch my drift, but uh, I'm catching your drift. I'm catching what you're putting down. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely. So, uh, you would have thought someone would have kind of thought of that, <laughs> considering apparition is such a big part of the wizarding community, right? <laughs> but I guess, but like, then, you know, for a long time, I mean, well, no, yeah, because you can apparate. Well, I guess that's the thing, though, as they're taking, which we get more to this next week, but you can't just, I guess because it's Hogwarts, though, and it's students, you can't really just apparate where you want to, technically. Right, you'd have to go to the the Great Hall, but the people who we're we're referring to that would need to appear, they would have all been to Hogwarts. They would know what, so like... So you feel like a little bit of communication from a student to uh, their helpers on the outside mm-hmm. would be able to say, hey, at this point in time, every whatever day, what is a Saturday at this time period for this hour, yeah, they're lifting right. the enchantments to operate inside of Hogwarts. The only thing I could possibly think of is that the school's kind of on high alert looking like because like there's three That's, heads of houses yeah. there, like McGonagall's there. It's like the only thing I could possibly think of is like you can't take anyone by surprise. I mean I guess like at first it'd be surprising, but like three pretty powerful members of the order right there. And then like you have that whole mm-hmm. I'm not gonna I don't wanna get too much into it because I wanna give anything no, away, but just the <laughs> thought I like had that very like, end. But yeah, no, no, I yeah. definitely I, I I'm definitely understanding exactly what you're saying. I'm just wondering if like that's kinda what I was thinking because the three members you're talking about, you almost wonder if they still classify as technically yeah. students when on campus. Like, I don't know how that would classify, but no, I, I agree with you. That that's a very good thought there. That's uh, it yeah. might have changed. I'll leave it at this. It might have changed things. I mean, that's still pretty big stretch. Whether or not it would have dictated anything different. I, that's a tough call. I don't think it. I think it think honestly about... would have. It would depend if us uh, if the headmaster was there or not, or if he was out on one of his errands. I think because yeah. if the headmaster comes down, ain't no one doing nothing. You know what I mean? Like if right. all yeah, they have to do exactly. is like hit yeah. Dumbledore, like you know, because we already uh-huh. saw what happened in the Ministry when Dumbledore decides he needs to handle stuff. So I think right. it would really depend on if Dumbledore was at Hogwarts or if he was away from Hogwarts. But I'd say we leave it at that because I don't want to – anything more, we might as well just ruin it. You know <laughs> what I mean? So way like, down the road. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I understand exactly what you're talking about, though, because that's a very, For sure. very good point you made. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and continue on page 383. I'll read the third to last paragraph here and then uh, through the first paragraph on page 384. And this is regarding Malfoy here. Uh, I don't know how much longer, all right. Malfoy shot at him, oblivious to Harry standing right behind him. It's taking longer than I thought it would. Crab opened his mouth, but Malfoy appeared to second-guess what he was going to say. Look, it's none of your business what I'm doing, Crab. You and Goyle just do as you're told and keep a lookout. 
I tell my friends what I'm up to if I want them to keep a lookout for me, Harry said, just loud enough for Malfoy to hear him. Malfoy spun around on the spot, his hand flying to his wand, but at that precise moment, the four heads of houses shouted, quiet, and silence fell again, and Malfoy slowly turned to face the front again. So that's just a little more foreshadow about what's going on here with Malfoy and Crabbe and Goyle being lookouts for him. I thought that was important to mention. Uh, through page 384, we learn the three Ds of apparition are destination, determination, and deliberation. That was pretty cool. The next thing of note that happens throughout the apparition class is that Susan Bones, she's Madame Bones' niece, uh, she splinched her leg on the fourth try. So she got all of her body in the hoop besides that one leg, and then like, the heads of houses put the leg back on her. It was called splinching. We learn what splinching is is when you remove a body part when you try to apparate. But I thought it was kind of cool like, that you can just kind of, in a puff of purple smoke, the leg is reattached. It's like... Well, then, can that be yeah. that way for any wound that happens? Who knows? Like, why couldn't Mad-Eye Moody's leg be returned to him if it got destroyed? I don't know. Just something. You know I what they reminded about, me of? Anyways. Sorry, not to cut you off. I was what? just going to say. It reminded me of, like, what? the wizards in uh, Goblet of Fire that were, like, taking control, like, making sure the dragons didn't get out of control. And they were, like, rushing there if there was a problem <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Like, during the tournament. That's what it reminded me of. For sure. And on page 86, it says after an hour, nobody fully was when no one was fully successful at operating, which is surprising to me because who's usually the top at the class and like does everything by the first lesson? Uh, Hermione, and she yeah. even couldn't fully operate at after the first lesson, which is pretty cool. Uh, page 387, Harry makes a decision to watch Malfoy's movements from now on on the Marauders map, which is going to make things a little bit more interesting going forward, and then. On page 388, I'm going to go ahead and read the fourth paragraph itself because this is pretty pretty heavy foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. Despite his determination to catch Malfoy out, Harry had no luck at all over the next couple of weeks. Although he consulted the map as often as he could, sometimes making unnecessary visits to the bathroom between lessons to search it, he did not see Malfoy anywhere suspicious. Admittedly, he did spot Crabbe and Goyle moving around the castle on their own more often than usual, sometimes remaining stationary in deserted corridors, but at these times, Malfoy was not only nowhere near them, but impossible to locate on the map at all. This is most mysterious. Harry toyed with the possibility that Malfoy was actually leaving the school grounds, but could not see how he could be doing it, given the very high level of security now operating within the castle. He could only suppose that he was missing Malfoy amongst the hundreds of tiny black dots upon the map. As for the fact that Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle appeared to be going in different ways when they were usually inseparable... These things happened as people got older. Ron and Hermione, Harry reflected sadly, were living proof. So that's pretty heavy foreshadowing of not being able to find Malfoy, even though Crabbe and Goyle are kind of stationary. Uh, then he has the idea that Malfoy may be leaving school grounds, which is something that may or may not come back up later too. So I wanted to just point that out. At page 389, the Hogsmeade trip was canceled, especially after what happened to Katie Bell. Bad weather they decided to cancel the Hogsmeade trip. Uh... And so later on page 389, I'm actually going to read just something real quick from one thing to another part down where it says, uh, we're going to start with not a big surprise though, is it? Said Harry, not after what happened to Katie. She had still not returned from St. Mungo's. What was more, further disappearances had been reported in the Daily Prophet, including several relatives from students at Hogwarts. So I thought that was a pretty important little little paragraph there. So not only is Katie Bell not back, 
but other relatives of students at Hogwarts have also been missing and with all that's going on with Voldemort out there in the world it's a dangerous it's dangerous times now on page 389 through 390 Ron has his coming of age birthday he turned 17 on March 1st and that was when the, the Hogsmeade date was supposed to be was March 1st and uh, yeah so now Ron is officially an adult wizard and he actually got some really cool uh, presents because he was saying like man I'm going to turn 17 I'm going to come of age every year I should do this again and he got an awesome watch uh, with his from his mom and dad uh, Harry got him really nice keeper gloves so anyways I'm actually going to go ahead on page 390 I'm going to read from the last paragraph and close out the end of this chapter here so here I go which one? Want one? Ron said, thickly holding out a box of chocolate cauldrons. No thanks, said Harry, looking up. Malfoy's gone again. Can't have done, said Ron, stuffing a second cauldron into his mouth as he slid out of bed to get dressed. Come on, if you don't hurry up, you'll have to apparate on an empty stomach. Might make it easier, I suppose. Ron looked thoughtfully at the box of chocolate cauldrons, then shrugged and helped himself to a third. Harry tapped the map with his wand and muttered, Mischief managed, though it hadn't been, and got dressed, thinking hard. There had to be an explanation for Malfoy's periodic disappearances, but he simply could not think what it could be. The best way of finding out would be to tail him, but even with the invisibility cloak, it would be an impractical idea. Harry had lessons, Quidditch practice, homework, and apparition. He could not follow Malfoy around the school all day long without his absence being remarked upon. Ready? He said to Ron. He was halfway to the dormitory door when he realized that Ron had not moved, but was leaning on his bedpost, staring out of the rainwashed window with a strangely unfocused look on his face. Ron, breakfast. I'm not hungry. Harry stared at him. I thought you just said, well, all right, I'll come down with you, sighed Ron, but I don't want to eat. Harry scrutinized him suspiciously. You've just eaten half a box of chocolate cauldrons, haven't you? It's not that, Ron sighed again. You, you wouldn't understand. Fair enough, said Harry, all a bit puzzled as he turned to open the door. Harry, said Ron suddenly. What? Harry, I can't stand it. You can't stand what? asked Harry, now starting to feel definitely alarmed. Ron was rather pale and looked as though he was about to be sick. I can't stop thinking about her, said Ron hoarsely. Harry gaped at him. He had not expected this and was not sure he wanted to hear it. Friends they may be, but if Ron started calling Lavender Lav-Lav, he would have to put his foot down. Why does that stop you from having breakfast? Harry asked, trying to inject a note of common sense into the proceedings. I don't think she knows I exist, said Ron with a desperate gesture. She definitely knows you exist, said Harry, bewildered. She keeps snogging you, doesn't she? Ron blinked. Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about, said Harry with an increasing sense that all reason had dropped out of their conversation. Ramilda Vane, said Ron softly, and his whole face seemed to illuminate as he said it, as though hit by a ray of purest sunlight. They stared at each other for almost a whole minute before Harry said, This is a joke, right? You're joking. I think... Harry, I think I love her, said Ron in a strangled voice. Okay, said Harry, walking up to Ron to get a better look at his glazed eyes and the pallid complexion. Okay, say that again with a straight face. I love her, repeated Ron breathlessly. Have you seen her hair? It's all black and shiny and silky in her eyes. Her big, dark eyes and her... This is really funny and everything, said Harry impatiently, but joke's over, all right? Drop it. He turned to leave. He got in two steps towards the door when a crashing blow hit him on the right ear. Staggering, he looked around. Ron's fist was drawn right back, his face contorted with rage. He was about to strike again. 
Harry reacted instinctively as Juan was out of his pocket and the incantation sprang to his mind without conscious thought. Levicorpus! Ron yelled as his heels wrenched upwards once more as he dangled helplessly upside down, his robes hanging off him. What was that for? Harry bellowed. You insulted her, Harry. You said it was a joke, shouted Ron, who was slowly turning purple in the face as all the blood rushed to his head. This is insane, said Harry. What's gotten into it? Then he saw the box lying open on Ron's bed, and the truth hit him with the force of a stampeding troll. Where did you get those chocolate cauldrons? They were a birthday present, shouted Ron, revolving slowly in midair, struggling to get to his feet. I offered you one, didn't I? You just picked them up off the floor, didn't you? They'd fall off my bed, all right. Let me go. They didn't fall off your bed, you prat. Don't you understand? They were mine. I chucked them out of my trunk when I was looking for the mat. They're the chocolate cauldrons Ramilda gave me for Christmas, and they're all spiked with love potion. But only one word of this seemed to have registered with Ron. Ramilda? He repeated. Did you say Ramilda? Harry, do you know her? Can you introduce me? Harry stared at the dangling Ron, whose face now looked tremendously hopeful, and he fought a desire to laugh. A part of him, the part closest to his throbbing right ear, was quite keen on letting Ron down and watching him run amok until the effects of the potion wore off. But on the other hand, they were supposed to be friends, and Ron had not been himself when he attacked, and Harry had thought he would deserve another punching if he actually permitted Ron to declare his undying love for Amelda Vane. Yeah, I'll introduce you, said Harry, thinking fast. I'm going to let you down now, okay? He sent Ron crashing back to the floor. His ear did hurt quite a lot, but simply Ron bounded to his feet again, grinning. She'll be in Slughorn's office, said Harry confidently, leading the way to the door. Why will she be in there? asked Ron anxiously, hurrying to keep up. Oh, she has extra potions lessons with him, said Harry, inventing wildly. Well, maybe I... I could ask if I could have them with her, he said eagerly. Great idea, said Harry. Lavender was waiting beside the portrait hole, a complication Harry had not foreseen. You're late, Juan Juan, she pouted. I've got you a birthday. Leave me alone, said Ron impatiently. Harry's going to introduce me to Ramilda Vane. (laughs) 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 And without another word to her, he pushed his way out of the portrait hole. Harry tried to make an apologetic face to Lavender, but it might have turned out simply amused because she looked more offended than ever as a fat lady swung shut behind him. Harry had been slightly worried that Slugard might be at breakfast, but he answered his office door at the first knock wearing green velvety dressing gown and matching nightcap and looking rather bleary-eyed. Harry, he mumbled, this is a very early for a call. I generally sleep late on a Saturday. Professor, I'm really sorry to disturb you, said Harry as quietly as possible while Ron stood on tiptoe, attempting to see past Slughorn into his room. But my friend Ron swallowed a love potion by mistake. You couldn't make him an antidote, could you? I'd take him to Madame Pomfrey, but we're not supposed to have anything from Weasley Wizard Weezes and, you know, awkward questions. I'd have thought you could have whipped him up a remedy, a remedy Harry, an expert potioner like you, asked Slughorn. Uh, said Harry, somewhat distracted by the fact that Ron was now elbowing him in the ribs when an attempt to force his way into the room. Well, I've never mixed an antidote for a love potion, sir, and by the time I get it right, Ron might have done something serious. And helpfully, Ron chose that moment to moan, I can't see her, Harry. Where is she hiding her? Is he hiding her? Was this potion within date? Asked Slughorn, now eyeing Ron with professional interest. They can strengthen, you know, the longer they're kept. That would explain a lot, panted Harry, now positively wrestling with Ron to keep him from knocking Slughorn over. It's his birthday, Professor, he added imploringly. Oh, all right. Come in, then. Come in, said Slughorn, relenting. I've got the necessary here in my bag. It's not a difficult antidote. Ron burst through the door into Slughorn's overheated, crowded study, tripped over a tasseled footstool, regained his balance by seizing Harry around the neck and muttered, She didn't see that, did she? She's not here yet, said Harry, watching Slughorn opening his potion kit and adding a few pinches of this and that to the small crystal bottle. That's good, 
said Ron fervently. How do I look? Very handsome, said Slughorn smoothly, handing Ron a glass of clear liquid. Now drink that up. It's a tonic for the nerves. Keep you calm when she arrives, you know. Brilliant, said Ron eagerly and gulped the entire antidote down in one in one sip. Harry and Slughorn watched him. For a moment, Ron beamed at them. Then very slowly his grin sagged and vanished to be replaced by an expression of the utmost horror. Back to normal then, said Harry grinning. Slughorn chuckled. Thanks a lot, Professor. Don't mention it, my boy. Don't mention it, said Slughorn as Ron collapsed into a nearby armchair looking devastated. Pick me up. That's what he needs, Slughorn continued, now bustling over the, a table loaded with drinks. I've got butterbeer, I've got wine, I've got one last bottle of this oak-matured mead. Hmm. Meant to give that to Dumbledore for Christmas. Oh, well, uh, he can't miss what he's never had. Why don't we open it now and celebrate <laughs> Mr. Weasley's birthday? Nothing like a fine spirit to chase away the pangs of disappointed love. He trolled again and Harry joined in. This is the first time he found himself almost alone with Slughorn since the disastrous first attempt to extract the true memory from him. Perhaps if he could just keep Slughorn in a good mood. Perhaps if they got through enough of the oak-matured mead. There you are, then, said Slughorn, handing Ron and Harry a, a glass of mead before raising his own. Well, a very happy birthday, Ralph. Ron, whispered Harry, but Ron, who did not <laughs> appear to be listening to the toast, had already thrown the mead into his mouth and swallowed it. There was one second, hardly more than a heartbeat, in which Harry knew something was terribly wrong, and Slughorn, it seemed, did not. And may you have many more. Ron! Ron had dropped his glass. He half rose from his chair and then crumpled, his extremities jerking uncontrollably. Foam was dribbling from his mouth and his eyes were bulging from their sockets. Professor, do something! Harry bellowed. But Slughorn seemed paralyzed by shock. Ron twitched and choked, his skin turning blue. What? But, spluttered Slughorn. Harry leapt over a load table and sprinted towards Slughorn's open potion kit, pulling out jars and pouches while the terrible sound of Ron's gargling breath filled the room and then he found it. A shriveled kidney-like stone Slughorn had taken from him in potions. He hurtled back to Ron's side, wrenched open his jaw, and thrust the bezor into his mouth. Ron gave a great shudder, a rattling gasp, and his body became limp and still. And that awesome. is where we're going to leave you in terms of the chapter today. We still have a couple of more things to get to, of course. Uh, a couple things I want to talk about that chapter as well is now we've, we've figured out something else. The second thing has now happened, right? The first thing was a necklace with Katie Bell. It was supposed to be delivered to somebody, and it didn't get there. Now, what did Slughorn say? That this bottle of mead was meant for Dumbledore, but he can't, he can't miss what he never had. So now that we understand that this bottle was actually meant for Dumbledore, and now this it brings a lot of questions, but also a lot of answers up at the same time. Now, Ron, I don't, we don't know if Ron lives or dies right now, right? And we're not going to tell you until next episode next week. But anyways, <laughs> this is something that he's now... Luckily, Harry read that Half-Blood Prince's book, because if he didn't, and that Bezor, you know, that didn't come up, Ron would have no chance at all. We still don't know what happens yep. to him. He might still die. Who knows? But uh, with that Bezor there that was mentioned in the Half-Blood Prince's book, at least he had half a chance where... You know, they would have been quickly screwed because you can't just whip up an antidote to something within seconds of someone dying like 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 he was doing there. So I just thought it was wildly important. There's a couple things in that chapter, right? The apparition test, like the Malfoy thing that, you know, him not being able to find him on the Marauder's map, the love potion coming full circle, and then finally what happened there with the, the poison mead. But that was another filled episode, or not episode, but a filled chapter with really important moments and details. So... 
I'll let you speak on that, and then we'll get to our potential plot holes and then our interesting facts, and we'll close out. Yeah, man. I was just going to say, like, what a great guy he is. That uh, Maybe that's what I'm going to start doing, buying people all these gifts to make it look like I got him something for Christmas and then just forgetting to give it to him and then saying, well... You know, they can't miss something they never had. <laughs> then sharing the wine with all my friends. Take your pick. Well, I mean, I guess he's not going to miss it. <laughs> not like they're ever going to get this anyways. Uh, yeah, man. And uh, it's cool because we've even talked about... Um, actually, they mentioned Bezor before uh, Snape mentioned it in the Harry Potter film Sorcerer's Stone. So, like, even going way back, like, we mentioned Bezor before in passing here and there. So, funny, like, full circle all kind of comes around and yeah thank the lord that harry found that book so um yeah with that uh you want to get us started on any plot holes you had i knew you're the plot hole guy yeah i got two did you i wanted because since i read the chapter i figured i'd give you a chance to talk first and see if you had any plot holes that you found in those chapters and if not i can i can take the two that i found yeah i didn't find any that were i didn't find any that were significant so i'll let you go ahead and take those Okay, so on page 322 in the second paragraph, the first sentence, I just found that this is like really unlikely. So let me read it real quick. It was easy once out of the party to pull his invisibility cloak out of his pocket and throw it over himself. At what point could you fit a full cloak in your pocket? Like your pocket, like, you know what I mean? I, when I you, that, you guys yeah. look at what cloaks are, cloaks are these huge things. Like, they're kind of similar to what you would think of a, a winter jacket. Like, it goes from your head down to, like, your ankles. Like, that is you're going to fold yeah. up and fit that entire thing in your pocket? He just had yeah. it in his pocket. I that, That's one that I had. I guess yeah. it's not terribly crazy, the storyline, but it definitely doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, when you just walk around with this big old thing bulging out of your pocket, like, hey, guys, I'm just happy to see you. Like, no, dude. Is that, is that an invisibility cloak in your pocket? Are you happy to see me, man? <laughs> like, what, dude? Yeah. So the only I thing just, I could I, say about that is maybe that's, like, the rabbit out of the hat. Like, I know, like, next book, you know, there is kind of something they use that it just pulls stuff out of there that's, like, massive. So, like, I mean, it could be like that, but at the same time, this is Harry's jeans, so unless he, like, bewitched yeah. his shorts or his jeans. I, Which I, she doesn't I even know how to that. do. Like, remember in what you're talking about, Hermione's the one that put that together. Yeah, like, Harry exactly. doesn't even know what it's that not is. Like, that, and that, it's not like that was just, like, in Hermione's, like, undergarments or anything. <laughs> like, yeah. that was something else. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. So that was the one. Now, this next one I have does bring up like something really not significant to the storyline, but definitely needs some clarification. So on page 326, I'm going to read this first paragraph. And this is talking about the unbreakable vow. When he asks, like, what happens if you break an unbreakable vow, this is where he says right here. You die, said Ron simply. Fred and George tried to get me to make one when I was about five. I nearly did, too. I was holding hands with Fred and everything when Dad found us. He went mental. Now, why do I think that that's a plot hole? Well, if we go by ages, right? If Ron said he was five, Fred and George are two years older than him. That would make them seven, right? So if Fred and George are seven, they're not even old enough to have a wand yet. You have to be 11 to get a wand before you can go to school. So if they didn't have a wand yet, as stated on page 36 from chapter Spinner's End, Snape asks Bellatrix to be their binder. And right below that, it says, quote, <laughs> you will need your yeah. wand, Bellatrix, said Snape coldly. So how could have they tried to get him to make the unbreakable vow, number one, without a wand, and number two, without the ability to, like, do the whole thing? So was that, I think that's a little bit of a plot hole, man. They, they just going to sit here and throw nonsense into it to try to make it more important than it 
than it needed to be. I don't yeah, know. I think that's no. I think it is actually on the interesting facts. Last week we went through the exact steps of how to perform the spell of the unbreakable vow, and the other party actually, you know, the wand has to be between the other party, and two actually hold the wand, and then one puts their hand in the middle of it, and then you say this spell. So only, I mean, unless maybe they stole Arthur's wand <laughs> if he left I, it on like his dresser or something. Are Bills or Charlies or I don't but know. Even That's so, do you think, think seven years? Do you think seven years old would be able to make a complex spell like that at seven? They weren't yeah. Lord Voldemort who could just do stuff consciously at seven. They probably didn't even know they could do magic yet. You know, like yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, uh, maybe f- like they were just like reciting it. Like I, because I, I was wondering about that too when I read this. Like. Maybe they were just doing the joke and they thought it was real, so Arthur got really offended by it that they were even saying something like that, so he got his, you know, Fred got himself a spanking, like, I get maybe, but no, I tend to agree with you on that, because I, I feel like that's just, like, not paying close attention. That's like yeah. saying, well, hey, you know, like, they tried this on me once, because they're kind of those people, but... It was almost like Ron said it way too serious if it was more of like a joke. So yeah, I agree with you on that too. I gotta give that to you. That's I, I think it has to be a plot hole. Definitely something worth mentioning. So I guess since we that that was like and those are only two I found. Like it was like it's still really good chapters. It's not like I had yeah. a ton of stuff that didn't make sense. So no, those was, are the two I found really and good. Yeah, well I guess we'll get into our interesting facts and Chase and I's interesting fact are heavily related today. Uh, my interesting fact is on the uh, Snargleuf stump. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read a little bit of what I have on it, then I'll turn it over to Chase to him finish up his interesting fact on that. I think he's got it very similar. And then from yep. there, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and close out. But the uh, Snargleuf was a magical plant with the appearance of a gnarled snup, stump that had dangerous hidden thorn-covered vines that attacked when provoked and is usually best handled by more than one person. So... The plant contains green pulsating pods about the size of a grapefruit, which can be extracted. So they are broken open, and the contents, which resembled pale green tubers, collected in bowls within the six-year herbology students that extract these pods, which were best when fresh, which was like that chapter that we read over, right? But uh, the New York Ghost is something. There's a, like the I guess the New York Times, the version of the Daily Prophet. I think that's what Chase wanted to take from there. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go ahead and turn it over from him to talk a little bit about that. But I just want to give the description of what Snargleuf stumps were and where we found them and how they were used and what they what the pods even look like, the grapefruit-sized pods that you need to grab when fresh. So from there, I'll go ahead and let uh, Chase take it from here. Yeah, man, knocked it out of the park. Um, so what I had, so the New York ghost is like the daily prophet of America. So, uh, you know, I've talked before about Makusa, which is the um, Magical America Congress of the United States. And then you had the British Ministry of Magic, just like you had Bo Batten's Academy and then Brazil, all these other schools that they mentioned, Durmstrang, that sort of thing. Well, in America, instead of the Daily Prophet, they have the New York Ghost. And um, because, uh, how do you call them? Snargloffs? Snar- <laughs> sure Snargloff stumps. Right. Yeah, Snargloff stumps. Yeah. That's it. Snargle. Yeah. So they had a huge article in there because I guess they were so um, fascinated with these Snargloffs. Snargloff stumps. Can you say that one more time? You know, I'm Snargloff not stumps. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, they actually invented a game in the United States, and this goes back kind of 
to where we were talking about in our first Sorcerer's Stone facts. Remember, they weren't the best at Quidditch, so they were inventing these other games. They invented a game called Spot the Snargoloth. <laughs> Snargoloth. And um, basically what it was was because they weren't very prone to the United States yet, so they were planting these different things, and we're trying to distinguish which one was just a normal plant and which one was a Snargoloth, and they would try to pick it up out of the ground without actually you know, getting attacked <laughs> by this thing. Uh, so they wrote that, and the New York Ghost has three different editions that they did on this because they were so fascinated by it, and it premiered in December 1st, 1926. So, like, as the, you know, as, like, America was really getting established here, um, and it said that also um, on top of this game, they had another big article that came out, uh, and it was actually written on uh, I say a character but on a person that went to Hogwarts which we've actually talked about before but so Jacob sibling I've talked on the interesting facts before they had this thing in the 80s where Hogwarts had these problems with the vaults that had been there for years that were cursed um, Jacob sibling uh, helped cure those vaults and because of his award so him and his brother were offered a snarkalov stump from Hogwarts and the New York ghost in America was so fascinated by it that they actually wrote another article. Ironically, Hogwarts and the Daily Prophet didn't write one on it at all, but they did because they thought it was so cool that they were given this Snargoloth plant. So, uh, yeah, so very interesting what they find fascinating over here in the United States. So uh, <laughs> New York and Georgia represent, man, <laughs> the original it, uh, colonies makes... there. It makes me think like these Snargoloth stumps are like a mixture between like a Venus flytrap and Devil Snare. Like not as dangerous as Devil Snare, but like will snap at you if you try to grab into it and stuff. It just kind of reminds me like a little bit of like a combination of the two. But yeah. Anyway, same here. With that being said, <laughs> hey. guys, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. With that being said, I mean, it was it was a long episode today. It had a lot of great information though. These, like I said, between this week and next week. We're going to be going through a lot of detail that need to be read out and so we can like extract it, analyze it, detail it, and give our thoughts back to you on it. Uh, so next week, we're going to be experiencing a lot of the same where we'll be taking parts of you know, back and forth, reading big moments and chapters throughout the book. Because remember, what what's this section called? Favorite and impact moments. Well, all these moments are super impactful for how the storyline turns out. So... We appreciate everybody for the amount of time that you take. We know the episodes are long, and especially you know with other episodes reappearing, premiering in the middle of the week, it does can take a little extra time for you guys to get caught up. But the good news is, is that you're going to be very, very happy uh, at the very end of the first season. Chase and I, like we've mentioned, we're going to be taking a, a two-week break to prepare for season two. So between now and then, you're going to have plenty of time to catch up and and get back on to where we are today. Uh, I don't know if Chase wanted to mention anything else about his interesting fact before I sign it off, but I'll give Chase the opportunity to do that, and then we'll let you guys go. Yeah, no, I was just, that's really what I had. Um, actually, they did have uh, a slogan of that newspaper that just says, um, we're the enchanted dispatches of the American wizard, which just appears always in the New York Ghost. But really, I was just going to say, you know, guys, uh, it really means a lot that you still check out every single one of our episodes even though we understand uh it can take a while 
to get through it during the week. But hey, you know, we that's pretty cool. Last y'all week, we'll listen to him with you. <laughs> uh, you know, leave us a review. We love when random reviews pop up. Like we had one this week. Uh, so that means a lot to us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, follow us on Instagram, official ridiculous Patronus. Um, and what's cool, you know, um, is being official uh, as ridiculous Patronus, our brand, we get to post different stuff there every now and then, whether it's comics or, you know, just, uh, you know, Jay Nelly posted a droid he had on there. So just different stuff every now and then. It doesn't have to just be Harry Potter, which is cool. So if you like other things, always follows us too. We got the Westworld, Game of Thrones, Witcher. Be doing some really cool stuff next season for season two that's for sure um and then you know we're on facebook so at chase and josh factor fantasy you can follow us there uh subscribe like on youtube and you know you can find us anywhere you get your podcast amazon music apple podcast spotify pandora um podbean thank you guys for always shouting us out every single week so actually it has been uh, almost seven months in a row we have been on the Podbean featured list, which is a really big deal. Like, that's almost unheard of, which is really cool. So, and with that, I will let our own Jay Nelly in the building uh, uh, close us out here today. Oh, you know what's my favorite part when we get ready to get gone for the week. But no, we'll go ahead and catch you guys next week, guys. As Chase has said, thank you for all that you do for us. All, like he said, with the likes and the comments and subscribes, all that. Do so. Talk about us to your friends if you think they're going to be interested in what we do here. Uh, To Chase's point about the uh, Instagram page and our other fan pages as well. Anything that has to do that, like in a fantasy realm, we're going to be posting on there. But you'll see a lot of stuff that we have done. You'll see some promos. You'll see some cool things just in our personal life. You'll see some pictures of us doing some fun things out there as well. So if you're ever interested in any of that, you guys know where to find us. At official ridiculous Patronus on Instagram, Jason Josh Factor Fantasy on Facebook. I think it's a RP Factor Fantasy on Twitter. We got Snapchat as well. So, uh, with that being said, guys, it is about that time to let you go. So we will catch you here next week with Chase and Josh of Factor Fantasy because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh, Factor Fantasy, signing, signing off. off.